oh my god did we have a great day yesterday we drove I'm just gonna say New England and Professor John as well as Professor Adnan Hussein and his lovely wife and son joined us for lunch somewhere in the middle of New England it was like I stepped into an Alfred Hitchcock movie somebody transplanted me into what about Harry great movie that everybody should watch especially around the time of peeper season when the leaves start changing check out what's the matter with Harry anyway great time with Professor Jonathan Bick Professor Adnan Hussein his wife and son yesterday Professor Bick stole my French fries but that's not for me to uh, talk about here but the man is a, a kleptomaniac he is and I don't know what the man stole my fries without asking Howie Klein show hasn't started yet Howie Klein is back today a lot to talk about he'll be with us at seven Ethan Hershenfeld joins us at 6 30. welcome to the mop-up for August 29th 2022 I'm David Feldman coming to you from an air shaft overlooking a parking garage somewhere in Manhattan where the temperature is 68 degrees and cloudy thousands of people gathered this morning to witness history after 50 years America is going back to the moon just not today yeah they had to scrub the Artemis launch today early in the morning there's been bad weather in NASA but we're going back to the moon after about 50 years this was going to be a test flight they were going to put it through the paces it was unmanned nobody just crashed dummies they're going to test the heat shield and if it worked there and they didn't they're not they didn't launch today but had it worked the next blast off would have included three astronauts who would circle the moon and they say we will have men and women on the moon again by 2024 that's good that's exciting isn't it something to be happy for a lot of things to be happy about student loan debt has been forgiven well some of it has Republicans don't like that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez over the weekend told Republicans if you're so worried about what it would cost to forgive student loans why don't you agree to reverse the 2017 tax cuts that gave nearly a trillion and a half dollars to the richest one percent Congresswoman AOC said quote mind you forgiving all student debt in America would cost about 1.7 trillion dollars so you could undo the 2017 tax cuts for the richest one percent and then forgive all student loans plus have money left over to contribute to universal child care tuition-free college homelessness etc somehow a a one point uh some odd I don't know what the tax cuts were like one and a half trillion dollars in 2017 somehow that's not inflationary but forgiving student loan debt that's inflationary the Biden White House went on the offensive on Friday and all weekend attacking Republicans who accepted and they named names they attacked Republicans who accepted paycheck protection program loans 
had them forgiven, you know, like Marjorie Taylor Greene, uh, they had their paycheck protection program loans forgiven. But this year, they say forgiving student loans is inflationary. There's a moral hazard to forgiving student loans. Bharat Ramaurti works inside the Biden White House. He's an economic advisor. Friday, he was asked, is it fair comparing student loans to small business loans? Dollars per business owner. Uh, now, look, we, we believe that providing well, let's support start to small that from business the beginning. And, and, and here's why. You think it's fair. We think it's a fair comparison. And, and here's why. So, uh, you know, since last July, we have forgiven uh, under the statutory terms of the PPP program, uh, more than $350 billion worth of loans. And those are loans that the government has forgiven turned into, turned into grants. And those are loans, by the way, of up to $10 million per business owner. Uh, now, look, we, we believe that providing support to small businesses is the right thing to do. We didn't design PPP. Maybe we would, we would have designed it a little bit differently if we were in charge. But broadly speaking, providing support to small business uh, is a priority of the president. But look, has, has any Republican in the last year stood up and said, inflation is really high. You guys should stop providing this loan forgiveness to PPP recipients. Uh, you should slow it down. Uh, because it, or, or you should change the rules because it's unfair that these people should get up to $10 million in grants. No, in fact, it's the opposite. Uh, the pressure that we've gotten from Republicans on the Hill has consistently been do this faster, make it easier for people to get forgiveness. So uh, our, our view is why is there a double standard here? Why is it from the perspective of Republicans great to forgive a loan of up to $10 million to a business owner, but if we want to provide $10,000 or $20,000 in loan relief to a teacher or a bus driver or a nurse, all of a sudden it's socialism. That's, that's what doesn't compute from our view. We don't, we don't think that that's consistent. Yeah. Well, the unsaid is being spoken, as Professor Marianne Cummings said on Thursday's show when she told me about this. This is from Congressman Jim Banks. And never, I, th you're, you're not supposed to say this. This is Republican Jim Banks, who tweeted on the 25th of August, and we talked about it on Friday's show, but I just keep looking at it and I'm thinking I've never seen a more honest Republican Party. He writes, student loan forgiveness undermines one of our, sorry. Student loan forgiveness undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment tools, recruitment tools at a time of dangerously low enlistments. It undermines our military's greatest recruitment tools. You're broke, you have no choice join the military my god at least at least they're out in the open they're just you gotta hand it to them they're more honest than the democrats are about everything there's a great article in the guardian over the weekend written by an african-american she's 65 years old her name is listra small cluden she's an american she's 65 she says i have three hundred thousand dollars in student debt I and older debtors are going on strike. Well, I've been talking about this for years for people just to stop paying their student loans. See what happens. Easier said than done, but she's 65. She's organizing uh, a debt strike. She writes, and this is terrifying. 
10 years ago, so she, she was like 53, I began a doctoral degree program in human resources management. My biggest mistake was enrolling in a for-profit school. I did achieve my academic goals in August of 2016. That feeling of success was short-lived, however. After graduation, I had to begin repaying student loans. Again, this is a for-profit PhD program. They should be outlawed. She goes on to write in The Guardian, my school didn't play fairly with me while I pursued my doctoral degree. Of course not. It's a for-profit college. The administrators changed the length of my program from three to six years. They actively steered me away from my research interest in the effects of slavery and globalization, adding more time to my program of study. Meanwhile, I continued to pay from an initial loan payoff of $75,000 per year, my debt rose to $300,000. Incredible. Who is going to protect the American people, if not the federal government, from unscrupulous lenders and unscrupulous for-profit universities and colleges that should be against the law should be shut down all right well after donald trump incited a riot on january 6 twitter finally decided hey you know maybe it's time to de-platform this unhinged lunatic Sure, free speech is great, but, you know, our company shouldn't be making money off someone who wants to destroy our democracy. Maybe it's not a good look for us to, to give voice to this type of speech. So they kicked him off Twitter, and Trump created his own social media platform. It's called Truth Social. Launched in February to countless glitches. First couple of weeks, you couldn't even get on. There was a waiting list. One of the biggest glitches over Truth Social is it is run by former congressman and former Republican chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Devin Nunes, who was being paid $750,000 a year to run it and, of course, keep his mouth shut about other things. Well, not so surprisingly, Truth Social is not doing well. It's down to only 300,000 visitors a day. Turns out there isn't that big an audience. Uh, not that many people want to read death threats to FBI agents. Who would have guessed? And uh, because it's owned by Donald Trump, Truth Social is stiffing its, its, its vendors and probably its investors. I think the SEC is, is looking into it. It is really hot here. I don't have air conditioning. Hang on. That is some good New York tap water. Oh, well, like I said, because it's owned by Trump, Truth Social is stiffing its vendors like their web host. Donald Trump owes so far $1 million to Right Forge, a conservative web hosting service. I don't know much about the internet but I'm pretty sure you need to pay the host of your website first. 
that that's that's like a that's non-negotiable and uh not a not a smart move to stiff your your host truth social days are numbered and some say the days are numbered for Donald Trump although this has always been a Tom and Jerry cat and mouse game where we think ah now now I finally finally caught the roadrunner but uh, a lot of people think it's only a matter of days before Attorney General Merrick Garland indicts Donald Trump for keeping classified material inside his Mar-a-Lago safe in June of 2022 two lawyers working for Donald Trump signed an affidavit promising the government that all classified documents had been returned this after a previous visit by the Justice Department the Justice Department went to Mar-a-Lago they said we you can't have this and they promised to send it back and then two lawyers signed an affidavit saying we sent it back well according to the FBI their most recent search of the former president's estate revealed there were still boxes of classified material he had not turned over the Justice Department had been negotiating with Trump for more than a year to turn over these documents but for some reason he refused the FBI is now saying some of those documents retrieved could compromise foreign nationals who are secretly cooperating with our intelligence agencies now refusing to turn over sensitive documents could result in Donald Trump being charged with obstruction according to a law passed in 2002 obstruction is a serious offense it is a crime to withhold and or tamper with and or destroy government documents especially when the government is trying to get its hands on those documents why would Trump do this a Trump appointed U.S district judge over the weekend said she might appoint what is called a special master to look over the materials that have now been obtained by the FBI taken from Mar-a-Lago she will appoint a special master to see if they these documents truly rise to the level of highly classified material as suggested in the warrant this could delay an indictment but there are reports that among Trump's closest advisors these possible charges are the most worrisome that Donald Trump is getting pretty scared over this specifically who knows right but they say Garland might indict him over the weekend Senator Lindsey Graham echoed the talking points we've been hearing from Trump's lawyers the lawyers have been saying that if you indict Donald Trump that would result in mass protests mass protests they imply that would make January 6 appear timid by comparison here's Lindsey Graham over the weekend and I'll say this if there's a prosecution of Donald Trump for mishandling classified information after the Clinton debacle which you presided over and did a hell of a good job there'll be riots in the streets 
If there's going to be riding in the streets, you better bring your scuba equipment. The Washington Post reported this weekend that the global sea level is poised to rise by more than a foot in the next 80 years, whether or not we hit the benchmarks agreed to in the Paris Climate Agreement. That's because Greenland's ice sheets are melting at a much quicker pace than previously imagined. 110 tons of ice, which comprises about 3% of Greenland's ice sheet, is expected to melt over the next couple of decades, whether we do anything about climate catastrophe or not. The 110 tons of melting ice are expected to destroy low-lying island nations and third-world coastal communities lacking the resources to adapt to climate catastrophe. You know, places like Pakistan, where melting glaciers combined with monsoon season are making for the deadliest flood since 2010. Back in 2010, 2,000 people died. So far this year, heavy floods in Pakistan have killed more than 1,000, 348 of them children. It's injured 1,527. Since last night, 125 were killed. Nearly 100 were injured uh, by more flooding. 300,000 people have lost their homes in Pakistan so far this year from flooding. Damages are expected to exceed $10 billion. Republicans, including Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema, we might as well call them uh, Republicans, should read Fortune magazine, which chronicles and celebrates capitalism. Turns out forgiving student loans doesn't cause inflation. Climate change does. Climate catastrophe is more inflationary than forgiving student loans. Fortune reports this week that three quarters of American farmers blame a bad harvest season this year on extreme heat. And a bad harvest season means it will be more expensive to feed cattle, which are also dying from extreme heat and or lack of water. In Europe, the cost of meat so far is up 12% this year. Water shortages in California have pushed the cost of tomato paste up nationwide by nearly 80%. Fortune says high prices for wheat and cattle hurt the poor especially hard since a much larger share of their income goes towards food. Fortune also says record heat in Europe America and China is posing serious problems for hundreds of millions of people employed by the agricultural industry around the world because rising temperatures make it impossible for them to work outdoors. This is not Jacobin reporting this. This is Fortune magazine. One of the criticisms of that big, that big climate bill known as the Inflation Reduction Act was signed about two weeks ago. Uh, one of the criticism is, one of the criticisms is it gives tax breaks to people who uh, 
who can afford to buy an electric vehicle, but it provides no incentives for low-income households to go green. In France, this year, 12% of all new cars purchased are electric, and the government provides 6,000 euros in subsidies that would go towards the purchase of an electric vehicle, along with some other cash incentives. But like here in America, that still keeps a lot of people out of the electric vehicle market. It is still something purchased by people who have money. Well, last week, French President Emmanuel Macron unveiled a state-sponsored program where low-income residents would be able to lease an electric vehicle for as little as $100 a month. Now, it's not free, but $100 a month is still cheaper than filling up your car if it runs on gasoline. Gasoline now costs $5.54 a gallon in France. Here in America, the average gallon of gas is now costing $3.99. It's down, but a year ago it cost $3.20. That's about a 22% jump in one year, but it is coming down. On Friday's show, I talked about California banning the sale of all gasoline-powered vehicles by 2035. One of the things I mentioned is because California is such a huge market, it's like the seventh largest economy in the world, uh, their decisions when it comes to what they allow on the roads affects uh, automakers. They build their cars to please the California market. And because of that, roughly 14 other states, I'm sorry, 17 other states and the District of, uh, uh, District of Columbia uh, follow California's lead when it comes to fuel standards and other laws regarding what kind of cars are allowed on the road. Section 177 of the Clean Air Act permits 17 states and the District of Columbia to adopt California's motor vehicle emission standards in lieu of the federal government. It's pretty interesting. That's part of the Clean Air Act, Section 177. As California goes, so goes the civilized part of the United States. And as expected, Washington State announced today that it too would ban the sale of gasoline-powered automobiles by 2035. Massachusetts is expected next. Solutions continue to come from the state of California. 63 billion gallons of water running through California's aqueducts evaporate into thin air each year. And California is hoping to stop that by installing a canopy over 4,000 miles of open air aqueducts to prevent that water from evaporating. And not just any canopy. This is really interesting. It's a canopy of solar panels, a pilot program costing $20 million, covering only 8,500 feet of aqueduct around Turlock that will be finished next year. They're going to do a pilot program to not only prevent water from evaporating, but using solar panels on top of the aqueducts to generate 
electricity, begging the question, why aren't we doing this? Why aren't we all in on this idea? Modesto, California is a farm community. And the most important thing farm country needs for farmers is water. That's why Modesto, California's town slogan is this. Uh, they built the Modesto Arch. I remember driving through it and not really quite understanding why their, their town motto reads, water, wealth, contentment, and health. Water, wealth, contentment, and health. That's, their, that's the Modesto Arch. It's the first thing you see when you drive into Modesto. Water, wealth, contentment, and health. The uh, very first word is water. Because without it, there is no wealth, contentment, or health. And uh, Modesto right now has no water. You know, there's an old expression, the shallower the pond, the meaner the fish. The people of Modesto can't make it rain. They can't get the Republicans to stop drilling for oil, which means the droughts are only going to get worse. The shallower the pond, the meaner the fish. So what power, what control do the people of Modesto have? What, what can they do? When the pond gets shallow, they can just get meaner. As if nobody has anything better to do, on Saturday in Modesto, California, the National Straight, Straight Pride Coalition held a march outside a local abortion clinic to express support for heterosexuality, the nuclear family, Western civilization, Caucasians, Christianity and nationalism, everything I hate. Boy, they just checked every box of everyone and everything I hate. I don't hate uh, Christians, I, but I hate Christian nationalists. The Modesto B reports uh, that the National Straight Pride Coalition uh, was uh, joined in the march by members of the Proud Boys. 200 counter-protesters representing the LGBTQ community in Modesto arrived with signs saying fascists not welcome here. Police officers fired beanbags and pepper spray at the LGBTQ uh, counter-protesters who allegedly assaulted members of the Proud Boys with bottles of water. You had to throw a bottle of water at the Proud Boys in Modesto. So you, you not only wasted time, you, you wasted water in Modesto. Uh, this is Modesto's third straight Pride Parade. Straight, third straight, straight Pride Parade. Last year's also ended in violence. As the show continues today, I have a question I'd like to ask my guests and my audience. Do you allow them to march and ignore them? Do you, do you ignore the Proud Boys or do you take to the streets? I don't know what the answer is. Not quite sure. Uh, but as evidenced uh, in Modesto on Saturday, the police are going to side with the Proud Boys. 
more members of the LGBTQ community got arrested than proud boys. Well, Sunday night was uh, MTV's Music Video Awards. Comic Billy Eichner, Billy on the Street, used the opportunity to combine political activism with commerce. I don't know why these, <laughs> why my uh, videos aren't playing properly. September 30th, I have a movie coming out called Bros. <laughs> Bros is making history as the first gay rom-com ever made by a major studio. <laughs> and the first where every role is played by an openly LGBTQ actor, right? And I need you all there in theaters on September 30th because we need to show all the homophobes like Clarence Thomas and all the homophobes on the Supreme Court that we want gay love stories and we support LGBTQ people and we are not letting them drag us back into the last century because they are in the past and bros is the future. Are you with me, VMA? Now that's how you promote a movie, right? You combine political activism with commerce. Nothing wrong with making $20, $40 million uh, for your movie, promoting political activism or whatever. So that's, that's good. See, comedians are smart. Comedians are smart. That's what Joe Rogan says. He says comedians are the canaries in the coal mine, and not just because comedians like him have brains the size of a canary. Joe Rogan, when he's not doing play-by-play and elevating the fine art of people kicking each other's heads into delirium, mixed martial arts, Joe Rogan has a podcast on Spotify. When he's not calling UFC, he has a podcast on Spotify that serves as a symposium for people who have no idea what the word symposium means, nor do they have any intention of ever finding out. Because if it was worth knowing, hey, I would have known it already. Joe is uh, very angry. Uh, And he's especially angry with Donald Trump's former White House coronavirus coordinator. And uh, all this fresh off his interview with Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, big interview with Mark Zuckerberg. There's a meeting of the minds. Uh, And on Saturday's interview, Mark Zuckerberg over the weekend told Joe Rogan that the FBI maybe. He said, he said, maybe the FBI, maybe it was the FBI, he said, told him. And then he said, well, actually not me, but the people who work under me uh, to take it easy on the Hunter Biden story in the lead up to the 2020 election. And for those of you who don't know this, uh, Mark Zuckerberg is evil and runs perhaps uh, one of the top three most evil companies in the world, Facebook. So it only figures he would go on 
the very dangerous Joe Rogan podcast uh, because, you know, it's an easy interview because he knows that Joe Rogan doesn't read. Um, see, if Joe Rogan cracked a book instead of other people's skulls, he would know how to do a follow-up question when he has Mark Zuckerberg saying this. Uh, I don't know, Joe, you could have said something like, Oh, so uh, you're kind of saying the FBI forced you to modify Facebook's algorithm so nobody could read the Hunter Biden laptop story in the lead up to the 2020 election. That's interesting. Now, the FBI made you do that. Okay, who makes Facebook block all the images of human suffering in the West Bank and Gaza, deeming the material too graphic? while at the same time deeming dead Ukrainians, especially children, deeming those pictures as not too graphic for the algorithm. Would that be the FBI to Mark Zuckerberg? You see, if Joe Rogan read, he would say something along the lines of, well, Mark Zuckerberg, I just read an article in The Intercept entitled, Facebook tells moderators to allow graphic images of Russian airstrikes, but censors Israeli attacks. And then Joe Rogan could tell Mark Zuckerberg that the article in The Intercept was written by Sam Biddle and Alice Sperry. Came out the day Zuckerberg was talking about the FBI pressuring him not to run any stories about Hunter Hunter Biden. Uh, According to this article in The Intercept, this is from The Intercept, it reads, previously unreported language obtained by The Intercept shows that the company repeatedly instructed moderators to deviate from standard procedure and treat various graphic imagery from the Russia-Ukraine war with a light touch, like the Other American internet companies, Meta, Facebook, responded to the invasion of Ukraine by rapidly enacting a litany of new policy carve-outs designed to broaden and protect the online speech of Ukrainians, specifically allowing their graphic images of civilians killed by the Russian military to remain up on Instagram and Facebook. The Intercept goes on to write, no such carve-outs were ever made for Palestinian victims of Israeli state violence, nor do the materials show such latitude provided for any other suffering populations. See, if Joe Rogan read, he could have a, a real interview with Mark Zuckerberg. I'll get back to... Uh, what a cipher, well, a dangerous cipher Joe Rogan is in a second. He's a dangerous idiot. Uh, but I should point out that 3 million Palestinians live in the West Bank. And over the weekend, the Associated Press reported that Israeli soldiers have killed at least 85 Palestinians living in the West Bank since the beginning of this year. The Associated Press says the majority of those killed were militant protesters throwing stones at Israeli soldiers who then retaliated at night by raiding cities, towns, and villages. 
One of the 85 dead was an American Palestinian journalist and lawyer who was killed back in May by Israeli soldiers. Israel denied any role in her killing, but in June of this year, the Office of the UN High Commissioner for Human Rights said otherwise. That would be an American citizen killed by Israeli soldiers. Hmm. Seems we should be concerned about this. I don't know. Might have been an interesting conversation between Mark Zuckerberg and Joe Rogan. But then again, what do I know other than Joe Rogan's a dangerous idiot because he doesn't read. Instead, he learns by talking to brilliant people like Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. If you remember, Rodgers told reporters that he was, quote unquote, immunized against COVID. We all thought that meant he had gotten vaccinated, but turns out, no, he was just immunized, as in, I don't know, maybe he bought some of Joe Rogan's supplements and mixed them with Alex Jones supplements. Who knows? But he wasn't getting vaccinated. And when it came time to go through the football protocols for COVID, it turned out he had misled the NFL and he never got vaccinated. And that's a that's, you know, football is a team sport and nothing more. Nothing screams camaraderie more than a quarterback. Uh, potentially giving his teammates COVID, misleading them about whether or not he was vaccinated. Uh, Rodgers, Aaron Rodgers, Green Bay Packers, has won most valuable player four times. And he's an anti-vaxxer. And he was on Rogan's podcast this week, kicking back, smoking cigars. And Rogan, during this conversation with Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers, during this conversation, Joe Rogan uh, told his uh, listeners they should vote for Republicans in the midterms, right? Out in the open, vote for Republicans in the midterms because there were so many mistakes made during the, the COVID pandemic. We should vote for Republicans. I guess it was the Democrats who made all those mistakes uh during COVID I guess it was Donald I guess Donald Trump is a Democrat okay he not only said everybody should vote Republican in the midterms he went on to endorse Governor Ron DeSantis of Florida not just for governor but for president but Joe's a liberal you don't listen to the show He's for same-sex marriage. He wants to legalize weed. He's a liberal. He almost voted for Bernie. Yeah, he's a, a liberal who said he preferred Trump to Biden. You don't listen to his show. Uh, Joe Rogan is working what is called the long con. And he's an idiot, but he's no fool. This is the long con that Bill O'Reilly played. Hey, I'm an independent. I have an open mind. I have an open mind. And they pretend to listen to people on the left 
right up until election season where they reveal themselves to be crypto fascists. They were always crypto fascists. It's part of the long con. You pretend to have an open mind and you bring people in that way, people who are on the fence politically. You create the illusion of what's the term being fair and balanced. You pretend you're looking for answers when in fact you've always been catering to the hard right because that's who you are. You're a crypto fascist. And what better way to lure unsuspecting idiots than by pretending to be open-minded? So Joe Rogan uh, doesn't read. And we know he has always been opposed to the vaccines. He'll you know, say, I have nothing against vaccines. It's a matter of choice. And then, you know, he spews a fire hose of reasons not to get vaccinated. He says it's personal choice while he brainwashes his listeners uh, not to get vaccinated by presenting one lie and distortion after another about COVID and the vaccine. And his listeners are tricked into thinking it's their personal choice not to get vaccinated or to wear a mask. It's presented under the guise of free and open discussion, the same way he promotes ivermectin. Uh, we talked about that. Now, when he got COVID, he said uh, he was cagey about whether or not he was vaccinated. And then he finally came clean and he said, I never got around to getting vaccinated. I made an appointment, but I was on the road or something and I I didn't follow through. He is an anti-vaxxer, and he's also selling a line of supplements that boost people's immunity. Um, and that's a whole other story. You know, if you get vaccinated, uh, you may not want to buy his uh, immunity pills and his brain power pills, which obviously work. So he's representing uh, the Republicans. That's that's what he's doing. He's endorsing Ron DeSantis for president and Republicans for the midterms. There's so much to unpack with Joe Rogan. Uh, here he is talking with Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers about all the lies we, he, and Aaron Rodgers were told about COVID, right? Projection. Here, here you have two uh, charlatans who have made a career out of lying about COVID. So they switch it up and they say, no, 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 we were lied to about COVID. Let's hear Joe talk. This was over the weekend. Uh, I think it's today's show. Let's start with the narrative. Joe says there was a narrative that the mainstream media and the doctors spread about COVID. Well, they just bought the narrative that was being promoted by CNN and MSN after it's over. And so many people, they just bought the narrative that was being promoted by CNN and MSNBC and wherever that if, the, if you get vaccinated, you can't get COVID, you can't spread COVID. That was the narrative. That was the narrative. 
Joe is saying that when the vaccine first came out, that would be in 2020, the end of 2020, we were told that the vaccine would prevent us from catching or spreading the virus. Joe says that's what we were promised, but that is not true. Joe, you're lying about being lied to. That was never what they said, Joe. But Joe wants to build his straw man argument that because they, the government, lied to us about the vaccine, the lie being they told us it would prevent us from catching the virus and spreading it, uh, because they lied, that means the vaccine doesn't work, so we shouldn't take it because people like the Bidens, who are fully vaccinated, are still catching it, right? So that we were lied to, which we weren't, but they lied to us and said, once you get the vac vaccine, you won't catch it. We will forget for the time being that uh, the vaccine is the difference between dying from COVID and getting a mild case of it. We'll, we'll come back to that in a second. But Joe's upset because he was lied to about the vaccine, that once you got it, you wouldn't catch it. Uh, but he's lying about being lied to. Luckily, we had uh, most valuable player four times, Green Bay Packers quarterback Aaron Rodgers. Uh, let's hear what he had to say. But as we look back now, Let's not revise history. Mm, wise. What a wise man. Let's not revise history. Finally, Aaron Rodgers is going to set Joe straight. This is great. This is a real symposium. Aaron Rodgers is saying Joe's history is way off. Good. Go ahead. Socrates. What was said was, you get the vax, you can't spread it or contract it. And no one seems upset that that was a lie, in, including Burks, who has said that she had always known that it was not going to stop transmission and it was not going to stop people from spreading it, which is wild. And she would say, you, we knew that you were still going to get it, even if you got vaccinated, which yeah. is no one said that. No. Pandemic of the unvaccinated. Hmm. So just to be clear here, I guess Aaron Rodgers wasn't going to set Joe Rogan straight. Joe Rogan being a college dropout and a dangerous idiot who doesn't read. Uh, this is really dangerous stuff to be talking to a couple of million people and lying about the vaccine once again. With all the millions they pay Joe Rogan, you would think he could spring for somebody who could do a little research, just a little. Uh, I'll tell you one thing, don't buy his brain supplements. Uh, they obviously don't work. Do not buy Joe Rogan's brain supplements because they turn you into a dangerous idiot and a liar. And uh, his memory is completely shot. When the vaccine came out, Trump was still president. Dr. Burks, you know, with the uh, Louis Vuitton scarves, 
Remember her? She was his top COVID advisor. Very problematic, right? However, she is a doctor. She said, Mr. Rogan, from the very start in December of 2020, that that the vaccine will not prevent the spread of the virus. She said that it might slow the spread. She said it would make it harder to catch the virus, but most importantly, it would lessen the severity of the virus, right? She said that before anyone was actually getting the vaccine. Now, we can argue over facts. That seems to be what goes on with the intellectual dark web and Joe Rogan. Like, I guess we'll just have to agree to disagree. And I don't argue about facts. I can do a little research, right? Deborah Burks, Dr. Burks, on December 22nd, 2020, Twenty said, there is a difference between immunity and disease. The primary benefit of the vaccine, she said, was that it lessened the severity of the disease, which, you know, two years later, we've all seen that it that it does. It's not even two years later, like a year and a half. We know the vaccine lessens the severity of the disease. Fact, people who are vaccinated are less likely to die from it. She didn't promise back in 2020 that the vaccine would stop the spread. So Joe Rogan, besides being a dangerous idiot, uh, you're lying or your memory is completely shot. How do I know you're a liar? Because here is Dr. Deborah Burks saying exactly what you say she didn't say back on December 22nd of 2020, back when practically nobody had gotten the vaccine. Here's Dr. Deborah Burks. Thank you for understanding the difference between preventing disease and preventing infection. And right now, we don't know how great these vaccines might be against preventing infection. So you may get a low-grade infection and you may shed virus. We know it protects against disease and protects against severe disease. And that's why they prioritize these key groups. But what we don't know, does it protect against infection? And we'll be able to really understand that over the next few weeks to months. So... This is why Joe Rogan is a dangerous idiot and why Spotify is evil. Now, I'm not calling for Joe Rogan to be fired. What I'm asking is Spotify to spend more money on research and news gathering operations than they do on Joe Rogan. This is what Joe Rogan said. What was said was, you get the vax, you can't spread it or contract it. Yeah, no one seems upset that that was a lie, in, including Burks, who has said that she had always known that it was not going to stop transmission and it was not going to stop people from spreading it, which is wild. 
she would say, you, we knew that you were still going to get it, even if you got vaccinated, which is, no one said that. No. Pandemic of the unvaccinated. Thank you for understanding the difference between preventing disease and preventing infection. And right now, we don't know how great these vaccines might be against preventing infection. So you may get a low-grade infection and you may shed virus. We know it protects against disease and protects against severe disease. And that's why they prioritize these key groups. But what we don't know, does it protect against infection? And we'll be able to really understand that over the next few weeks to months. Like I said, Joe Rogan's a dangerous idiot. I am not calling for censorship. An F on a report card is not censorship. When you take a test and you fail it and the teacher says, F, nobody's taking away your First Amendment rights. Uh, This is a pandemic of the unvaccinated. You're going to die or get very sick if you're not vaccinated. I don't understand why college dropout Joe Rogan would be so intent on spreading lies about the vaccine. Maybe it's to, you know, sell his supplements, but if his listeners start dying off, you know, you're losing your customer base. Maybe it's because he makes hundreds of millions of dollars from Spotify and he has to cultivate an army of followers by providing them something they can't hear anyplace else, like lies. That's a great way to build an audience. Lie to them, tell them stuff they wanna hear, uh, even if it's not true. Unfortunately, you know, I would do something like that, uh, but it gets people killed. And uh, it's not a joke, even though he's a comedian. It trains what's left of those CTE-ravaged minds who listen to Joe Rogan. It trains that mind to have an unhealthy distrust of authority. There are plenty of authority figures to distrust, including Deborah Burks. But the science is in, and the vaccine is actually more effective at minimizing the disease than anyone could have ever imagined. Now, yes, I know it's uh, hard for Joe Rogan's shriveled brain to understand that there are breakthrough cases. Fully vaccinated people catch it because the virus mutates. It's able to get past the immunity. And uh, yes, people who are vaccinated do die from the virus. But And this isn't for Joe Rogan. This is for my listeners. And I'm going to take three minutes here. Uh, You need to understand the sampling. This is not for Joe Rogan's listeners. You can go ahead, put something and, you know, give me a thumbs down on YouTube. Go to my website. Tell me I'm a loser. You know, whatever. And, And I agree with you. I am a loser. So, but go ahead, you know. This is for my listeners, okay? This is from Scientific American. All right. 
Look, this is, and I'm quoting Scientific American, okay? Indulge me, because I'm really pissed off about this. It's going to take about three minutes. So I'm going to read from Scientific American, kind of the way Keith Olbermann used to read Thurber on Friday. Does anybody remember that lunatic, Keith Olbermann, reading James Thurber on his MSNBC show on Friday nights? That was... uh, that was so beautiful. It was so self-indulgent. And it just reveals what a pompous fool that man is and remains. Keith Olbermann. Not as bad as Joe Rogan, but where was I? Oh, I'm going to read from Scientific American. Feel free to take a little nap. Looking at COVID data, and re- you know what the thing that Keith Olbermann did? He did it in a rocking chair. Okay. It was just so... He's such an idiot. Keith Olbermann, he he saw Good Night and Good Luck, the George Clooney movie about Edward R. Murrow, and said, I think I'll be him. Okay, this is Scientific American. Looking at COVID data in recent months, it may appear that a significant proportion of the people who have died of COVID were vaccinated against the disease. But it is important to put those numbers in context. The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have compiled data or data from 28 geographically representative state and local health departments that keep track of COVID death rates among people age 12 and older in relation to their vaccination status, including whether or not they got a booster dose and age group. Okay, each week in March, on average, a, this is the important stuff. I'm sure I've lost most of you. This is the important stuff. And I'm sorry for reading this because it's very dry. Each week in March, on average, a reported 644 people in this data set died of COVID. Of them, 261 were vaccinated with either just a primary round of shots two doses of an mRNA vaccine or a single dose of Johnson & Johnson's vaccine or with that primary series and at least one shot of a booster. Okay, this is important. Taken at face value, these numbers, all right, I know I've lost you, okay? This is really dry. I know I've lost you. So listen to this, though. I'm going to read it. Uh, Let me try it this way. Taken at face value. These numbers may appear to indicate that vaccination... That doesn't work. Taken at face value, these numbers may appear to indicate that vaccination does not make that much of a difference. But this perception is an example of a phenomenon known as the base rate fallacy. The base rate fallacy. One also has to consider the denominator of the fraction. That is the sizes of the vaccinated and unvaccinated populations. With shots widely available to almost all age groups, the majority of the U.S. population has been vaccinated. 
So even if only a small fraction of vaccinated people who get COVID die from it, the more people who are vaccinated, the more likely they are to make up a portion of the dead. An additional factor to consider is that as the pandemic wears on and a disproportionate number of unvaccinated people die from COVID, the unvaccinated population shrinks. This leaves a comparatively larger vaccinated group, leading to an increase in total deaths despite the lower death rate among vaccinated people. Okay, and they go on to write, no vaccine is 100% effective, but immunization reduces the risk of dying from COVID substantially. Well, okay, Joe Rogan has endorsed the Republican Party, Ron DeSantis for president. In a couple of months, he'll pretend he's interested in voting for someone on the left. He'll play that long con once again, but in the end, he is right wing. And if he's voting for the Republicans and Ron DeSantis, he is a crypto fascist. If you support this Republican Party in this iteration, if you support Ron DeSantis, you are a hardcore crypto fascist. He is friends with Alex Jones. And if you are friends with Alex Jones, you are friends with a white supremacist Christian nationalist. And that is not guilt by association. It is, I endorse Ron DeSantis. If you endorse Ron DeSantis, you are supporting a white supremacist, a Christian nationalist. That's who the Republican Party is. That's who Ron DeSantis is. By the way, uh, as of se uh, September 2nd, the government will no longer be sending us free at home COVID tests. The money just isn't there. So money for Ukraine, right? We still can't get the Republicans to pass about a, I think it's a $15 billion, about a $15 billion COVID uh, relief package. And so the single best way to prevent the spread of COVID is testing, test, test, test. And I got some free tests from our government. I hope all of you are taking advantage of it do it now because September 2nd, they won't be free anymore. And uh, I'm going to talk about the midterms. Uh, according to the Census Bureau, 3.8 million renters will be evicted in the next two months. 3.8 million renters will be evicted in the next two months. That's good news for the Republican Party, because as I've pointed out on this show, half of all renters in America live at or below the poverty line. And if you're getting evicted, you are below the poverty line. You don't have a place to live. I doubt you're going to make it to the polls. I doubt you're going to be voting.
So, yes, the midterms are 70 days away. And here is Lizzo last night at the VMAs. Your vote means everything to me. It means everything to making a change in this country. So remember when you're voting for your favorite artists, vote to change some of these laws that are oppressing us. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Good use of her time. What was looking like a big red wave is now looking to be more of a little red trickle. Joe Biden's approval ratings have risen 6%. Uh, it's the highest for him all year. He's still underwater with 56% of Americans disapproving of the way he's handling the job. However, the Supreme Court's decision to reverse Roe is turning out to be a gift for the Democratic Party. The House of Representatives is expected to turn Republican. However, the latest polling from CBS says, as of now, the GOP is expected to pick up only 12 seats, giving them a slim majority of 226 seats. That would be versus the Democrats who are expected to end up with 209 seats. That's far fewer from the 240 seats Republicans were expecting at the beginning of the year. And like I said, the midterms are only two months and 10 days away. Who knows what the future holds? The Washington Post reports this morning that Democrats are even considering the unimaginable, and that would be keeping the House. It's almost settled that the Democrats are going to pick up some seats in the Senate unless something strange happens. But as I said, it's they're expected to lose the House. Uh, the Dems need right now to protect a five seat majority in the House. And up until Joe Biden's recent rash of legislative wins, it was received wisdom that Biden would be dragging his party down. But Joe's approval rating is up. And the Post, the Washington Post, reports that since the reversal of Roe, there have been four special elections for House seats. And in each one, the Democrat performed better than Joe Biden did in 2020. And that sometimes serves, something like that serves as a predictor of a possible shift, a blue shift heading into November. However, historically, as we all know, the party out of power tends to win the midterms. Uh, like I said, Democrats are expected to keep the Senate. November would herald the end. November would herald the end of our democracy. Uh, that's what Colorado's Secretary of State, Democrat Jenna Griswold, told The Guardian over this weekend. Jenna Griswold, like I said, Democrat, is running for re-election as Secretary of State in Colorado. And she warned that it is the job of a Secretary of State to protect the sanctity of elections. 
But too many Republican candidates for secretary of state have pledged allegiance to Donald Trump, no matter who wins. There are now 27 secretary of state contests in November, 13 held by Democrats, 13 held by Republicans, one held by an independent. One would like to think they would all be independent, but this is America. Jenna Griswold chairs the Democratic Association of Secretaries of State. And in the interview with The Guardian, she said, quote, what we can expect from the extreme Republicans running across this country is to undermine free and fair elections for the American people, strip Americans of the right to vote, refuse to address security breaches, and unfortunately, be more beholden to Mar-a-Lago than the American people. Going into the midterms, keep in mind there are 27 elections for secretaries of states and pay attention to that because those secretaries of states will be counting the votes in 2024 when we pick our president. The Republican Party announced this morning that Pat Paris Denard no longer serves as its national spokesman as well as its director of black media affairs. Paris Denard held both positions for two years. He previously worked in both the George W. Bush and Donald Trump White Houses. A spokesman for the RNC refused to say why Paris Denard has been let go. However, the Washington Post reported back in 2018 that Paris Denard was fired from Arizona State University after being charged with sexual misconduct. The Buffalo Bills punter Matt Areza was cut from the roster after a woman came forward, accusing him of participating in a gang rape at a party last year while she was still in high school. Ozzy Osbourne is selling his California mansion and moving back to Great Britain, saying he's afraid of getting shot to death here in America. Ozzy said, quote, I'm fed up with people getting killed every day from these mass shootings. Ozzy is selling his $18 million mansion in Los Angeles. I think it's in Hancock Park. And he plans to relocate permanently to his 350 acre estate in Buckinghamshire. Buckinghamshire. I, I would assume that would be in in England. A 26-year-old Dutch soldier died from gunshot wounds he suffered while visiting downtown Indianapolis. Two other Dutch soldiers were wounded. Police at this time are offering no information as to what prompted the killing. And I think that covers everything. Missouri is bringing back corporal punishment. The Wall Street Journal is reporting that a Missouri school district is going to start paddling students when they need to be punished. Of course, parents need to sign a note telling the teacher it's okay to beat the shit uh, out of my child. As the Wall Street Journal says, corporal punishment 
has been condemned by medical professionals. It's not right to hit your kids. Coming up at the bottom of the hour, Ethan Hershenfeld, author of the new book, Today Is Now. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours and hours this Friday. It's the first Friday of the month. That means we go 24 hours on office hours. If you would like an invitation, go to my website, hit office hours. It'll give you the link. And while you're over there, sign up for my incredible newsletter, which comes out every Friday. And in the newsletter it is included uh, an invitation for office hours. Office hours is pretty amazing. And I've been getting to meet the people uh, in person. Uh, yesterday, we drove up to somewhere in New England to see Professor Adnan Hussein, his wife, his son, and Professor Jonathan Bick, who stole my French fries. And it was really a, a magical afternoon. And I'm looking forward to more of that. Professor Mike Steinell is on the show later on tonight. Here's some music from Professor Mike Steinell. Chairs in this Bessemer shop Back and outdated and don't ever seem to stop The man went down cause his heart gave out Get back to work, we heard them shout They said the EMTs are coming, that's what they're for And life slipped away on a cement floor The bookstores are all gone away Got me some books, I'll read them someday Right now I got to make my rate in all these extra shifts If I can make it to Christmas Eve The kids will have nice gifts And the big boss will have more money So he can go up into space But there still won't be no chairs In this Bessemer place Last year we had a meeting and they made us go They gave us all pins and said, vote no But maybe this year Union can give us a little more And put some chairs on this Bessemer floor I 
I'm hoping the union might make things right. Some days I just don't have the strength to fight. This plant down here can take its toll. It'll break your body. It'll crush your soul. Feels like this packing ain't never gonna stop. And there still ain't no chairs in this Bessemer shop. Professor Mike Steinel, you're listening to the David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Hey, Dan, are we going to do a quiz today? Uh, no, sir. It wasn't on the schedule, so I have not prepared one. Oh, okay. All right. All right. So uh, that's okay. That's all right. Everybody should take another look at that clip where I show... Joe Rogan to be the illiterate liar that he is, where he lies about being lied to, where he says in front of millions of people that because Dr. Burks insisted in 2020 that the vaccine would stop the spread of the virus, that because she lied about that, you shouldn't take the vaccine, you shouldn't get it. Uh, I exposed him as either being brain damaged from MMA or from his brain supplements or just a liar. And you should go back and look at that. One would think in a just world, enough people would see that and uh, fewer people would trust him for their medical advice. One would think that uh, it's not that difficult to expose liars and idiots. I think a lot of that research came from the Pointer Institute, which I follow, the Pointer Institute. Uh, be nice if we had real journalism in America, where people had the time to use the internet wisely and research and prove these people to be the the charlatans they are uh i mean these lies get people killed when you lie about the vaccine people die because of that uh and i'm not calling for his censorship i'm not saying he should be shut down i'm saying if spotify has hundreds of millions of dollars to pay this clearly brain damaged charlatan who can't remember what Deborah Burke said a year and a half ago, if they have hundreds of millions of dollars for Joe Rogan, certainly they have hundreds of millions of dollars or maybe a couple of million to pay 
journalists uh, to do some research that might get something through Joe Rogan's tiny CTE damaged skull. Hey, Mike Steinel will be on later. He has a new book out. It's called Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Here's Turtle from the audio version of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel.
All right. That is Professor Mike Steinell. That is Professor Mike Steinell, who will be joining us a little later on in the show. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Coming up in about three minutes, Ethan Hershenfeld. Let's enjoy Donald Trump, who joined me uh, about three months ago. The great Donald Trump was on the show three months ago. Okay, let's turn to that big rally this Saturday. So much love at the rally, David. So much love. Great people, great people in Florence, South Carolina. So smart, so discerning. And it was sold out, David. They were packed in tighter than Chris Christie sitting in a coach seat. Get it, David, because of the weight. Can you get it, David? Are you following me? I get it. I get it. Into a coach seat, David. Do you get it? I get it. You can have that one, David. That's another freebie. I know you people like freebies. I know. I know you love the freebies. What people? Your people, David. The free brews. (laughs) Oh, boy. I can't help it, David. You know, they say that Zelensky's a comedian. But I'm so much I'm so much funnier than that Zelensky guy. I just don't get him, David. I don't get him. I don't get that Nanette Fabre. I don't get them. Anyway, the people of South Carolina love me, David. I do great there because their elections aren't rigged. You get an honest count in South Carolina, unlike Georgia or Arizona or Vermont, where I won in a landslide, David. But they rigged it. They rigged it, David. That would be the great Robert Smigel. The great Robert Smigel. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Nate in the chat room asked, while I'm attacking Joe Rogan, what does his being a college dropout have to do with it? That's a a fair question, and I'm a little... uh, reticent about attacking him for being a college dropout because college in America is a privilege. It's uh, people shouldn't be ashamed that they're college dropouts. I believe that all college should be free. I believe the two trillion dollars in student loans should be forgiven because to me nothing is more important than education and Joe Rogan is uh, an exemplar of why people need to go to college. He is, is a shining example of what not going to college can do to your critical thinking. And I think he, there's an anti-intellectualism that he promotes that is getting people killed. I've done enough rants on this show attacking higher education when you have people like joe rogan dispensing medical advice it's important to point out that he he is in fact a college dropout that's not an attack on all college dropouts that's an attack on joe rogan who lacks the credentials the information to talk about ivermectin 
and uh, whether or not you should get vaccinated. So it is germane to the conversation that he is a college dropout. Pointing one thing out about somebody is not an indictment of everybody who shares that characteristic. It's not an attack on all college dropouts. I barely got through college. Uh, I, I believe me, I've, if you listen to this show, you know what I've said about higher education. But I do believe all college should be free in America. I believe all community colleges should be free. All four-year colleges should be free. And there is an anti-intellectualism in this country fueled by dangerous college dropouts like Joe Rogan. It wasn't an attack against, it wasn't, I wasn't being a snob. It probably sounded like it, but I wasn't being an effete intellectual snob saying anybody who didn't go to college is entitled to an opinion. Uh, but Joe Rogan is an example of someone desperately in need of uh, a college education. Otherwise, he should just keep his mouth shut and, you know, do the play-by-play -play of people getting kicked in the head. Joining us is Ethan Hershenfeld, a brilliant comedian. Hello there, Ethan. Hello, Dr. Feldman. Oh, oh thank you. Dr. Feldman is your father's name. Call me Mr. Feldman. Wait a second. Dr. Feldman, I'm going to stick with it. Okay, I like that. I'm going to use the word doctor in the sense, because we're going to launch a Dr. Benjamin TikTok, where Dr. Benjamin will answer questions about life's stickiest problems. Um, By the way, I just so, so people know that background ambient sound you hear. Oh, I'm sorry. The white noise machine that you used to get no you're in cape cod right wind in the leaves should i i should get headphones oh, no 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 just so people know what it is it's gorgeous it's so is it cute. is it really super annoying no it, it's it's something that i would play at one okay. in the morning all right uh, i hope it doesn't put you to sleep so i do that all by myself all right so dr uh yeah so dr benjamin my my alter author of today is now Author of Today is Now, my alter ego, star of the eponymous movie Today is Now. The reason I'm, I, we named it the same is just so I can use the word eponymous because there aren't enough chances to use that. Mm -hmm. So anyway, um, so we're going to do a TikTok starting with uh, uh, Dr. Benjamin uh, just answering questions from the crowd about. But then the question was, is this going to be a problem legally? It's not just playing a character at that point. If you're dispensing advice and you're not really a doctor, are you stepping into some dangerous territory? But then I was thinking, you know, Dr. Dre, not a doctor. Right. right. Dr. Seuss, not a doctor. But these guys aren't really dispensing advice. So, right. So then the I'm question getting, is, by the way, I'm getting reports. I hate yeah. to interrupt you. That your audio is a little. Uh, it's a mess. OK, I'm going to put in the headphones. Hold on. Okay. And if that doesn't work, I'm going to move inside where it will be darker. But hold on, let me get the headphones. Yeah, okay? that, I didn't know you were outside. Well, I'm on a porch with like a screen. Yeah, but. That's yeah. where I usually am. Okay, I'll go in. Well, let me try the headphones. I'm so sorry. Well, why don't you go inside? Okay, we're going inside. It is, it is a beautiful sound, though. I just don't think it's invisible as telling. So. Okay. Here we go. I'm going to. Okay. 
I'm going to go downstairs where it's really quiet. I'm going down a rickety old circular. And you're in Cape Cod, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm going downstairs. I'm going into exile in the da- in this little downstairs room. Now it's too quiet. Well, I'll make some. Now, now I feel scared. It is a little quiet. Now you're in the basement with me. You're in the dungeon. Yeah. But this sounds the, much better. This is the punishment room. This is where I actually probably when I was a kid, I was punished in this room, I think. Yeah. Really? I think so. No, it was just a, it's just a room. Um, so I wanted right, to let's start from the beginning. You have a new book out by your alter ego. So the book is Today, Today is now. now by Dr. Samuel Benjamin who was not actually a doctor, but he was so close. He was all but dissertation in several fields. <laughs> he was so close, you could smell it. So mm-hmm. he, he, so he's not really a doctor, but then I feel like, doc, is Dr. Phil really a doctor? I, I think he's like a psychologist. That's okay, so some of these, yeah, if you have a doctorate, it makes it easier. I, in any case, I, you know, in the, in the context of a spoof or a satire, the sat satirical self-help book it's okay it's not a problem but once you're into TikTok and then actually dispensing advice to strangers and you're you have that word doctor in front of your name i feel like then you're in dicey so i have to figure out the way to to cue people that i'm not really a doctor but i think one way would be for him to just constantly say that you know i'm not really a doctor i'm a doctor in the sense like if you're in italy and you meet anyone who has just an undergraduate degree they say, oh, ciao, dottore. Oh, dottore. Buonasera, dottore. Hey, dottore. Yeah. The second you get your undergrad degree, you're a doctor. So I think that that might be Dr. Benjamin's thing. He's like, he's a, an Italian doctor. Now, when they call you a doctor in Italy, are they being sarcastic? Or? No. No, they're just being very, uh, they're being cerem- like ceremonial. And they're uh, That's just great inflation, the- isn't it? It's well, I don't know why that's inflation. That's called a doctor. It's called a doctor. Once you've gotten you know, a degree of any kind, you're a doctor. Yeah. Well, what do they call a medical doctor? Um, that's also dottore. It's confusing. Everyone's a dottore. So <laughs> if you stub your toe, you can just ask anyone. The, the anyone. waiters look like surgeons and they're probably better for your health. Than most probably, are. Yeah, and they're probably doctors also. Um, <laughs> everyone's a doctor. Um, anyhow, so that's the plan. TikTok, Dr. Benjamin will have a TikTok, and it'll be Dr. Samuel Benjamin on TikTok. And uh, as part of it, it'll be for fun, and it'll be also be for um, pre-promoting, pre-promotion for the film. Great. To get the name out about this guy, because we don't know where we're going to show the film yet. We're still we're going to enter into some film festivals. And if they don't get if it doesn't get accepted, then it's going to be uh, it's going to be on some streaming service. But the more pre-promotion we get going, the better. Can I ask you a personal question? I wish you would. Finally. Yeah. The the, your father is with you. He is. uh, He was here earlier. He's a mile away. Yeah, he's a mile away. Are you spending a lot of time with him? Yeah, although I was away for five days, I went down to Maryland to shoot. You that. got the part. You got the part. Yes. Last it's, week. Tell everybody. Yeah, I auditioned for this part. It's. I mean, it's in this. Okay, here's the joke. Um, it's produced by and starring Natalie Portman. 
So I got a, a part in this Natalie Portman Apple TV oh, whoa, whoa, series. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait, but they, it was just shut down because of threats of gun violence. The one in Maryland? Yeah. Oh, it was? Oh, there was a big story today. That oh, I wasn't. I was already gone. <laughs> I, I had nothing to do with it. I was already gone. No, they had to relocate. There was there were threats that if you keep shoot if you keep shooting here, you'll get shot. Jesus. Well, we were shooting in the fairground. The Anne Arundel. Uh, oh no, no, but that was just my day. And then they were going to be shooting in Baltimore. I don't know where else. I'm sorry to hear that. That's terrible. <laughs> um, in any case, I got that part and I went down there. I shot it, and then you know, I feel like the the joke is, uh, oh, so you were in a, a Natalie Portman mo movie? Was your scene with Natalie Portman? No, my scene was with a sheep. <laughs> I, I, I play, I play the shochet, the uh, the ritual slaughterer. So he's like a rabbi who says a blessing before uh, slitting the sheep's throat. But no, no animals were harmed in the making of the film. There was an actual sheep on set. It was very cool. The sheep's name was very cute. The sheep's name was Hope. And so named because the animal wrangler explained that she had been quite sick as a, as a puppy or whatever, a baby sheep, as a ewe, as a ewe, she was sick, but then she survived. So they called her Hope. Very oh. cute. And among her hundred siblings, she, I said, is she more talented? Yes, this is the one who's the actor. Now, so how do you know she? How, how do they know she has a hundred siblings? Because you start counting them and you fall asleep. No, no, no. They all they all talk the same way. They all have the same accent. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah. They say bah. Uh, actually, they were making. They were the crew was making some very funny jokes. Uh, I thought it was quite funny. Um, like when it got quiet right before a take, someone from the crew would say, "How are you feeling today?" And inevitably, the 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 she would go meh. <laughs> <laughs> How's it going today? Meh. Oh, I don't know that much about animal husbandry. Yeah. Well, but I do know sheep, and they lie. I'll yeah. take that right now. Sheep yeah. lie. No. Uh, are all sheep that we see are they without the? If you don't have the horns, mm -hmm. those are the Gentiles. <laughs> among the sheep those are the those are the not kosher ones yeah um uh, no the uh what i learned amazingly i don't know but but what i did learn from the woman who raises the sheep there was the guy bill who was the animal wrangler then there was the woman from the ranch does he wrangle them without it using any hands it was just mind wrangling yeah it was like the oh, sheep okay. whisperer yeah it was the sheep whisperer. yeah um she explained that this sheep she showed me it had a very particular kind of um nap to the to the wool it was very prized and very expensive wool and it turned out it was a breed of sheep and i don't remember the name of it but it was brought over by george washington imported by george washington so this this is the descendant of this flock that george washington brought over very well known there in maryland it's like a very particular thing so wow yeah brought over from where well he imported them from england i see yeah okay so if you are working with a sheep yeah can a sheep by the way let me just say this the sheep had more lines yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh, in order for it to be a man it would have to have horns correct i think that's right yeah and are male sheep aggressive because we always think of sheep as being gentle like they say you know the American people are are sheep they right. go along 
are those only and I hate to cast dispersions but we do know that chickens are females right right and that the cocks are a little aggressive yeah well so are are female when we think of sheep are we thinking of females I, I don't know but I think so and I think hope was a female uh, Hope was very strong. So in the scene, the wrangler had his leg up against the side, and then he he directed me to get my leg really firmly up against the other side of Hope. And um, mm-hmm. when she was not into doing the scene on particular takes, when she wanted to make trouble or move, she's very strong. Um, the other thing is she had, well, she had a thing that I had in my first appearances on screen also. She had bladder control problems when the camera was running. <laughs> so there was quite quite a bit of that. And, and the occasional turd but then there were there were you know she she was a pro she was a pro yeah um but apparently the movie or the series oh, hey stick with the sheep for one second okay <laughs> what do they smell like I think it's a, it's delightful yeah they're great they're they're not stinky they're it's a very uh an earthy well they're woolly they smell like wool and I want to be delicate here mm-hmm. there's a stereotype about farmers shepherds, uh-huh. own right uh, making love you mean making love to the sheep yeah in all seriousness it must have occurred to you I I suppose while I was making love to the sheep it did occur to me <laughs> No, but did, 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 the first thing I would think of, if yeah. I, I'm being honest, no, with no. I had my legs up against a, a sheep. Yeah, I, I would think, oh, okay, this. It I, didn't. It really didn't occur to me. I think I was focused on the. I was focused on my, on my role. That's not, I'm not saying I'm not better than anyone. I'm not saying if I didn't have the the role to think about, my mind might not go there. Also, I'm just I. I'm an animal lover, but not in that sense. I, I'm, I'm vegan for all the right reasons. I'm not trying to marry them. That's not why I'm trying to save the animals. Um, okay, and then you, you. I just don't want them to suffer by marrying me. That would be right, make right, the animal right. suffer. Yeah. And then you slit its throat. I said the bracha. And what is the prayer that you say? Bracha is very interesting. Why are you talking to God? Aren't you saying anything to the sheep to calm it down? Do you apologize? That's a good point. It's there's no like Lakota Sioux approach of them thanking the sheep. No, you're thanking God. <laughs> you're right. It's misplaced. I would thank the sheep for letting me do this. There is none of that. But you do say, and in fact, it's like that plug and play thing with uh, where there's all those blessings that you say before washing your hands or before lighting the candle. Every word up until that last word is the same. You're saying. Blessed are you, king of the universe, who made everything, who's so incredible, and who has commanded us to do X. It's like mad libs, God libs. So fill in the activity, and in this case, it's slaughter. So So you're praising God. The sheep says, what am I, chop liver? (laughs) And you'd say, soon. Soon. You're... (laughs) Be patient. so you, so so was natalie portman or i don't want to pry she was there and i i did something that i'm not proud of which so they were she was shooting another scene nearby and when she was finishing up and i was about to start 
I positioned myself so we'd cross paths so that I could say a word to her and just say hello. And I had a, a pretext. She must, she must love that. Well, I I'm would sure normally never happens to her. Exactly. I would normally avoid that, but I had a real pretext. But it, it was just I normally I would leave people alone. Like with Mandy Patinkin last month. I left him alone. He was giving off real leave me alone vibes. He was very friendly and nice when the cameras were rolling, but then he was clearly in his own thing. So I, it so happens, 25 years ago, a friend of mine was Natalie Portman's agent, and I was a tutor back then, and my friend knew that Natalie had a question with her calculus homework. So she actually arranged for me to call this, she was a teenager at the time, to try to help her with a calculus problem. So, <laughs> you try to prove that you were, in fact, that she was, in fact, old enough to date you. That was the calculus problem. That was yeah, what, 18, 17, 16. No, it wasn't like that. Okay. No, I was, I called. So she told me the problem. I said, I'll call you right back. I called her back 10 minutes later. I said, I have a partial solution. She said, don't worry. I already solved it and hung up. That was it. She was very smart. So that was the whole interaction. So I thought, wouldn't that be funny last week to say, hey, we, we actually spoke on the phone once 20. I start, I said, hello. Thanks for having me on the, on this project. You know, we actually once spoke on the phone. I could see her face go blank, like saying, I just really want to get back to the trailer. My day is over. Please don't tell me an anecdote about the time. And then, of course, you realize this is a person who people are constantly the one time that they happen to pass a truck that had her for in any case. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I know I wasn't proud. I'm not, not normally going to bug a celebrity. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. Surprised. How old is she? I don't know. I didn't ask her. That would have been a good opener. Yeah. Yeah. How old are you? Yeah. And when does so this will be on Apple TV and you Apple got TV. Part. last week? Yeah, you said you got pinned. That's right. And then the next a few hours later, when 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 I got off the show, they said it was mine. But the role it, it, they cast and then it was happening like the next day. So there was very little time. Usually you have a week or whatever. You know what I think? You, you were pinned. You came on the show and they didn't see it because had they seen <laughs> it. <laughs> That's the no only way. Deal. What does it feel like to get the call? Like you go, you get the part, and are you happier getting the part or showing up on the set? What, what's more? Thrilling? I like I like a lot of parts of the whole thing. I, it is exciting getting. I even had that back in my singing days. Sometimes the most exciting thing of the whole thing was when they said, "It's yours. The part is yours." So the because the odds are tough, and so when you win it, it feels a little bit like the lottery. In this case, it meant I had to drive all the way from up here in Massachusetts down to Maryland for a one-day thing. You know, it wasn't... That's a dangerous out. drive. What is it, 95? It's I-95, which is... Uh, Very dangerous during climate change. One of the most dangerous. Torture. It is? Why is that? Yeah, you should be very careful oh. driving on I-95 when flash flooding. It, it's, oh, yeah, wow. Just something to, something to keep in mind. And well, uh, On the way back, I was really tired i got there in the morning i left at night decided to make it all the way to brooklyn but i was on that stretch of the new jersey turnpike where you get like the clara barton rest stop and then the hugh hefner or whatever they're called yeah. and i i i thought i was going to make it to new york i finally had to pull over and do that terrible 1 a.m nap in a rest stop and then you wake up a half hour later with the with the neck and to finish the drive yeah. but anyway no biggie they have uh the the vince lombardi oh that's right vince restroom lombardi. right Clara Barton. Yeah, who was Clara Barton? I should know. I think she. I think she was a. I'm gonna guess and say she was a, a famous nurse. I think. I'll buy it. I'll Let me see. I, I noticed Anne Lee is in the. 
chat room. I'm she she didn't found the Red Cross. That's somebody else. But I confuse her with the the woman who and Clara Barton was the last of three elementary schools I went to. Oh, no. to John Hayes. So she went to elementary so. school. Well, that's yeah. painful. I thought she was a nurse. Who went? Who did the Crimea War and founded the Red Cross? Oh, Florence so Nightingale. Nightingale. Right. Yeah. She was a bird, I think. It looks like the spelling's different. Yeah. Um, I can. So, um, I have an interesting uh, audition coming up for a, a thing this week, which is a stretch. I play a. a someone in the medical profession, someone in the helping profession who propositions a potential patient and exchanges sexual favors in exchange for giving the drugs that the person wants. Mm. That's not the kind of scene I normally am auditioning or booking or doing in my, in my real life. So that's, that's fun. That'll be an interesting little stretch. Could Um, you, I, we were, uh, there's a new thing that I'm doing, mm-hmm. meeting people. Uh-huh. Yeah. I, I, I had dinner with Grace Jackson. I saw I'm the photos. Having, that looked great. I'm having lunch with Professor Harvey JK tomorrow. Nice. I drove up to a very special place in New England. I met Professor Adnan Hussein. Wow. Son and his wife and Professor Jonathan Bick who steals Beautiful. French fries without asking. So we were driving through some of the most beautiful country I've ever seen in my life. Hmm. So, you know, in the Massachusetts, Connecticut, Wisconsin, New York area, mm-hmm. bad at geography. Yeah, that's close enough. And I thought I looked at you, know, you see these farms and they're right out of a Norman Rockwell. How do like people and I try to like it wasn't Zillow porn. It was like I was actually looking at something. Right. You know. And I try to fancy myself, fantasize about being there. Gentleman farmer. A gentleman farmer. And what do you think? I realized it would be better to know somebody who owns one of those places than to yeah. actually live there. Right. It's like a boat. My father said, when I was a baby, I said, I want a boat. He said, no, meet somebody who has a boat. Right. Yeah. Date a captain. Because <laughs> I looked at those houses and I thought, no way I would be happy here. I would want to be happy there. Right. But it would drive me. I'd go crazy. I'd just look around and see everything that's wrong with the place. Well, that's an interesting thing. Say again. Are you able to enjoy? You know, I enjoy it here. But now that I've started to do some things to fix some things that needed fixing, it can really on a dime. It can turn into a feeling of dread. And then also, oh, it was fine the way it was. Now I'm into this whole project. You know, my approach, my default setting is to say, you know what? It's fine. Don't mess with it. Because the second you start messing with it, then you're invested in, oh, this isn't exactly what I want. And now I'm, you know, all this effort to, to, to futz with it. 
Yes, it can start to get a. It can it can weigh on you. Yeah, I have a garden here that I really enjoy, but it's really small. Right. I could see if you were really working a big piece of land, that could get a right. super stressful. Yeah, I'm going through my mother's stuff, and she, my mother was amazing, amazing. She never had a cleaning lady, never, no, never. She cleaned the house up until about three months before she left. Um, she cleaned the house. I think that's why she lived so long. Mm -hmm. Child of the Great Depression, mm -hmm. a lot of freezer bags, a lot. I'm going, I'm seeing she put freezer, <laughs> she freezing, she freeze, froze a lot of stuff. I, that would be from like not to waste from the depression, right? Yeah, I kind of freeze a lot of stuff also. I, I got that gene. Do, do you freeze human heads the way she did? I don't, but I freeze my organic, uh, like uh, compost stuff, stuff that will eventually go into the compost. I don't have a compost thing under the sink or somewhere else. I just have a bag in the freezer and that avoids it from starting to stink. <laughs> so it goes from frozen out to the compost. So, so if you look at my freezer, you will find frozen, what looks like frozen garbage. It'd be like frozen corn husks and watermelon rinds and coffee grounds. You think, why are they in the freezer? That's why. So, right. Yeah. We were driving through this beautiful rolling hillsides and I began to feel lonely. Mm -hmm. I felt, I felt, Oh, I, I, I felt alienated. It was so were, were you with anyone in the car? Yes. Okay. And then that person stopped breathing. And I realized I had to pull over and dump the body. And I, it made me feel very lonely. That is I, lonely I, I felt uh, alone. Like I did, I thought, oh, I could live out here. And it would be very isolating. But I guess if you're part of a community, it would not accept me. No, it is. It is an adjustment. That was certainly at the beginning, two and a half years ago, with the plague being up here and the volume of encounters with strangers it's, is so much lower. And I love encounters with strangers. That's one of my favorite things. That's my favorite thing about New York and about other big cities and about traveling. That's Eating. a great name for your next book. What was it? Encounters with Strangers. <laughs> All right. Encounters with strangers. It also, it could be like a salacious memoir of like a, mm -hmm. a little bit like a gigolo or something. Right. Encounters with strangers. In any case, um, but that's back. Even here you get those encounters with strangers if you're into that kind of thing. If you want to chat with people you bump into. Which if, I like if I could wave a magic wand and you never have to work again and you could live on Cape Cod, mm -hmm. would you do it? No, I would do what I'm doing, which is splitting time. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Hmm. Let me do this because we have two minutes before the yes. Howie Klein. Yes. And I am nervous because I don't know if the. You got the link? If I'm, if the machine, no, I have, I'm going to call him. Oh, okay. Yeah. Do your thing. It's been nice to chat. Stay here. Okay. Company. Okay. We have, I have to call him in exactly one minute and he hasn't been on for a, uh, a month. It's been a while. Wow. So wow. tell me some good news. Um, 
Okay. Is everybody on edge? <laughs> was that loud exhale? Yeah. Is everybody news. on edge right now? Or is it my, is everybody looking for a fight? Oh, I'm not looking for, no, no. no, no. You, but do you get a sense that people would prefer a fight to a conversation? Answer me. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I, you know, I, I do sense that in, in the world at large, for sure. Yeah. And yeah. what about interpersonal relationships? Um, well, yes. I mean, in my, in my primary relationship, for sure. But that's what a, that's what that is. Right. I'm, I've never been married, but that's sort of what marriage is. Right. People are and, looking for fights. Yeah. There's very close. There's always, you're always stepping into the ring or stepping out of the ring. Yeah. It seems like there's that po that potential is always there. Yeah. Um, right, let's see if Howie works. Wish me luck here. Stay with me. Do you hear that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's ringing. Uh, it sounds good, right? It sounds really good. Howie? Yeah. You're there. I'm here. Ah, oh, it's so good to hear your voice. I'm going to say goodbye to Ethan Hershenfeld. Hey, Howie. Goodbye. Well, Everybody should go pick up the book. Today is now. Today is now. I also, Amazon. that's my new Amazon. Yeah, it's on Amazon. But also, if anyone out there is is a TikToker, please go to Doctor S Benjamin and start following Doctor S Benjamin. He's about to change the world through TikTok. Apparently, if he can figure it out. Great. Thank you, David. Thank you. Okay, Howie Klein is back. Ah, it's so great to, to hear your voice. Howie Klein is the founder and treasurer of the Blue America PAC, which raises money for progressive candidates around America. And he writes down with tyranny. And uh, it's great to hear your voice. All right. Well, I'm glad I still have a voice. Yes, yes. And the people have a voice. And in... 70 some odd days they're going to be voting were you disappointed to see laura loomer go down is she <laughs> no i mean in, in some ways yes you know you know laura loomer is a kind of a nazi and she ran against a very hard conservative republican so so dan webster has no redeeming values at all so the thing is is that you know, he's not a Nazi necessarily. He's he's just a hard right conservative. They would vote exactly the same, you know, if she got in. The thing about people like her and Marjorie Taylor Greene and Madison Cawthorn and Lauren Boebert and Paul Gosar, the thing about them is that they really show what the Republican Party is without any kind of uh, camouflage. Right. So, yeah, in some ways, I, I would have preferred her to have won her primary. The other thing, by the way, is people like that, there's a theory that people like you to, uh, to defeat. Now, in this particular case, the Democrats don't have a viable candidate. They, they didn't uh, recruit anybody and just, just a random person is a Democratic uh, um, candidate, which is a shame uh, because Loomer has now told her followers not to vote for Bobert in the general election. Now, I don't know how many of them will, will uh, follow Obert what she said. Webster. Obert or Webster? Did I say, did I say Bobert? I meant Webster. Uh, okay, Webster, right. 
Yeah, they, they, in other words, uh, Loomer has told her followers not to vote for Webster, the Republican who won the primary. I see. Uh, and that's, that's pretty rare that something like that would happen. Uh, it, do, it doesn't happen often. I, 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 in fact, I can't think of any times when it has recently. So it's exciting to talk. It's not, but there's not a viable Democrat, so it doesn't make any difference. I'm very excited to talk to you. I want to ask you some uh, <laughs> macro questions, and then we can drill down. Uh, first up, we've been led to believe that the House is lost. And last time we talked, you were saying that the Democrats were going to pick up seats in the Senate. How do you see it shaking out right now? I still believe the Democrats are going to uh, have a net gain of seats in the Senate and in the House. Uh, I don't think that people necessarily feel as strongly that it's a it's it's a, a Republican year. They're still saying it is, but not. I mean, you don't hear anyone saying red tidal wave anymore. That, that that's gone. Uh, and there are people who are saying that it's possible for the Democrats to pick up some seats. I mean, I'm I'm writing a post now, uh, which I'll probably put up tomorrow morning about specific districts in California. And there are three or four, maybe five districts that are going to flip from red to blue. So, you know, there will be some districts where Republicans uh, win as well. But it, it's really, really hard to tell if you drill down district by district. It, it, you know, the people who really do that and actually look at each individual district, those are the people who are not saying that there's going to be a Republican wave. Those are the people who are saying it's too close to call right now. The people who are just looking at some kind of, uh, you know, bullshit, uh, th those are the ones who, who will say, yes, the Republicans are going to pick up seats. The Republicans may. They, they, they may come out the winner, but they also may come out the loser. It's just, it's just too, you know, right now the way things are going, it's going in the Democratic um, direction. I wrote a story the other day saying the Republican wave is gone. Now it's a Republican ripple. Is it going to be a blue wave? Wow. And I, I will be a blue wave, but, but it's, it, it's, if the Democrats pick up two or three net seat, net two or three seats or the Republicans net two or three seats, that, that, that's kind of what I see happening now. Right. You've, you've been pretty, I think the only, on this show, the only thing you got wrong was Trump, I believe, but you usually do a pretty good job. Uh, about Trump. I'm sorry. What did I say about Trump? I think in 2016, you thought, didn't you think Hillary was Right, I didn't think he would win. I absolutely did not think he would win in 2016. The Democrats need five? But I, but I don't think he did win in 2016. I, I think that was a stolen election. Right. The Democrats need to hold on to five seats to hold on to the majority. And there are what, like 10 seats in California that are red? Uh, yeah, well, some of those seats are going are going to hit are going to uh, the Republicans will lose. I mean, they're certainly going to lose um, Michelle Steele's seat. That's gone. Jay Chen will win there. That's an Orange County seat that that has is now uh, I think D plus four or five. They're going to lose uh, Mike Garcia's seat up in uh, Santa Clarita. That's gone. Although I will say that's a Democratic district now, very Democratic. It's a blue district. It's a hard, 
it would be hard for a Democrat to lose. But the Democrats nominated the one person who could lose the district. <laughs> a, a, and she's, she's a Republican who is pretending to be a Democrat. And she's awful. And there's no reason why anyone would want to vote for her except that they want to vote Democratic instead of Republican. So she may, she may win. But, it, you know, if any Democrat would win that seat now, but she may be the, the one who loses it. She's so bad. And she's already lost there twice. Abortion is on the ballot. That's good. yes, absolutely. So that is going to bring out more female voters, I would assume, more Democrats. You know, going back to the California seats that I was just talking about, there is a um, there is a, a bill that the Republicans put out, which basically bans abortion nationally. So in California and, and other blue states, they're saying, well, we'll protect the rights of women. But if a national uh, law passes that bans abortion, uh, it doesn't matter what the states say. It will supersede what the states say. And, and there is a bill that's on the table, H.R. Uh, 1011. And, and there were seven Republicans who voted for it, including Michelle Steele, who Hello. If, if her opponent really pushes the fact that she has signed on as a co-sponsor to this uh, this ban abortion bill, I mean it's a bill that says that um, from the moment of fertilization, wow. the uh, the it's not a fetus at that point, but whatever it's called, that thing is has equal rights to any other person wow. from the moment of fertilization. Wow! Wow! What is your sense? so Michelle? Michelle Steele is a co-sponsor, and uh, Mike Garcia is a co-sponsor. There, there were seven Republican co-sponsors, three of whom are in, in, in very dangerous situations in terms of, uh, uh, of uh, bl- bl- their districts turning bluer and having candidates that could beat them. So, you know, you say it's on the ballot, and yes, it's on the ballot uh, all over the nation, but there were very, you know, in, in some, some districts, in some states, it doesn't matter. The, the Republicans don't need, uh, they don't need moderates, they don't need Democrats, they don't need independents. There's enough Republicans to just pass, uh, you know, to elect a radical um, members of Congress. However, there are lots of districts where that's not the case, where if a candidate can't build a coalition of moderate Republicans along with the crazy Republicans, they're going to have to have moderate Republicans, some conservative Democrats, and a majority of the independents, most people lose, as you saw in New York State. Um, that was a fairly uh, that was a district that everyone thought the Republican was going to win, and 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 right on election night, everybody was shocked. The Democrat won, and it was all about abortion. That's right. that's the whole game. Chuck and the Democrat who 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 ran. Uh, this guy, uh, Ryan, uh, Ryan, I can't remember his last name, but he's a conservative Democrat. Right. And, and he ran and he won. I, I mean, so people were voting for him just based on abortion. That was out, it. That was out, his biggest. He outperformed Biden, right? I believe he did. Yeah. Biden, I mean, uh, Trump won the district in 2016 and, and barely lost the district in uh in 2020 and now this guy comes along it's a special election so this isn't a primary we're talking about this was a special election and uh, this democrat conservative democrat beat a uh, a fairly moderate republican who did everything he could 
to say, no, 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 I'm not part of this craziness. I'm, I'm, I'm normal. I'm sane. And in a district that likes to elect um, moderate Republicans and, and they didn't want to hear it. The voters didn't want to hear it. They don't care if it's a moderate Republican or a nutcase Republican, they're over Republicans. And there are a good 20 to 30 districts across the country that are just like that. They're all over. Right. And, it, and no reason why Democrats can't win a majority of those districts. And if they do that, they don't only save their majority, they increase their majority. In the uh, fall, there's a rumor that Chuck Schumer is going to bring a vote on same-sex marriage, which I believe passed in the House. Some Republicans voted in favor of it. Is Schumer going to force votes on contraception, abortion? Yes. He is going to do this because they all got... He is. He's going to do it where where he won't hurt his... Um, issues that won't hurt his own members. So, uh, so, so, you know, like for example, the same sex marriage bill, that's not going to hurt his own members. And, you know, you probably read about this, you know, the person who is going to hurt really badly is uh, Ron Johnson in Wisconsin. He's going to be forced to vote on this thing. He's damned if he doesn't, damned if he doesn't. He votes for uh, same sex marriage. A lot of hardcore Republicans are going to get angry and stay away from the polls. And if he votes, uh, he, if he votes against it, there will be moderates and there will be independents who just get completely pissed off at him and decide they're not going to vote for him. Right. Is Schumer, again, uh, no, you were the one who taught me to hate Pelosi and Schumer, by the way. You've been doing this show for 13 years. I didn't know. No. I think so. years. Yeah, I think so. I was a young man. I, 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 I hadn't been born yet. So nobody... You were I. You taught me to hate Pelosi, the D Triple C, and Schumer. All that. Uh, I, I, you're breaking up. I don't know if that's going out just on my phone or or over your air, but you're breaking up a little bit. Okay. I am mostly taught you to, to I think to hate um, Schumer because I, I know him for a long time. And he's a hateful character. I usually, you know, I have my problems with Pelosi, but it's not hate. Okay. So, so you may have, you know, heard me saying some, some, you know, bad things about Pelosi and then turned that into hate, but I personally don't hate Pelosi. Okay. I'm not a fan, but, uh, but it's not the same as with Schumer. Schumer's are corrupt. Well, they're both corrupt. Yeah. I hate them both. Sorry. <laughs> All right. Can you hear me? Can you hear me now? I hear you. Okay. You better now. The last time I spoke to you, I remember asking you, did you ever think Biden, Schumer, and Pelosi would be this bad. You're back on the show, and I'm I'm going to offend my listeners by asking you: Did you ever think Pelosi and Biden and Schumer would be this good in terms of politics? This good? Did you say this good or this bad? Good. I think he's first said this bad, and then you changed it to this good. Don't you think in the past month there's been a 180, at least politically, that they've done some things politically, not necessarily to help the American people, but to help the Democratic Party, they snatched uh, victory, possibly victory from the, the jaws of defeat, perhaps? 
Perhaps. Yeah. I mean, yes, they, they, politically. So we're just talking about political strategies. They've, they, they've done that well. So they, they passed this, uh, you know, they, they, I don't, God only knows what they promised to Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema, but they, um, they managed to pass something that looks like they, they're doing something good, or even though they're not doing much. Cheers. And then they got that in Congress to go, even the ones who know better, to go around saying, look how wonderful it is, look how fabulous it is, and then the media re- repeats it, and it becomes a narrative. Uh, you know, even Bernie, you know, who certainly has said what a piece of shit this bill was, even he has said, oh, but it does some really good stuff too. Right. I was reading about the pipeline through West Virginia. It, that's a yeah. disgrace. I mean, it's a disgrace. Two years from now, when Chuck Schumer is campaigning for Kirsten Cinema and Joe Manchin, <laughs> and you're going to be screaming, and I say to you, but isn't that how the Inflation Reduction Act got passed? Isn't he? Didn't he make a promise to Cinema and Manchin? Isn't that how you? keep the coalition going by saying, look, in two years, you're running for reelection. If I get your vote on this, you have my full support in two years. Maybe you like people in Arizona care what Chuck Schumer says. Well, he's going to throw money. I mean, he has to. Well, yes, yes, he will throw money. You're right. So when you're kicking and screaming that you can't believe Chuck Schumer is in, or Nancy is anything about Chuck Schumer. Uh, you know, like I said, uh, Chuck Schumer and I went to the same high school. He was the same way then. Do you remember him? Of course I do. He, he, he was a valedictorian. He was, uh, you know, very smart, very disliked. He was a kiss ass and an asshole. And he was voted most likely not to get anything done. (laughs) No. (laughs) I don't remember, but he was probably voted most likely to succeed. He was, you know, he was a little asshole. He, uh, yeah, he was the same, he had the same personality. When he first ran uh, for the uh, legislature, he played around with the idea of being progressive. Like he started out as actual progressive in a very, very progressive district, my district. And uh, he got his ass kicked by Wall Street right away. They beat the shit out of him and he almost almost lost next time and there's never been a progressive word out of his mouth since the, he, and he, he is yeah i remember him being big on big on guns tell me about new york uh, i didn't know whether or not to vote for nadler or maloney i can't nadler was better nadler okay. and he won yeah why is he better than maloney why would you consider maloney she, she isn't any good I thought her. I thought she did a pretty good job in the House Oversight Committee, but I, I committee. But I don't know her punch card. I, I figure it would be identical to. Yeah, she, she, she's you know she's a she's barely progressive. Natalie is far far more progressive. There's there's no way uh, that 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 I would have ever considered her. I was happy to get rid of her, and uh, and Natalie's pretty good. You know, he, he, you know Natalie's very old. I, I'm assuming this is going to be his last his last term, uh, but you know only one of them is going to win, and he's better than she is on on every uh, on every level. Right, and we lost Mondaire Jones. Before we talk about Dan, uh, Dan Goldman and Uline Nyo, uh, is is let me just ask you about Mondaire Jones, who did 
surprisingly poorly. Uh, is that a loss, losing Mondaire Jones? I thought it would be. Well, it is, it is a loss, he, but he had nothing to do with that district. And actually, he did better than, than the polls were showing. Like, polls showed him coming in sixth, fifth, or fourth, and he came in third. So he, he did pretty well. Uh, of course, what he did, unfortunately, was keep Uline um, uh, from winning. Uh, so that's, you know, that's really a shame because she would have, she would have been a contender for the best member of Congress. And she still may be, we can talk a little bit about that if you want to, yeah, yeah. but she, uh, Uline is fantastic. Mondaire is fantastic. What I'm hoping and I expect to happen was, is that Biden will give Mondaire Jones a good place in the, uh, in his administration and, and, and because he's, he's really, really good. He's very smart and, uh, he need, we need him in, in the public sphere sphere and hopefully he'll be able to run again somewhere else. But he, he should have stayed in fight and fought, I should say, when uh, Sean Patrick Maloney kicked him out of his district. It was really, really, uh, I thought, craven of him. Now, the good part is, is that Maloney tried to kick him into the next district, which is Jamal uh, Bowman's district. And, and, and heroically, uh, he said, no, he said, I'm not, I'm not going up against another progressive black man. So forget that. And then he, and he sees an open seat in, in Manhattan and Brooklyn, which has zero to do with him. He's not, it's not anywhere near him. And no one, you know, no one except, you know, people like you and I ever had ever heard of him. So he went in there and, uh, think, you know, try to, and, and there were people in the media who said he's the, uh, the incumbent. It's insane. <laughs> he is an incumbent, not an incumbent from that district or anywhere near that district. So, you know, it was, it was tough because he's, a, he's definitely one of the better members of Congress. And, and I would have liked to have seen him stay in Congress, but it wasn't his district. And Uline, if anything, is better. And uh, I was rooting for her. I would have voted for her if I lived there. Right. So she came in second in, in the Democratic primary, but she is also the nominee of the Working Families Party. So if she decides to run, she can, and I think she should. She, and, and I think if she does run, she'll beat Goldman, who is a more conservative Democrat. I, he's not like, you know, he's not like cinema or mansion, but he's definitely not the kind of Democrat that that district calls for. He's not for Medicare for all, for example. He had said, although he tried to, he tried to take it back. He had said he would, he would be open to negotiating about, uh, about choice. He, he's just the wrong kind of uh, Democrat for that district. And he spent $4 million of his own money. And the Israel lobby spent another million dollars of their money trying to help him. He, he's, he's got a lot of bad people around him who, who, who are happy to see that it, the district wouldn't go to a, uh, progressive and and you know if you add up the progressive votes they were way like three or four times more than his votes right so i'd like to see you you line run and she, i don't know that she's made a decision yet although maybe she's made a decision and hasn't announced it but i don't know now i want to just bring something up there are other progressives like uh britney in staten island like melanie on long island uh who also have the the um, working families party 
uh, endorsement, and they can run as well if they want to. But Max if they Rollins. run, Republican w- will win. Yeah, that would is forget Max about Max. Rose, is is it Max Rose who will lose in Staten Island if? if yeah, that's right. And it's Patrick Maloney who would lose if Biagi decides to run on on the family uh, working family party. So you know, if it was me, just Howie, I would say yes, uh, run and and defeat. A, a let a Republican win the district. Let the Repo- the Republicans going to win in Staten Island anyway. So let so you know let let it happen. And, and you know, chances are Sean Patrick Maloney will win in uh, in in his in the district he stole from um, uh, from Mondaire Jones. Chances are he'll win that district. But if Biagi ran on the uh, uh, Working Families Party, he'd lose, and a Republican win would win. And you know, fine, let it happen. I don't remember. I'd be. I'd be However, the point that I'm making is that in, in, in the 10th district, the one in Manhattan and Brooklyn, it, it doesn't matter if you run runs, if she, either she'll win or uh, Goldman will win. There's no Republican that's going to win that district anyway. It's like uh, D plus 49. It's, uh, <laughs> there are no Republicans there. So she should and could, she could and should do it. And, and I think she's going to. When I was a kid, Mario Biagi, the, the grandfather, I don't remember him. I remember him being a Democrat, but not progressive, right? Wasn't he a more conservative Democrat? Yes, he was, yes, he was an establishment Democrat. Right. But so, that really had much sense with her. She's very, very uh, progressive. Before we turn to uh, Trump. Rachel- Trump, Trump. Trump. How did you, did you have no discussions of Trump while I was out fighting uh, thyroid cancer? We didn't talk about seriously. I I figure you can get a Trump conversation anywhere. So I try to limit it on the show because it's you just need to turn on MSNBC if you want to hear about Trump. But but. Is, is is it your sister who wrote the piece over Down with Tyranny, the last name Klein? Oh, oh. Helen Klein um, went to college with me. She's a, she's an old friend. Uh, she was, um, yeah, she was an old friend from college. We've stayed very good friends. Her husband is a close friend. He went to college with me, too. So we're very, very, uh, Roland and I are very, very close with the two of them. We go on vacations together sometimes. Uh, yeah, and she and she's a political fanatic, and Michael, her husband, doesn't want to hear it anymore. So she calls me and, ra- and rants and raves to me, and sometimes I'll just say to her, "Why don't you just write a post?" And occasionally she does, right? Like the one that you you are talking about. So she wrote a piece about Mar-a-Lago and the intelligence documents. Is this another Tom and Jerry, where we think we caught the mouse, and or? Do you believe what some people are saying this time? It's different that Trump is genuinely spooked on these classified documents. And the New York Times wrote, you have to indict him. Do you think it's different this time? Well, I do, but not but not in the way that you that you're hoping and not in the way that I wish. I think that the whole purpose of this is to make a deal with him. 
not to put him in jail. I don't think that uh, Biden has the guts to do it to begin with, and, and nor does Garland. I think they just want to make a deal with Trump that he's not going to run again. Right. And? Although, why anybody would want to see uh, um, Ron DeSantis run instead of Trump is, is another question. Right. Who is more, who I mean, I think Trump is more likely to lose than DeSantis. I think DeSantis has a leg up on Trump. I'm sorry. I think that Trump would lose if he ran in the general election, and DeSantis might. Might win, might lose. And Mary Cheney, Liz, Liz Cheney, uh, jumping into the race will make for great... Nah, time. she's not going to... She's she not, wouldn't do that. She's not going to do it. She's going to use that money to um, uh, to help uh, anti-Trump uh, uh, candidates who are running for Congress. She's not going to run it herself. Right. She knows if she ran it herself, it would it would hurt the Democrat. So you know, I don't see her doing that. By the way, when I was talking about that uh, HR ten eleven, the one that bans abortion from um, mm-hmm. from uh, contraception from that contraception from fertilization. She's one of the co-sponsors of that. Fantastic. We, yeah. Hard to, so, you know, she, she, you got to remember, there's one thing that's good about her. She's anti-Trump. That's it. There's nothing right. else good about her. Right. And, and, you know, I want to contrast her to Adam Kinzinger, who is, who is absolutely a lifelong conservative Republican. You know, he, he's been voting with the Democrats a lot lately. She isn't. Is he, and he's never coming back, right? Don't know. Who knows what he's going to do? You know, he, he, uh, he's a young man. He was well-liked before. And if the Republican Party snaps out of it and just becomes, you know, just a normal conservative party again, he could run again. Before you go, it's, I love you. I'm so glad to hear your voice. You want to know what I made for dinner? Well, I'd rather have you answer. Never mind. Uh, in a second. In a second. <laughs> no, no need. I do want to know what you made for dinner in a second. If Trump. Well, the reason I'm thinking about my dinner is because it, I just took it out of the oven and the smell is literally my, my, my mouth is full of drool now. Well, I, oh, so I'll let you go in one second. If Trump, I have, a, I have Mike Pence's fly circling my head uh, and not, not, the, not the fly he wishes. No, I understand. I understand. <laughs> he want he would prefer a different type of fly, but I'm talking about the the animal. Uh, Trump disappears. Trump doesn't come back. Do do the Republicans then get healed? And do the Republicans? Does McCarthy do do Schumer and McCarthy secretly want Garland to indict him to get rid of him? Well, like I said, I think there's a deal to be made with Trump. Uh, you know, we won't indict you. We won't put you in jail if you, uh, you know, don't run for office again. I think Trump would take that deal, and I think they can offer him that deal. It's not going to be in the papers. We're not going to find out about that. You know, I think in, in 75 years we'll find out about it, but not, not sooner. And McCarthy and McConnell would like Trump to go away, right? Well, I'm sure they would. Uh, or you know, certainly McConnell makes no, no no bones about it. McCarthy pretends, I think, pretends to be like you know enamored of Trump, 
and I think it's pretending, but I don't know. Who knows with McCarthy? He's a piece of shit. He always has been. Okay. Political violence? Are we looking at political violence? Yes, we are. Hopefully, uh, you know, the, you know, the police and the army will, uh, you know, stay institutional and they're not going. And, you know, if, if there's a riot uh, and violent Trumpists go, you know, go wild in the streets, hopefully they'll shoot them down. But I think they think should shoot. The as, as horrible as McConnell is, he he does not want political violence, right? Of course not. Of course he doesn't. Okay. Absolutely. He's against it. McConnell's against even even McCarthy, who's much more horrible than McConnell. Even McCarthy doesn't want that. I I don't think Republican. Uh, you know, I mean, yes, Lauren Boebert, Marjorie Trader Greene, <laughs> Paul Gosar. Those people would like to have, have violence, and they would like to have a civil war. They talk about it, right. but I don't think uh, you know more institutional Republicans w- would like that. So the tipping point, as scary as it seems, we're not looking at uh, the kind of political... No, we may be. I mean, if Trump's indicted, I believe there will be violence. I'm not saying there'll be a massive uprising, but I, I believe there absolutely will be violence and serious violence. Not, not massive, but serious. Right. What did you make? And I'm sure that Garland I'm, uh, is looking at that when, when he's making his decision about whether to indict or not, whether my uh, theory is correct or, or incorrect about them make, just trying to make a deal with Trump. What did you make? I made a vegetable pie that, you know, a savory vegetable pie with uh, mushrooms and onions and potatoes and um, carrots. And it, it just, the smell is just driving me up the wall. It's amazing. You know, a lot of like um, herbs are in it. So it's really wonderful. And, and the side dish is a, a tomato cucumber salad. Mm. So I'm, you know, looking forward to a wonderful meal. And I, I yesterday I made um, almond chocolate chip cookies. Mm. <laughs> and they're here. I mean, yeah, I didn't eat them yet. Great. I love you. I'm so glad to hear your voice. Will we talk to you next week? Thanks. Yes, absolutely. Um, And hopefully uh, there'll be some exciting things to talk about next week. Fantastic. Howie Klein, thank you. Read them over at Down With Tyranny every day. It's a must read. Thank you so much, Howie. And should we start bringing uh, candidates on who who are going to be in the the general election, some of the people who won their primaries? Yes. But but, let's I'll call you tomorrow. One of the things is when you bring a candidate on i don't get to talk to you so maybe we could you know do have the candidates on like have you on and then a candidate but to not have your commentary uh okay well we can take a little until people are sick of me nobody's no we love you we do we're glad to hear your voice (laughs) i'll call you tomorrow thank you thanks david speak to you tomorrow great howie klein read him over at down with tyranny and by the way Rachel Ventura, uh, I believe, has a piece, or John Lash, uh, uh, Professor Marianne Cummings' friend, John Lash from Aurora, wrote a piece over Down with Tyranny. I think it's up right now, 
about Rachel Ventura. We'll talk about Rachel Ventura later. But somebody else is back, David Cobb, an actual presidential candidate who ran uh, for president on the Green Party ticket. He also was Ralph Nader's campaign manager in the state of Texas. He has been away. Uh, where have you been? Well, thank you, David. Uh, look, I've actually been doing work with the Weot tribe. We were right in the midst uh, of some pretty heavy negotiations on some land back deals. So I just was not able to, to join the program during this time slot. But I'm happy to t share with you and listeners and viewers who are watching live, it culminated with 46 acres uh, returned to the Weot tribe uh, purchased by uh, uh, the state of California. So uh, a actual land back, I, I like to tell people land back is not merely a metaphor. Uh, mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it's, it, look, I'm happy to be back. I'm also really sad that I wasn't able uh, to engage with Howie the way I sometimes get a chance uh, right. to do with Dr. Fraud, because like, I, I find him fascinating. Uh, I love the clarity of his thinking, even when I don't agree with everything, he is a well-reasoned person. And as you know, David, I actually enjoy genuine political debate, discourse, and argument. And one of the things that I wish I had uh, been able to participate on that I'll, I'll make now with you mm -hmm. is something that I think is being overlooked by too many, not necessarily by you and your viewers and listeners, but we need to say this out loud. And that is that Donald Trump's appeal really came out of the paranoia, hate, misogyny, and race baiting that has been the daily staple of far right-wing media over the last 20 to 30 years. That's what created the opportunity for Trump. I actually don't think that Donald Trump believes, or at least he didn't believe back in 2016, the kind of crap that he espouses. I think he's a grifter. I think he's a con man. I think that uh, he was like everything about him was a projection, but the context uh, that created that opportunity that he leveraged, I think is something that needs to be understood because while I agreed with very much what I heard from Howie Klein, I think he is underestimating the shifts that are taking place in the social, political, and economic material conditions. I think that fascism is now, it's not just that we've let the genie out of the bottle. It is that the old neoliberal world order is failing. It's going to continue to fail because of a combination of the ecological collapse and late stage capitalism. Uh, and the political crisis is a function of the fact that the current political systems and structures can't even maintain order, right? I'm gonna say it again, the political crisis being created by the ecological and economic crises, the crisis is not that it can't solve the problem of income inequality or, or racism or, or, or gender inequality. See, the system was never designed to solve those problems. I'm saying something different. I'm saying that the system can't even maintain order. And there is at least 
15 to 20% of the American people right now who are ready to join the brown shirts. And mm -hmm. that is beyond frightening to me. Right. That is terrifying. Right. So what happens? I was listening to Professor Adnan Hussein's podcast, Guerrilla History, and he was, I'm going to butcher this uh, medieval sociologist from, uh, from uh, Morocco, uh, who, the father of so, uh, sociology. Uh, he wrote, I think, in the four, 14th century, uh, Professor Singh was talking about this, that the that people who came down from the mountains in Morocco were always able to take over for four generations uh, because they were isolated and they were a group and they had an identity and it was very easy for them to seize control in an urban area where identity had melted away because the more you interact with people you stop blending in you, you start blending in with other people what we're up against is that 14 percent. what was the number who are going to go brown shirt on us i think i'd say it's probably 15 to 20 percent that's enough yes to to get everything you want if, if you want it that badly in america and you have that identity that group identity you can get the whole enchilada there's no doubt about it Look, they uh, want it more than the rest of us want to keep it listen i think that's right david and that's why i continue to want to come onto this program and other programs to really sound the alarm bell, right? That uh, the only thing that it's going to take for fascism to succeed is for us to allow it to succeed. And I really, uh, like, this is, this is not hyperbole on my part, and this is not me using rhetoric to try to convince people to vote harder or vote more. Like, yes, cast a ballot, but make no mistake about it. Fascism will not be defeated at the ballot box. Fascism will only be defeated by creating new material conditions so that the seeds of fascism cannot sprout and grow. We have to understand that fascism is a socio-political economic system that is designed to say, like, again, like, it's not saying, hey, like, only the most small-minded, small, like very tiny percentage are actually sadistic, disgusting assholes. The people who are, who are being led into fascism are being whipped into it in large part because they are afraid of losing the positionality that they have. They see the system and the world is changing. They are being goaded by fear uh, and concern about what, uh, what that new world is going to mean for them. And I think that what we have to do is say, actually, the systems are changing. And we need to embrace that and say, and you're being lied to. Uh, the, the, the brown shirts don't give a shit about you. Uh, they will throw you under the bus as soon as anybody else. And the climate crisis is coming, whether we like it or not. Right. And we have a vision for a new world that we want to invite you into. And there is a fantastic place for you. But 
frankly, you're going to have to come to terms with the latent anti-Semitism, the latent racism, the latent misogyny that has been so long under the surface of American society. And not because we're going to shame or blame you for it, but we're going to say we really need to heal from this. Right. Let me, because a dialectic is always better than an echo chamber. Yeah. Climate change. Is climate change actually a gift to the neoliberal world order in that when you have the kind of catastrophe we're looking at in America, people are going to want law and order. They're going to fear looting. They're going to want the National Guard to step in. And it's enough of an emergency for the neoliberal order that controls Washington, D.C. to invoke all the emergency powers the executive branch has given itself. Listen, the, the short answer to the question as you framed it is yes. Uh, right. Like like, in fact, the take a look at how liberals are falling over themselves to congratulate themselves for the Inflation Reduction Act. Right. Uh, the reality is like, look, is it better than not doing nothing? Yes. Is it enough? No. Uh, and I think that this is actually part of the problem with the liberal approach to failing to understand what the bigger systems at play are. And again, I don't think I'm creating the polarization, David Feldman. I think I am describing it and, and trying to come to terms and understand it. Right. But just look, I think it's worth pointing out that the ruling elite on both the moderate left and the moderate right are equally unclear about what to do. Right. The 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 and, and you you and Howie touched on this a little bit. Like, is DeSantis better or worse than Trump? Well, you know, it kind of depends. Right. Uh, DeSantis is more dangerous than Trump because he's a more effective version of it. Right. Uh, but a. The, the, the point is that this new movement in right-wing America is not new, but it's amass enough power to be more open about what they're for. So a critical distinction, especially if folks are interested in building a genuine movement to challenge and ultimately defeat the neo-Confederates and the neo-fascists, is to have clarity about who they are and what they're about. Right. Just as it's important to understand that the neoliberals, which includes Joe Biden, who they are and what they're about. They believe that capitalism is still the best way to organize society. They still believe that a U.S. empire on the global scale is still the best way uh, to, to manage uh, world affairs. And so, you know, again, is DeSantis worse than Trump is worse than, than Biden? I think it's worth pointing out that, yes, there are differences and distinctions. But at the end of the day, a genuine united front against fascism has got to be about creating new social, political and economic institutions that meet people's needs. Right. You just said something uh, that I. I want to ask you about in a second. Professor Marianne Cummings showed me this last week. This is Congressman Jim Banks coming out against, he's a Republican, obviously, probably uh, 
should be indicted for January 6. This is what he tweeted out after Joe Biden said he was going to forgive debt. And it just blows me away. He writes, student loan forgiveness undermines one of our military's greatest recruitment, recruitment tools at a time of dangerously low enlistments. You just said it's out in the open. Is it because that's what I've been saying to myself, like, is has it ever been this honest? Have the Republicans ever been this honest about who they are? No, they've never been this honest. And the fact that that actually gets out there and most folks don't even like, look, 10 years ago, just a decade ago, anything like that would have been the, the end of anybody's political career. Right. Now it's a friggin' talking point. Right. Like we have to be clear, this is not your father's Republican Party, to paraphrase the old, uh, what commercial was that? General right. Motors? Something right? like that. Something, yeah, but the point is, this, oh, Oldsmobile, right? This is not your father's political uh, Republican Party. This Republican Party, and again, the number of never Trumpers is like in within the leadership of the Republican Party is virtually like non, you know, they, they almost don't exist now, David. Like Trump has been winning the primary after primary after primary. And right. just as, and I'll, I'll say it this way, just like a true leftist thread within the Democratic Party is virtually non-existent, right? This is why I'm terrified because I don't see anybody in the leadership of the Democratic Party who understand what is actually at stake or at what's actually at play. This election uh, coming up, how, how dangerous could it get? Listen, it's you, going to be very it's dangerous. commonplace now. Like Laura Loomer, who lost to this guy Webster in the Republican primary, refuses to concede. It, it starts right. with Trump. And now once one person does it, it gets easier and easier to refuse to concede. So how ugly can. But that's the point. We're not going to defeat. Uh, fascism at the ballot box, but it is still a front of struggle, right? Like we should still engage it, uh, but we have to be very clear that fascists do not respect elections, period, full stop. You know, David, uh, like I, I'm old and broken down now, right? Uh, but, but in the 80s, uh, I was actually uh, a promoter of alternative rock shows, which included punk shows, Right. So you should uh, you should. That was how he that's how he Klein's career. Is that right? He I ran. was in Houston, Texas. I listen. I was the local promoter uh, at, at, at venues that would bring, you know, uh, crowds of, say, 200, 300. Right. So but I was the local promoter. But I did people like, well, the dead Kennedys and uh, I did uh, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles. Like, look, I did. Thousands of bands. Howie right? Klein and, ran 415 Records out of San Francisco. Oh, my God. So, like, so I was in Houston, Texas at Power Tools, Numbers, uh, BFD Productions. Like, so 
uh, uh, now that I live out here, like I've met some of the folks who were at Gilman Street and a couple of these other places. So Howie and I are probably, you know, three, four people removed from, from knowing each other. He was, be- he was he, I'm not making this up. He was not best friends, but close friends with Joe Strummer. He brought the clash to America. <laughs> And the Ramones—he wow. brought the Ramones to America. Out of, uh, <laughs> you mean he brought the Ramones to San Francisco, perhaps? <laughs> yeah. Well, he was. Then he ran Reprise Records and Warner. I mean, he really moved up. Oh wow! Yeah. So, but he so said look, to look. me before you. He said to me he learned politics by promoting rock bands because it's all grassroots and tech. Go ahead, you. Let, right. No, that, he's so right. Look, what the thing about promote, especially the the up and coming artists. Look, everything is politics. Let's be very clear about this. That's why you often will hear me make the distinctions about electoral politics versus politics. Like what you choose to eat is a political decision. Uh, the, what conversation you have is a political decision. Like ha, like and in in the uh, in the small world of small time uh, bands getting. Who gets to go on? Wh- like what they're like? All of it is po- is is po- politics. But the thing that I would love to talk to Howie about, and I will share with you and your listener viewers, and that is this: I learned about fascists and skinheads because they were just as they were right wing fascist uh, white nationalist skinheads, there were punk skinheads, right? Uh, that were explicitly anti-fascist. If you want, I could bring on one of the uh, founders of the Minneapolis Baldies, uh, which was literally what became anti-racist action. It was black and white skinheads who were literally brawling in the streets of Minneapolis to fight back against these white nationalist skinheads. And in Houston, Texas, at these shows, David Feldman, I experienced it. And that is... At a venue like where 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 skinheads exist, when the fascists showed up, one of two things always happened. One, you drive them out, or they drive you out. There is no negotiating with fascists. There is no reasoning with fascists. There is no agreeing to disagree with a fascist, right? So this is the difference. Like, you know, I don't use that word lightly, but I use it because it is a powerful way to describe it. Like there is something different happening in this country. It is qualitatively different. And this idea of simply not conceding an election because you don't like the results, that's something that with all my uh, disgust and and, uh, disagreement uh, with Ronald Reagan, Ronald Reagan would never have done that. You know, even George Bush would not have done that. Dick Cheney would not have done that, right? There is something fundamentally different that's happening now, and I don't think enough people are coming to terms with it. So Dr. Harriet Fraud just joined us. Your comment on that, please? Well, I think there is something different. I think that there is the, look, the empire is falling. The American dream no longer exists, even for white people. That was never true for black people or brown people. But now for the white working class, the whole white blue collar workforce is screwed. 
And so that the idea that you'll have a decent life, that you could provide for a family, that your kids will do better than you, that's over. You did better than your kids. And people are desperate. And when desperate things happen, desperate measures are taken. And fascism comes up. We have an inflation. The most people get after striking is about 4% increase. It's close to 9%. I mean, and other countries are not suffering like that. China has an inflation of 1.5%. Whoa, sometimes two, not nine. So they're being wiped out and their pride is wiped out because they can't support their women and children. The majority of women for the first time in the United States are single. And especially it's a crisis in blue collar homes. Women don't want to have the second job at home, taking care of this guy who expects more because his male pride is wounded. And then she has to work all day too. That it's over. Marriage is over, which was the main emotional stability. It really is over. Yes, it is. The 50% of first marriages end in separation or divorce that are legal. And then there's another 15 to 20% that end just because people don't have assets or kids to fight over, so they just split. So you have about 50, you know, 65, 70% of marriages are over. And an awful lot of people don't get married in the first place. What's the point? And so that basic stabilizing emotional stability is gone. And with it, they've lost their social connector, their emotional release, because if you have sex with somebody, you could afford to be a real macho man and still have feelings. And they're desperate and they want to be great again. And so that in that vacuum, Trump, instead of being laughed at, is taken seriously. And so is fascism. And so that it is qualitatively different from, you know, when I was growing up or when you were growing up. This is a new development as, oh, the system has collapsed and it's happening all over. It's even in the business press, you know, that they're fighting a war in the Ukraine, although you know, to the last, they're fighting to the last Ukrainian, that's for sure. Oh, yeah. not just selling them armaments right and left, because that's one area that we're strong. And there's no guarantee that we're winning. And the whole point is to weaken the Russia-China connection. And they called that conference of American, South American states. It turns out now only two countries showed up, and they won't support the United States adventure in the Ukraine, that party is over and people have no security. They don't have job security. They don't have pensions. They don't have family wages. They don't have wives. And people are desperate and angry. And the left isn't solidified into a force where people can go. It's splintered into all these different, very worthy issues, but without the connector as opposed to what happened in France, where the same thing is happening, but they have Mélenchon, they have the France Insoumise, France Unbowed. And he is proposing now to save on gasoline uses. 
He has a proposal that every French person who wants it will have an electric car for $100 a month. That's $1,200 a year for an electric car. Well, that's different. They already don't have to pay for their education or the payment. Or health care. Or health care or after school care for their kids or daycare. Or any of those things, and, and so that's just, that's just the, the 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 low level socialism. Can you imagine if they actually socialized the country? And so I, I do want to jump in before I have to leave to say two things, David Feldman. Number one, in the chat, uh, there is an appeal to please have David Siegel from Rhode Island on. I know David Siegel. Uh, I'm going to admit David is a former Green Party person who is now. Uh, running in the Democratic Party, uh, and he uh, uh, he's running a very strong campaign. He is a genuine progressive Democrat. I'm making an appeal to you, David Feldman. Please have David Siegel on your program. Okay. The second thing I want to do, Doctor Doctor Fraud, I was doing like you know me. I uh, I research. I'm a I'm a, a thinker, and I came across a really provocative piece called manifesto for a left turn uh, from several years ago. And I, I, it was fascinating reading. It was from the 15th Street Manifesto Group. Oh yeah, Although, yeah. Dr. <laughs> Fraud was one of the authors. Yes. Wow. And I really would love to circle back with you and say, cause I was reading this and thinking, this is brilliant. Like, did anybody like, what kind of splash did it make? And like, what can we learn from it now? And and I literally would like to say, Dr. Fraud, we should revisit that. Like, like I think that the, like y'all just may have been a decade ahead of where the rest of the movement and people are, but I feel like this is worth talking about. Yeah, I do too. We well, let's talk are. about it on the show next week. Terrific. Before you go, David Cobb, before you go, and Dr. Fraud, I, I, I have a question. By the way, Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She is a hypnotherapist. She is a psychologist who treats patients through the prism of the class struggle we're forced to live uh, in. And uh, and she she hosts uh it's not just in your head. Capitalism hits home. She has a radio show on WBAI here in New York, Wednesdays at 2.30. We'll plug all that at the end of this segment. So I have a question because I, I said at the top of the show, I was going to ask you about this. And as if nobody has anything better to do in California, where David Cobb lives, Saturday in Modesto, there was a national straight pride coalition march right it's their th third year in a row and it got a little violent because the member 200 members of the lgbtq community came out in 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 support of uh humanity these are the this is the proud boys were there the National Straight Pride Coalition speaks for heterosexuality, the nuclear family, Western civilization, Caucasians, Christianity, and nationalism, everything we love on this show. <laughs> and 200 counter protesters showed up there 
And one of them, one of our side threw a water bottle or two at the Proud Boys and there was a fight as an old man ready to be put on the ice flow if the ice hadn't already melted. <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking, okay, I know the Proud Boys are bad. I know, and the, the straight people coalition. I have a genuine question that I want an answer to. Do you show up, the 200 people who showed up, the people I root for, is it worth taking the street away from the National Straight Pride Coalition? Or do you ignore them? I would personally want to ignore them. So this is where Dr. Fraud and I would have a, a disagreement. And my what I say is we cannot ignore them, but we also cannot provoke them. So we would take a level of discipline that clearly did not exist amongst those 250 uh, counter protesters. Like you don't throw a bottle at, at fascists. Like, no. like it, it's literally- excuse you know, to begin. Yeah, that, I mean, like they're looking for uh, any excuse. Uh, and so, but I don't think that it's safe to ignore them. But I also don't think that it's smart to brawl with them, right? Yeah. Like this is like, like to me, the, the real audience for that is not the folks on this show. The folks who are tuning in to this show are tuning in because of the kind of guests that you already have. That they maybe maybe they're learning something, maybe they're strategizing together and so forth. But we're not winning over uh, anybody uh, uh, in this circle, I don't think. Right. So do I think that uh, folks like the straight pride folks, uh, you know, should should be given the streets? Absolutely not. Any more than I thought that the Nazis should be given the streets no. uh, in Skokie or, or any other place. We have to engage uh, uh, our narrative and win people over to our side but you don't win people over to your side by throwing bottles or, right. or brawling uh with fascists but we well, have, you have if we showed up we'd have to show up with shields but and lots of leaflets and flyers to the other people again the, the kind of discipline that you saw or uh uh, existed during the African liberation struggle of the anti-segregation movement, right? right? Like that that was a level of discipline, frankly, that most current activists do not have. They'd have to be trained to yeah. do this. And also I mean, nonviolent civil disobedience is is like I've done nonviolent civil disobedience. I, I've been engaged in it, and it's not something that is easy to do or should be undertaken lightly. Well, I also think if we went out there as a counter protest, but with shields against what they might do, you all, you, if somebody, either an agent provocateur or someone right. from our group threw a bottle, we'd have to do what we did at Occupy, surround the person and move them out and make it clear that that's not us. So given the history of the street, where and in fact one of the 200 counter protesters the people we like said i have to worry about the proud boys beating me up and the police and right. i believe in modesto a few more counter protesters got arrested than the proud boys got arrested 
given the the allegiance that the police traditionally have had throughout the 20th century, not just in America, but in the West, in Europe. If I were to say, and I'm genu I'm, I'm genuinely asking this question, I, 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 if I were to say, don't go to the streets, go to the corporate boardrooms, go, don't dignify this, work the system, the streets, you're, you're on their level, you're in the gutter, and that's where they swim. Don't go there. Ignore them. They want, they're looking for liberal tears. Don't give it to them. Is that, what would Dr. King say? I don't know, but I think we would have to, if we went there and we weren't in the street, we'd have to be leafleting the uh, bystanders because you have to do, you have, I don't think we should get in there and brawl at all because that's not what we stand for. I don't think we should get beat up either. I was never for that, and I was never getting arrested. I don't think this justice system is anything I want to be involved exactly. in. But I would very happily give out flyers to all the people around and look as respectable as I could. So the idea, again, I'm, I don't know the answer to this, mm -hmm. and I, I'm genuinely worried because I've been reading – Forgive me, but I've been reading about Hitler's rise to power, exactly. von, von Poppen deciding, well, the, the, the leftists are showing up at Hitler rallies and the, the lie that von Poppen used. He said, well, you know, I, I, he needs protection. And because the leftists are threatening him, that lie. And so we'll absorb, uh, we'll give pr protection to the Nazis and will give protection to the leftists and Hitler has every right to have his security absorbed into the government so that the SA, the stormtroopers should be allowed uh, to become a military wing like the Azov Brigade in Ukraine. Yes, so counter protesting. Is that in and of itself? made up of agent provocateurs, unwitting agent provocateurs? Sometimes you'd have to have a disciplined core and you'd also have to discipline your own side, but you do need a presence against them, even if it's just giving out flyers. And they will try to provoke you because that's what they want to do, beat people, you know? And you'd have to have people filming it and so on. Is there a problem I do not want to do a show where I beat up on the left. That's not what I want. That's not what I want to do. I, I ask that the left cl have clarity, focus, and purpose. Do do we have to be careful of some people on the left who view politics more as an artistic statement than actually helping people? How do you mean? What do you well, mean? art to me is an expression of frustration, rage, and violence. And do we run the dangers of being influenced by people who genuinely think they're helping the left, but are more interested in the performative nature 
of politics than actually rolling up your sleeves? We'd have to look if those people were acting out, we'd have to surround them the way we did at Occupy, where the discipline was excellent. You, you had a group of people that surrounded people who were acting out and pushed them to the periphery. But look, these people are looking for physical violence because that's their medium. And we'd have to do something not to allow that to happen. And so, so I'm going to have to, David Feldo, I'm going to have to jump. So I, I want to share this. Uh, two things. First, Dr. Fraud, can we do like we did, uh, uh, we've done in the past, and that is let's give an hour. You come on. Uh, at 7.30 and let's go all the way to 8.30 because I want you and me to talk through that uh, manifesto for a left turn from the 15th Street Manifesto Group and, yes. and update it uh, like and actually ask those questions. It, it, will that work on your schedule? Yes, it will. Can yes, you send it, it to me? Yes, yes I'll, and I'll send it to you, Feldo. Uh, it, it's it's, it's uh it's not an easy light read, but it's oh. totally worth it. Um, and then the second thing I wanted to do was like grapple with uh, quickly with your question, because I think it's, it is an important one. It's a provocative one. And I don't think, not only is there not an easy answer, there mm -hmm. is no quote right or wrong answer uh, to this question, right? In other words, uh, I believe in a diversity of tactics and I think that the, the material conditions of any given moment are going to reflect like, well, what is the right course of action? And it's not always obvious. I do agree with Dr. Fraud that we can't just allow them to go unanswered, right? And I agree with Dr. Fraud that, that the left needs to be way more disciplined and clear. And the last thing that I wanna say, Feldo, even in your question, I think that we have to actually come to terms with what is the left in the United States today? Right. Uh, because like, and again, uh, Dr. Fraud, like what the, what the 15th Street Manifesto group uh, was writing about is like, there's not really a functional left in the United States. And, really and we, we've got to stop pretending like liberal Democrats represent the left. That's right. We don't have a unified force, a place for people to go to address all the concerns together, which are tied together through, cap through capitalism. We don't have that, and we need it desperately. And it's a winning strategy, at least it won in France, and it's made a huge difference. They've gotten a 50, since Mélenchon got all those seats, they have a 15% across the board uh, minimum wage increase and a 10% for civil service workers, and there's all sorts of changes, you know, because they unified and we need to do that. Otherwise, we don't have the force. And they do. They're much more united, the right wing. And right. they have their, their nut jobs, you know, acting out for them like Marjorie Taylor Greene or Dr. Oz or whatever else, and Trump. But they also have another cadre, although I must say I am very encouraged that their unity of using evangelicals as the brown shirts and also getting servicing the Brahmins who own the place and got their over trillion dollar tax cut, that's starting to bust apart as things get rougher, that the Brahmins are less excited now. And that unity, which was a winning unity, is 
I think, beginning to crumble. What we need a unity of the left and people have to decide that all those issues are part of what's the problem. And that's what we did try to do with the um, manifesto for a left turn, but it was premature. We had some meetings, but people just wanted to come and listen to us talk. They didn't want to do anything. Right, right. It crumbled. David Cobb, how do people reach you? Congratulations on your uh, your win. That's a big Thank win. You. Did you tell Dr. Franz? No, I, I, Dr. Franz, so uh, Feldo was asking, well, where you been, where you been? And I was like, well, because the Wiat tribe was in intense negotiations and work. Uh, and we just culminated with the return of 46 acres of prime mm -hmm. land on uh, an estuary that is, uh, the, the state of California has uh, is now bought and returned to the Wiat tribe. It's called Marashawak. Uh, and it is going to be a learning center for uh, how to engage traditional ecological knowledge to deal uh, with uh, rising sea level uh, and so forth. And uh, so, so, you know, uh, I was, I was otherwise <laughs> occupied at, at my day job. So it was a great win. And I'm going to also, I'll send you an email because I know, Feldo, you don't watch it. the chat. But what I just dropped into the, the chat is, again, I found this uh, article, uh, essay on Manifesto for a Left Turn because, look, I say it all the time. I study movement uh, history and, uh, and theory, not so I can be a really good, effective, uh, uh, you know, left-wing trivial pursuit player. I study history and movement theory because I want to win. And I read this, I found this piece and I read it. And the more I read it, the more excited I got. And I, I, was, I, I actually thought that it was written today. Right. Uh, and I was like, yes, these people get it. And then I went to, to look at it and I saw Dr. Fraud's name. And then I looked a little deeper. And I was like, oh, my God. What was this like 10 years ago? 15 years? 10 years ago. You know, and, and the thing is, they predicted all of the of what's happening now. And I'm not being sycophantic. I think that they were just ahead of the moment. Right. But the moment is here now. I think, I think this so. deserves a wider read. I've dropped it into the chat. Uh, I'll send you an email with it. But folks, if you like, uh, like Dr. Fraud and I are going to come back next week, uh, next Monday. It's That's Labor Day. Great. Are you still good with that? David, is that OK? What, what else am I going to do on Labor Day than labor? <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to we're going to spend an hour on the manifesto for a left turn. Bye, y'all. Right, bye, bye. You. Thank you. Great. Dr. Fraud, can you do Labor Day? Yep, I just wrote it into my um, book so that I have it there. I owe you a debt of gratitude, both of you. Thank you. Let's talk about forgiving that debt of gratitude that uh, our, our student loans have been, we think, unless the Supreme Court digs their tiny claws into it, it looks like anywhere between $10,000 and $20,000 worth of student debt is going to be forgiven. Right. What are your thoughts on that? Well, my thoughts are that the average debt for our students is $37,000, between thirty-five and thirty-seven, And that if you have grad school debt, in addition, it's more like $80,000. And that, that look, that's a good token gesture. 
but it doesn't touch the problem because the problem is that as the tax burden has shifted to the bottom and out of the top so that, you know, even um, what's his name, Warren, the guy from Berkshire Hathaway, Warren Buffett, Warren Buffett says his secretary pays a higher tax rate than he does. And Trump brags he didn't pay any taxes. And Romney said, I paid 13%. Hello, Mm. you know, someone with minimum wage pays about 30%, whatever. So that the states that used to have reasonable low tuition for state schools that were some excellent schools, like University of of Wisconsin, excellent school, University of Michigan. They now cost over 300 times more than they used to. And so that people in order to get get a college degree, which is a prerequisite for often a decent job, are in hock. And that means they can't take risks. They can't do jobs they believe in and want to do that don't make as much. And it means without a decent credit rating, they're finished. They can't establish anything. And they are the average. They can't, they can't rent. They can't rent. They have to have somebody else to co-sign. And we are the world leaders in the developed world in this. I mean, France, if you're an undergraduate, it's 170 euros. So it's maybe 200 and something dollars. And if you're getting a um, master's at 343 euros or a doctorate, 380 euros. Canada, which had two weeks of solid student strikes when they tried to raise it more, charges more. For undergraduate, the average in Canada is $2,914, so about $3,000. The United States, it's $22,005. Well, on average, what are we doing? And for a master's in Canada, grad school is 13437 a year. The U.S. is 21900 something. So, whoa. And in Germany, education is free, as it is in other, throughout Scandinavia and Holland and so on. So we're really taxing our people out of existence because the, you know, it's a pay to play system and they have managed to evade taxes. They had that $1.7 trillion tax cut for the overwhelmingly and for the top. And so that states are starved and they raise tuition rates. And so Americans are in trouble. We can't compete intellectually if we don't educate our people. And that has changed radically. When I was in school, first of all, we many of us got National Defense Education Act fellowships, which paid you, paid you, paid you $5,000 a year, equivalent is about $35,000 a year now, and it also paid all your tuition. Nobody had to pay for grad school. You always could get some kind of fellowship or another. This is an obscenity. And so I think it's, that's why this capitalist society is falling. People can't get ahead. People can't compete. The average time it takes to repay your debt 
is 20 years. Well, what are you doing? You're, you're handicapping your population for 20 years, unless they happen to have parents who could pay. And so that, you know, this is part of this empire's collapse. And even though in the Ukraine, we are engaging Russia and fighting to the last Ukrainian, not us, uh, and, selling, and selling and giving them armaments, it's just futile. And the Americans are so passive while they, billions, what is it, 40 billion has been sent. We need that. We need that for our, for free education, for childcare, for elder care, for healthcare. It's, it's just a collapse. And I think that people now are desperate. They're lonely, they're desperate. Every indicator of social misery is up, whether it's suicide or homicide or shootings, or eating disorders, or anything else. Right. Drugs. Why isn't America uh, moving as far to the left as it should? I'm not talking about the government. I'm talking about the people. The people, I think that in the 1950s, when America really was king of the world, the only surviving developed economy after World War II, they crushed the left. They made communism a treason. They made socialism fellow travelers on the way to communism. And they made the left suspect, kick them out of the union so we have, we don't, we now are beginning to understand class and people are realizing there's an employer class and two classes and an employee class. And the employee class has to fight back and join the union. But this is this new big surge. We're way behind. You know, one of the figures that I'm amazed by is last year, the German metal workers got 20, a 22 hour work week at the same excellent salary so that they could have work-life balance. Their bosses aren't allowed to call them after work. Ours are. That there is a terrible immiseration in today's capitalism so that the top four employers, Walmart, call centers, fast food, and what's the other one? Oh yeah, and um, Amazon, those are the four are all on the clock. Everything is measured. You beep, you're an extension of a robot. And their quality of life is terrible. That Americans are beaten down. And uh, the most promising thing is we are unionizing. But what happened in, in Germany was that under the Marshall Plan, in order to get aid, they had to kick the communists out of the university and the communists joined the unions. And France's unions are organized along political principles. Communist unions, there are socialist unions, and there are the Christian democratic unions, which are sort of liberal Democrats. But that we crushed the left. That was the worst thing for black people too. Crushed the left. 
let me ask you do some alternative history here because this is what a lot of democrats believe if there were no republican party if it were like uh, the 60s and the 50s there was no republican party there was eisenhower but they didn't control the house mm -hmm. if obama were left alone and was able to do his incrementalism foreign policy notwithstanding and hillary somehow had been elected and not trump would the the left within the democratic party allow the democratic party to be this uh horrible i think that first of all obama left to his own devices did more harm to black people than he typifies what happened you have a token black person but he just by not rescuing subprime mortgage holders but only the banks that was the only source of betterment that black people had as as a role you know sure they're individual cases and so he immiserated black people further and i think that even if he was progress more progressive than he acted he was so timid, he was so busy showing he wasn't the angry black person that he never got angry while we were all getting screwed. And I think with Hillary too, there was a joke going around during the election, which I think was apt. It was that Trump and Hillary were in a plane high over the Andes Mountains. The plane went down, who was saved? And the answer to the riddle is the American people. That's funny. It, it's appropriate. Yeah because they're both neoliberals. You would really have to have a totally different priority set, you know, under Reagan even, and he made it worse, but under Reagan, you had to pay $600,000. You had $600,000 that you could leave to your kids. Now it's over 11 million. And that doesn't count the paintings you leave the gold that you have stashed away and so on. Wow, wow. And when the income tax was started, it was started in 1910, as I recall, and it was only on incomes of $125,000 a year, which is the top 1%. Look what has happened to us. We have been hijacked and into a, capitalist kleptocracy right no doubt no doubt but is it unfair to look at the sausage making that went into the inflation reduction act and to see how difficult that was to get passed now i guess and schumer and uh, Pelosi and Biden made it more difficult by uh, not putting Bernie's Build Back Better up next to the bipartisan infrastructure bill. Right. Yeah. And they also 
stabbed Bernie in the back and so he didn't win so that his agenda couldn't win because he ran as a Democrat. Right. And they have systematically, they're a corporate party. They count on the yeah. same donors. And they, so, they, they, they sabotaged yes. Bernie's Build Back Better and they turned it into fumes and called That's it, the, and they call it the Inflation Reduction Act, which is- reduced inflation at all. Yeah. It hasn't. And people at best fought and won 4% increases. And the prices are now up eight and a half, nine percent And especially things like food. And Biden has done nothing. He could, he could have declared a price freeze. He could have declared an excess profits tax. They could be in West Virginia and Arizona door to door, letting them know who, what their what their senators are representing? None of it. The Republicans fight to, you know, right, bite you in the juggler. The Democrats, they don't. You know, it's a different thing. And they are corporate. And they have the same corporate sponsors. And so they never get too rough. You know? Right. And that's Dr. why. Dr. Harriet Fraud is the host of It's Not Just In Your Head and Capitalism Hits Home. Who do you co-host these shows with, please? Well, Capitalism Hits Home, I do myself. And It's Not Just In Your Head with Liam Tate and Ekoi Hero. And um, the radio program is Interpersonal Update. And it's 2.30 on WBAI when WBAI is actually broadcasting. And it's back. They fixed the tower. It's back. Oh, the tower is back. Yes, that's good. That's so good. are the programs. And <laughs> how do people how do people contact you? They want to contact me h fraud f r a a d that is at gmail dot com. Right. They should. Uh, the CIA should use Pacific as a training manual if I they think, are. Yeah, I think they may be doing so. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Doctor Fraud. Thank, Thank you. you. Bye-bye. Bye. Uh, I love Pacifica. People should donate. Me to too. Pacifica. I love yeah. it. Yeah. Bye. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, davidfeldmanshow.com. Office hours every Friday night at 8 p.m. And if you would like to attend office hours, it's this amazing community of activists and professors, teachers, musicians, artists. We gather starting at 8 p.m. every Friday night. And if you'd like to attend, all you need is Zoom. Go to my website. You'll see office hours. Sign up. You just, you'll get the link. And uh, while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. One of the people who teaches at office hours is Professor Jonathan Bick. He teaches two classes every week. One is Twilight Zone, where we watched uh, Luther Adler in an episode of The Twilight Zone, and Star Trek. And Professor Adnan Hussein is going to be, if you get up early enough uh, in the mornings, he's going to be teaching the Crusades. So people should sign up for office hours. We all got together someplace in New England yesterday. And uh, I 
unwillingly, unwittingly shared my French fries with our next guest, Professor Jonathan Bick. Well, thank you, David. Um, you've heard of the uh, Hamburglar, correct? Yes. yes. Yeah. Well, I guess uh, I could be called the French fry uh, finagler. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I thought those were for the whole table, but apparently you, you had laid claim to them. I don't eat French fries. So when I do, I want every single fry <laughs> because anyway, what would you like? It's good to see you. What would you like to talk about tonight? Well, nice to see you. Uh, well, I, I thought I'd start off with a, um, a tweet uh, that came from uh, Warren Gunnels, who is the majority staff director for budget chairman, Senator Sanders, Senator Bernie Sanders. Um, maybe I could, uh, can I share this with you? Uh, put or this it may be, a, it might be a problem. Well, might, it, yeah, might be a problem. All right. It's not that complex. So, um, he put out some some interesting uh, numbers um, and he compared say, the median home cost in 1973 to the cost today. He compared the average monthly rent from 1973 to today, the tuition and fees at the University of California from the early 70s to today. And then he took a look at the weekly average wages uh, for all um, uh, urban workers, uh, oh, divided by the CPI for all urban consumer workers. price index. C correct. So, uh, would you care to guess, David, uh, what the median home cost was in 1973? Hang on, let me uh, get my sound effect machine going. <laughs> The median home price of let me just let me just rev up the sound effects. Sure. Takes a little while. Uh, okay. Uh, the median home price of a home in what year? 1973. I'm going to say. $40,000. Pretty close. It was actually $30,200. <laughs> I think your, your sound effects thing sounds like it's a hand crank. Uh, yeah, it's, it's an old, yeah, it's old. I got to get a new one, but it's, yeah, I you might want to consider an electric start for that. Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just, let me turn it on and keep it going. And if you need, okay, so I, need the your I got the sound effect machine going in the background here. Okay. It's just using up so much gasoline. That sounds like your, your Studebaker. Yeah. No, it's just an old sound effects machine. Okay. Um, so uh, now if, if the cost of the median house had followed inflation as the official inflation figure from year to year, uh, the average house in 2022 would cost 200,000, roughly $200,000. Really? Yeah. It, that, that's if it had followed the normal inflation figure. 
but the actual oh, hang on so let me just figure this out yeah so we're talking about 70 what 73 73 you say the average house median house cost thirty thousand two hundred dollars and so doesn't money double every 10 years with inflation so it goes 60 120 240 500 well it depends on the inflation rate and also if there's deflation okay so we had some deflation for a short while during the pandemic for example and if you look back in the 1930s you'll see that deflation definitely impacts that calculation because okay. we had deflation I, I was like told like like a house should double in value every 10 years uh what I've seen is is generally that it increases about pretty much stays with inflation. So maybe four or five percent over the last sixty decades, uh, six decades. I mean, based on my calculations, uh, uh, home prices should be a million two hundred today. Okay, well that's definitely not the case. I mean, I'm just. Uh, I, I what do I know? Uh, yeah no no i i think those rules of thumb that you're using are a little bit off but um yeah, yeah. so so the actual cost of a of a median house is four hundred thirty three thousand one hundred dollars today uh so that's more than double if the cost of housing had just increased with inflation uh and if that you look includes at, a roof right it does include a roof okay. yes yeah. Uh, monthly average rent in 1973 was $108. Really? Month. Yeah. And if that had increased with inflation, uh, it would be $721 a month today. And now it's 2000. And now it's 2000. So, uh, you know, getting close to triple, uh, what what the inflation figure would have been right so uh you know the co the cost of housing whether you're buying or renting has gone up far faster than the average inflation rate uh tuition and fees specifically at the university of california in 1973 it was 150 dollars if that had been adjusted for inflation it would be about a thousand dollars a year uh, but today, the actual cost of tuition and fees at the University of California, well, for for 2022, uh, was just over $13,000. That's a disgrace. Absolutely. It's a disgrace. And that's disgraceful. Public education should, should not cost anyone. Yes, it should be free. Absolutely. Um. So uh, in 1973, the average weekly wage divided by the CPI for all urban workers was $873. Today, it's $813. Well, will we say that again? So in 1973, the average weekly wage divided by the CPI was $873. So is that, in other words, you're saying in real dollars, right? So back, so it wasn't 871, but if you use it 
based on what a dollar is worth now, it was you were making eight hundred and seventy one dollars a week. Yeah, yeah. Well, in 73, that was the the average weight. Well, accounting for inflation. Yeah. OK. Yeah. Uh, uh, and today it's lower than that. So the average weekly wage divided by the CPI has gone down since 1973. And uh, prices have gone up. Prices have gone way up. As but you we were see. told, but we were told we beat inflation. Who told you that? <laughs> uh, Bill Clinton, Walmart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, when it comes to housing, when it comes to higher education, you can see that health care. Uh, yeah. Uh, you know, the, some of the most important items in the budget for people uh, have gone up astronomically and, and far surpassed uh, what, what the official inflation figure is. But you can get a noisemaker on New Year's Eve for like 50 cents. Well, that's a good deal. Yeah. 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 So um, Warren Gunnels, uh, who works for Bernie Sanders in the Senate, uh, he, he put a quote there, uh, you know, sardonic quote. It says, uh, Boomer says, but why can't the slackers pay for college and pay off their loans like we did? Mm hmm. Well, you know, it's mainly because when it comes to higher education, uh, the main cause of this uh, has been that the state has cut back radically on the amount that it contributes to state universities. So they used to subsidize, depending on the state, you know, 80 to 100 percent of the tuition. Uh, now they're subsidizing again, depending on the state, you know, from 20 to 30% of the tuition. So the students have to come up with that other 70, 80%. And, uh, you know, another reason is that uh, administration has gotten top heavy at universities. Uh, some universities are paying uh, the, the highest uh, administrators uh, almost competitively with uh, for-profit uh, corporations. Right. So, you know, those things. And unnecessary and, construction, building dorms, unnecessary dorms. Football. Well, yeah, I mean, I would argue that you do need dorms. Um, but you don't, they're not health spas. <laughs> right. I, I wonder if that's somewhat exaggerated. I don't know. But there are, you know, there are some universities that put in, for example, uh, inside water park. Uh, probably not necessary. Right. right. But but the reason that they've done things like that is to attract students uh, so that they can, you know, rise in the in the ratings, uh, you know, U.S. News and World Report puts out this ratings of colleges and stuff like that and trying to attract students to their college. And, and uh, this sort of competition has resulted in the building of these unnecessary amenities 
Right. And uh, but I, again, I don't think that's the major cost of the rise of tuition. I think it is that the states have stopped subsidizing higher education to the extent that they have. Uh, they, the U.S. Used. News and World Report. By the way, U.S. News and World Report judges who, what's the best college, right? Yeah, they they rank colleges according to their own criteria. But they went out of business like they don't. They, they, they could not keep their news magazine going. Right. The only thing they have left is this bullshit scam of raiding colleges. Right. So a, a failed magazine <laughs> is telling us what the most, the best colleges are. And the, it's, the best colleges is ranked by how selective it is. In other words, the harder it is to get into, the better it is. That's right. So you're yeah, you're you're you're, you're, yeah. you're asking uneducated eighteen-year-olds to decide what's the best college. You're asking idiots who've never gone to college to decide what's the best college. Well, they do use other measures, you know, well, uh, I, I think it's like citations and academic journals from the faculty and things like that. But uh, yeah, it, it's pretty absurd uh, yeah. to to allow the that one. I was going to say publication, but they're not really a publication anymore. No, uh, they failed. Yeah, they, they couldn't make the ranking for publications. <laughs> right. To allow them to. Um, be so influential in picking a college is absurd. Yeah. I, and I did want to mention a few other things about uh, President Biden's proposed uh, student debt relief uh, that, that may have escaped the, uh, the headlines. Um, first of all, it's uh, so, so we're talking about $1.7 trillion in government debt that students owe to the government for their higher education. There's another 170 billion that is private, that is owed by students and over parents. So this, this uh, forgiveness initiative does not cover that at all, the, the private debt. Uh, the average student debt is $37,000. Biden is proposing that the first 10,000 be forgiven if you have an income under $125,000 a year. Um, but this is only for undergraduate debt. So people with graduate debt tend to have much higher levels of educational debt because it's more expensive to get graduate degrees. Uh, so you're leaving them out of this entirely, un inexplicably, in, in my view. I mean, many countries around the world, you know, uh, education is free or very heavily subsidized up until PhD. Um, but here we're not even, you know, forgiving $10,000 of uh, a graduate debt. All right. And then we have uh, the Pell Grant. If, if you took out a Pell Grant, or if you were awarded a Pell Grant, uh, you could qualify possibly 
for another $10,000 worth of debt relief. However, uh, it is unclear how broad that uh, provision is going to be. That is, who's going to qualify for that? It's not just that you had a Pell Grant. Uh, there appears to be, based on what Biden said in his announcement, uh, some other criteria that the, Depart the uh, Department of Education is going to consider. So we don't know how broad that for additional forgiveness is going to be. Um, in addition, uh, the government is is making 50 billion when when student debt starts uh, to be repaid again in January of next year, the, the government will be making approximately 50 billion dollars a year on interest on interest from from these students. That's correct. So from students that still have, which is going to be 25 million students, um, they're going to be bringing in $50 billion a year. Uh, I don't think the government should be in the business of making money uh, by lending students who are trying to get an education loans. Uh, that's insane to me. <laughs> Why are we doing that? So that we can, you know, pass uh, tax uh, uh relief for for billionaires like right. uh you know bush and trump did wow so that doesn't make sense um in addition uh biden is doing this using an executive order and this is going to be challenged by the courts and if this goes to the supreme court i'm not sanguine about its chances there so all of this could be, if you'll forgive the pun, academic, um, because the courts could say, oh, Biden can't do that. He doesn't have the authority to forgive student debt. Even though it's pretty clear in the law, he does. But, um, you know, the Supreme Court, as it's currently constituted, is not uh, overly, doesn't, doesn't feel it's overly bound by uh, black letter law. So, um, and if the courts do allow this to happen, then I suggest we should be on the lookout for Congress trying to pass a law that prohibits the president from doing this in the future. We should definitely be looking out for that because I know the Republicans will try to do it and I'm sure there are some Democrats who would go along. And the, the other part problem with this is that it does nothing to reduce the cost of college. Right. That's the criticism that several conservative Democrats are making. Like the wow. candidate for uh, senator, the Ohio Democrat who's running, I think his name is Kelly. But is he using that argument to say this shouldn't have happened? Or is he using that argument to say, we need to do something to reduce the cost of college. Uh, he was against he's running for governor, running for Senate in Ohio. And he actually came out against as a Democrat Biden's relief. Yeah, that, well, so. I wouldn't. You know, 
pay much attention to his argument then, because obviously it's a good thing to relieve young people of this debt that is going to continue to accumulate over the years. I mean, many people are have a debt that is two, three, four times. I'm sorry, his, his name is Ryan. I apologize. Tim Ryan. Oh, Tim Ryan. Okay. He says it sends the wrong message. <laughs> well, here's a message. I can't afford food. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, I can't afford to start a family. I can't afford to buy a house. I can't afford my rent. Right. Yeah. Uh, hello. What What is he talking about? He's trying to win. Okay. Well, so one thing I would say is that um, loans should also be available for people or I, if we're going to do loans for people who are going to trade school for vo vocational training, um, people who don't want to go to university uh, or, you know, they want to work with their hands. They want to do things that are vitally important to people's everyday lives. It's nice to have indoor plumbing that works uh so that should be supported as well and you know when they if they ever get around to uh reforming the educational system and the higher educational system in this country uh that should definitely be part of it that people who want to go to vocational school they want to learn a trade they should not have to pay uh, for that training. Right. And there were also some other people that were clutching their pearls about, uh, whoa, what is this going to do to the economy? You know, what's the impact of forgiving this amount of student debt on the economy? And uh, a couple of uh, economists from uh, that socialist organization, Goldman Sachs, hmm. uh, did a report on this. And uh, they said that um, if all borrow borrowers eligible for the program enroll in it, it will reduce the student loan balances by about $400 billion or 1.6% of GDP. And they said that's not likely because previous programs to reduce student loan payments uh, never reached full enrollment. So not everyone took advantage of the program that was eligible. And um, they say that it's not likely to contribute to inflation uh, that quote debt forgiveness that lowers monthly payments is slightly inflationary in isolation but the resumption of payments is likely to more than offset this and you have to remember that student the rates on student loans are going to be going up because the federal reserve has been raising interest rates and they've been cutting they've been reversing what they called uh, quantitative easing. And this has the effect of raising uh, not only short-term rates, which the Fed can directly control, but by reversing quantitative easing, by engaging in quantitative tightening, they are likely to 
increase long-term interest rates as well. Um, yeah, they said uh, it will boost the deficit by roughly 400 billion over the next two years, but it won't have much of an impact on treasury issuance since the government has already funded those loans. Even with the possibility that lawmakers would want a bigger program in the future, the Goldman analysts point out that there wasn't much of a re reaction in the fixed income markets. So the idea that this is somehow going to uh, affect the economy uh, negatively is absurd based on this report by Goldman Sachs and uh, you know, relieving people of their debts uh, for higher education could help people tremendously. Uh, it looks like the Federal Reserve is aiming to cause a recession in order to bring down uh, inflation. Uh, if we had, if we could get rid of more of this debt or all of it, uh, that could counteract some of that harm that they're going to be inflicting on working right. people. Right. Elizabeth Warren, I saw her on one of the Sunday shows saying they're going to raise interest rates and destroy jobs and ruin lives, but they'll tell us the economy is doing great. Right. right. Yeah, I mean, they, they could lead us into stagflation. You know, we have a recession uh, with inflation in like we did in the in the you know uh, late seventies, uh, early eighties. It all uh, depends on what I would be curious for you to tell us is is how they measure inflation, how they measure the GDP, because you just went through a laundry list of incredible inflationary items like medicine, healthcare, buying a house, all the important stuff. But for the past, I don't know, 30 years, we've been told that it's low inflation. Who's measuring it? Doesn't sound like it's been low inflation to me. Yes. Well, they traditionally strip out the volatile uh, uh, components of um, energy and uh, food, um, which are pretty important to people. And... Uh, yeah, you know, it really depends. There, there should be new, a number of different measures of inflation, uh, depending on who you are. So if, if you're elderly, the inflation in healthcare is going to matter uh, greatly to you. And uh, if you're young, uh, you know, inflation in, in the prices of education are going to matter more to you. So, uh, yeah, they could be more specific and um, many times they're measuring it in a way that makes the government look better. Right. You know, like they're accomplishing their goals. Yeah. We, we have to wrap it up. This was great. Let, let me give you the final word here, but this was great. Oh, no, thank you for having me on. I enjoyed thank it you for much. doing this. Professor uh, Jonathan Bick teaches Star Trek and the Twilight Zone at office hours every Friday and Saturday afternoon. So come learn about Star Trek, 
and the Twilight Zone. I think we have a question from Sal Verde. Let's see if Sal, do you have a question? Sun Green, do you have a question? Okay. I guess not. Uh, you are listening. Thank you. I thought we had a question. Uh, thank you, David. Uh, thank you, Professor Jonathan Bick. Uh, enjoy my fries. <laughs> I'll see see you. Uh, I'll see you Thursday. Yes, sir. Joining us is Peter B. Collins, Bay Area Radio Hall of Famer. He is a brilliant, brilliant. Uh, digester of news and history and you should go to peterbcollins.com for a treasure trove of his podcasts radio shows interviews let's talk about woke you sent me a pretty brilliant piece that dan rather who doesn't get enough credit these days wrote about what it means to be woke and why the right wing is attacking the woke culture why did that strike you what, what, what was it about that piece that hit you well, so hard? David he he expressed a feeling that I've had for some time uh, because the term woke was weaponized by Trump uh, during the 2020 campaign and in particular I I really rankle when I watch uh, your old buddy Bill Maher because he has been a leading promoter of anti-wokeness. And he seems oblivious to the way Trump, who is a master of the dark art of redefining language, reframing words. And also, you know, Trump knows how to take a term and, and turn it inside out. Uh, whether it's fake news, uh, Black Lives Matter, woke, or election integrity. Right. Uh, I've been fighting for election integrity since uh, Bush, you know, won the coin toss at the Supreme Court in 2000. But it means something very different to the people who are online today and very uh, uh, visible in social media who are, we believe, funded by the Bradley Foundation uh, out of uh, Milwaukee. Yeah. And so Dan Rather, and I, I'll tell you later about some of my encounters with Dan over the years. Uh, overall, I have a very high regard for him. He had some low points, no question about it. Uh, but, you know, when I think back to him in his prime, he was anchoring the CBS Evening News. He was doing four blasts a day on uh, the CBS radio network. Some of that stuff was written for him, but still, uh, he, he had a fairly significant body of work and commentary. And so I, I, I meant to look it up, but I didn't have time. I, I think Dan is approaching 90. Uh, and he, he right. yeah. He remains uh, a sentient commentator on the American condition. So uh, my friend Tom McAfee, who's a new listener to the uh, Feldman Affair. Welcome. Uh, he, he sent me uh, a copy of this last week. It's up at Medium. You can also find it at uh, uh, 
a couple of the independent news sites. Um, and he did a really good job of explaining how Ron DeSantis has really picked up the cudgel from Trump. And DeSantis even is, is trampling on the legacy of Winston Churchill. Uh, here, here's a quote that rather published uh, from uh, Ron DeSantis. Quote, we can't just stand idly by while woke ideology ravages every institution in our society. We must fight the woke in our schools. We must fight the woke on our businesses. Wow. We must fight the woke in government agencies. We can never, ever surrender wow. to woke ideology. And I'll tell you this, the state of Florida is where woke goes to die. Mm. Now, this is Almost barely... everybody else. This is barely... Oh, <laughs> good one. Uh, this is barely coded racist dog whistling. Because woke to white people is a derogatory term now. And it has silenced many African-Americans who had used the term your, to your express. Your microphone is scraping against your collar. Just always does that. Um, and they have managed to silence the people who surface their pain, the suffering that they endure as a result of being brown or black or just not white. And uh, it is quite insidious, but dangerously effective what they have done with the word. Yep. And they wrap it in the First Amendment and freedom of speech and cancel culture. And you're 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 a, you're a, you're the fascist. You're the totalitarian who's trying to suppress free speech. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And, it, and it's also uh, considered derisive when it's uttered by white conservatives because they feel a certain um, uh, kind of a teenage thrill at using black English because, mm -hmm. you know, rather went to the dictionary and he said, yeah, it's, it's an African-American English term. And it means aware of and actively attentive to important facts and issues, especially issues of racial and social justice. So that's the positive interpretation of woke. But the dictionary also mentions that while the term came to prominence in 2014 with the Black Lives Matter movement, by the end of that same decade, it was also being applied by some as a general pejorative for anyone who is or appears to be politically left-leaning. And when I see this stoked by Bill Maher, and I've been watching critically and carefully this year, I've only found a couple of episodes of his show where he didn't have an outspoken anti-woke person who was, you know, just spewing this out. And as I said, Bill is oblivious to the implications uh, and how it cements, uh, solidifies the hold that the right wing has on policy and on rhetoric. And so I really applaud uh, Dan Rather for calling this out. 
a little later, he says, um, to be woke is a type of person, one to be shunned, stigmatized, and vilified. It makes you wonder, rather, says, when the crowd cheers DeSantis' incitement, whom they picture in their minds. Is it a black mother marching in the street for racial justice, a gay parent, a college professor, a scientist, a, a Jewish person, a librarian, a teacher? And we know in Florida right now that the ranks of teachers are being diluted mm -hmm. uh, because of the recruitment of people who have no teaching credential, no experience. The, the requirement has been watered down to the level of a, uh, uh, the wife of a veteran is qualified to teach in Florida schools now. And when you take the, uh, the blacklisting of books, they haven't started to burn them yet, but uh, right. hey, <laughs> uh, winter's ahead and it gets chilly in Florida too. Right. So uh, this, this is a really dangerous weaponization of a certain term, and it gives license to racist expressions of many different kinds. So you're saying, and I... I'm a, I guess I never really have ta I've never understood why it what what this is about. You're saying that woke is dog whistle politics. It's it like Lee Atwater said. Now it's you can't say the N word, so now you say busing. You say welfare, welfare queen, and now woke is the new dog whistle to get people to. Uh, Interesting. Well, and, and look at the impact. Okay, after the George George Floyd protests and that whole summer of uh, action on the streets, despite the risk that people faced of uh, catching COVID, uh, you know, we saw Trump hold the Bible up after he had tear gassed peaceful protesters in Lafayette Square. Uh, we saw the military deployed and also non-military ag agencies like the Bureau of Prisons were sending uh, people to uh, attack protesters who are outside the federal office building in Portland, Oregon. And, you know, we have to acknowledge that there are certain elements of truth to some of the narratives that get spun. There were Antifa protesters on the streets of Portland for almost 100 nights straight. But there weren't any Antifa protesters on January 6th. And this is where the right takes this license and moves from things that have some modest foundation and spins them into lies. Yeah. The, the lie that really upsets me is the one about Black Lives Matter, because my reading I think it was the wash i'm positive it was the washington post which did a study of all the black lives matter protests black lives matter their protests were peaceful they said the only time there was violence was when outside agitators showed up from the right occasionally but rarely antifa causing violence but it was mostly caused by outside agitators from the right, but also the police. 
that when the police show up for a Black Lives Matter protest, they instigate violence, that they would turn on the protesters. And yet they're the, the right wing Fox News constantly talks about all the violent BLM protests, which are it's just a lie. Well, David, as I recall, it was 94 percent the peaceful rate of BLM wow. protests. You're amazing. You're amazing. And, and the you're 6%. Amazing. You really are amazing. Okay, but you're pretty smart, too. And, yeah, uh, you know, you point out uh, we saw the example on the streets of Minneapolis where there was an unusual white man who was uh, hooded, all covered up, and he was torching buildings. Mm -hmm. And they, you know, a couple of the peaceful protesters cornered him and he ran away. But it was later shown that he was aligned with either the, the Proud Boys or the Three Percenters, I can't recall which. And, and so the, there were provocateurs uh, from the right. And let's also be honest, there were some people who engaged in looting in the summer of 2020. Typically, the looting occurred after the police started to beat people and you know, uh, use the uh, snow fences to uh, corral them uh, and other tactics that were underhanded and uh, should have produced investigations and prosecutions. Right. But also look at the effect of the anti-woke uh, culture, if you will, on the Congress, because initially <clears throat> there were some pretty decent reforms that were proposed. And then Senator Tim Scott, the African-American from uh, South Carolina, uh, he got into the act and he basically fronted <clears throat> this effort to dismantle the momentum of the uh, police reform movement. The other term that was heavily weaponized was defund the police. And we've talked about this before. Uh, I don't use that term but I support the diversion of, of money from police budgets to non-lethal intervention, uh, psychologists and social workers in uh, events that don't require uh, an armed officer. And, you know, depending on who uses the term, that could be called defunding. Uh, but the fundamental thrust of it was that uh, we've just, you know, dump tons of money on our police departments. Cops make a, a very good living and they rack up huge overtime. Uh, we have we have cops in San Francisco who make over three hundred thousand dollars a year. And that the, they report that they report. Well, yeah, <laughs> that's before they get any cash under the table. Uh, and, and And so. We have police forces, and, and you know, I feel compelled to say that all, not, not all cops are bad, uh, and a lot of cops are embarrassed but not willing to turn in their colleagues who mm -hmm. uh, grossly violate the law. So that makes but, them criminal. I know we feel compelled, mm -hmm. but if, you, if you're a cop and, you know, you protect a colleague, uh, that's 
a criminal, that you're an accessory after the fact. Indeed. So yeah. it's harder, it's getting harder and harder to say a few rotten apples. Well, and we talked earlier this year about the successful recall of San Francisco's progressive district attorney, Shessa Boudin, and he really was the subject of a scheme by the police officers union to uh, really go soft on arrests and enforcement of the law in order to blame him. And they would say, well, we don't arrest people because the DA won't charge them. Well, the DA outside of a grand jury can't charge people unless the police <coughs> refer charges. And so this is the catch-22 that was used to demonize Boudin and blame him. And since he was recalled around the second week of July, the crime picture in San Francisco hasn't changed. He was blamed for <clears throat> Asian-targeted hate crimes. And we have had a continuing wave of anti-Asian uh, uh, attacks in San Francisco and in Oakland. And so the kind of deference that we give to police and the pass that we give them on their uh, violent criminal acts is actually part of this whole woke mentality that, you know, mostly the cops beat black people. So white people right. think that's okay. Right. And, and, and we know that they, that traffic stops that, uh, arrests uh, and, and charges, all are heavily weighted in a disproportionate manner to black and brown suspects. So I hope that people will uh, take a hard look at the way woke and similar terms have been weaponized and challenge people when they express that. Do you know that's a racist trope? Do you know that you just blew a dog whistle? Uh, did you mean to do that? And if so, um, I don't know if I want to be your friend. <laughs> right, right. Oh, it's just a an expression. Oh, it's just it's just wor words don't words don't hurt. You know. Now I now I have to think. You're making me think. The in New York City, I think in 10 years, the, the city played out close to a billion dollars in settlements for police brutality. Uh, and, and I told that to somebody who, you know, supports the blue and was complaining about those billion dollar homes that one of the leaders of BLM bought in Los Angeles. And I said, I don't care about BLM using that money to buy a house. That's not money. That's not my money. What about the billion dollars that we have to pay here in New York City to settle these police brutality cases? And he says, well, we should teach the cop. I, I, you know, I agree with you uh, that we, we, you know, we should educate the cops. And I said, what do you mean educate the cops like sit them down and say don't shoot unarmed black men in the back what, what, what course is that at the police academy not shooting unarmed suspects or shoving a broom handle up them uh 
there's there's a tendency to be so forgiving of our police I don't it's I and most of these people who are so protective of the cops are one paycheck away from getting arrested by the cops so you mentioned the broom handle that is that is the story of Abadou Diallo no I think it's are you sure I think it's Abner Louima uh Abadou Diallo I think was shot 40 times let me look that up I hope okay well as you do that uh, I'll just tell this story that uh, I was uh, did you say Abner Louima or Abadou Abadou Diallo it's Abner Louima okay my my (laughs) I know my victims of police brutality (laughs) it's not funny they shoved a a broom handle up his go ahead I'm well I met him and it was in a very unusual circumstance. Uh, my flight had been canceled. I was at the ticket counter at JFK. And I, I'm kind of slow to anger, but I was pissed off. And I was given this, uh, you know, agent, uh, a piece of my angry mind. Mm-hmm. And then I looked at his name tag. And I said, oh, I am so sorry. <laughs> was it Abner Lima? Yes. He, he is a, uh, uh, a senior ticket agent, I believe, for United uh, at, at JFK. And so once I saw his name tag, I just said, listen, I covered your case. I hate to, I, be, I hate to be a pain in the ass. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> Sorry, that's the... But anyway, I quickly uh, changed my tenor and uh, he, you know, he fixed things up the best he could. Yeah, I mean, um, the, the story with Abner Louima is they, a couple of cops took a broom, a mop handle, and mm-hmm. sodomized him with it. Repeatedly. Uh, and it, dam- it didn't just do damage to his uh, colon, but his bladder, and he required uh, several surgeries, and they beat the crap out of him is what mm-hmm. they did and, ju- and his face yeah and uh why is it so hard for people to accept that cops are very capable of doing that well and you know the the parade of horribles just never stops uvalde uh the recent case in arkansas um you know, it's just one after another. Uh, they don't act, you know, they try to not activate their body cams, but there are citizens nearby who capture them. They threaten those people. Mm-hmm. And and just the incredible arrogance uh, and and the, the indifference to humanity that is displayed by those cops after all that we've been through. It shows that they are not afraid of consequences. And they play the victim. I was watching testimony. Dick Durbin held uh, hearings about the psychological damage done to police officers uh, from Dick Durbin's a Democrat. So it was cops uh, suffering psychological damage from mass shootings and being shot at. 
but also the uh, BLM protests were very trying for the cops that they feel they're being disrespected and dehumanized and it, it, it it's it's tough on their psyche well uh not my problem that's no you're not drafted nobody nobody forced you to be a cop and don't do the job if you, if you can't uh handle public protest when you shoot unarmed black men in the back mm -hmm. uh, maybe you shouldn't be a police officer nobody's forcing you to be a cop I, I think that there should be some sort of term limits for cops <clears throat> because you know it, you do have daily contact with um, a broad swath of humanity including some of the uh you know most distressing people in our uh, society and you adopt a lens that uh, everybody's a suspect every suspect is guilty uh and that you are surrounded by criminals you just uh, have to figure out which ones you're going to try to take down today and so i also think the culture uh, imposes uh, unhealthy psychology on the rank and file. And so given that we already pay them uh, very high wages, uh, a 10 year limit uh, would require turnover and bring in people who uh, hopefully would not be as jaded as the veterans who right. uh, stay on a force for 25 to 40 years. Do you ever think, uh, I, I look around New York City and it's run by organized crime. New York City can't exist without some kind of violent mobster. And there's a part of me that says, okay, I understand. So in order for this city to work and to protect store owners, uh, you need a police department that is as intimidating as organized crime, that is as dangerous as organized crime to stand up to these bullies. Is there any, do you ever think that way, that uh, it is the Wild West in America, and in order to fight these criminals, and by, I'm talking about the organized criminals, mm -hmm. And there are organized crime families. Yeah, I, I think that street gangs um, are a, a greater threat because of the failed war on drugs that um, leads them to arm themselves and uh, operate with a total thug mentality. Uh, organized crime has been around long enough that uh, they've kind of uh, uh, you know, blended into the woodwork and uh, they kill each other, but uh, it's rare that they, you know, kill uh, just people who happen to be in the wrong place at the wrong time. Right. My, uh, rem I remember the LA cops being terrified of the gangs. Uh, and of course the Rampart division in LA just melded in with the gangs. They just became one and the same. They weren't, they weren't going to take on the gangs. Uh, 
before you go, uh, and I want to hear what else you have to say, but I just have some headlines about book banning in this country. Mm-hmm. Book banning in America has reached an all-time high. Uh, something like 1,500 book bans. 1,500 book bans in school libraries and classrooms between July uh, 2021 and March of 2022. Uh, you don't hear the Republicans complaining about that woke culture, right? Well, the best meme that I saw about this was that any parent who wants to advocate for the removal of a book should be required to read it, write a book (laughs) report, and have their kid's English teacher grade that book report. That's great. (laughs) By the way, homeschooling, is like doubled in the past year not not a good sign i think some of that is a function of covid um and race i I think there are some african americans who have decided you know they've they've criminalized kindergartners they bring police in and it's just not safe i'm going to homeschool so i i do understand that Yeah, it's it's also a function of where uh, charter schools have picked up ground and are diverting the uh, dollars from public schools into the charters. And there are some uh, African-American charter schools that are a response to the decay and uh, the uh, failure to fund inner city schools. But uh, we have a true crisis in education. And homeschooling, I don't believe, you know, it's all bad, but on a widespread scale, it, uh, you know, the kids don't have social growth. Uh, they don't learn how to play with others. And uh, I, I just think that it, it's not uh, a healthy uh, alternative. And we were I'm also very skeptical of charters. Go ahead. Yeah. I don't mean to make you jealous, but yesterday, I had lunch in New England with Professor Bick, Professor Hussein, Professor Hussein's wife, and Professor Hussein's amazing son. And uh, I want to, I want to keep everything private. I don't want to violate anybody. But I asked uh, Professor Hussein's son about going back to school. I said, "What are you looking forward to?" And the first thing he said was seeing my friends. Mm-hmm. Now, this is somebody who could be homeschooled, would be better off yes. with those parents. <laughs> he would be much better off being homeschooled, but it's meeting, it's school is seeing your friends and interacting and being learning how to be a social animal. Now, I heard somebody tell me that you're going away for three weeks. That's right. I'm leaving Wednesday. And you're going to Ireland and Italy. That's correct. Mm-hmm. And Israel, everything that begins with an I? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, I'm not Iran, going to Iraq? Israel or Iran or Iraq. Okay. Uh, just, just two eyes, not, okay. not five. <laughs> so where do you go first, Ireland or Italy? Yeah, we go to Ireland first. And this is where my ancestors came from. So we're going to Dublin, to Belfast, and then to County Donegal, which is on the rugged north coast of mm-hmm. Ireland. And I'll tell you a quick story. Everybody talks about how friendly the Irish are. 
And my mother went to Donegal uh, back maybe 30 years ago. And she took her sister and they were excited to, you know, visit the old homestead. And they found a store with the family name on it, Heakin. And so my mom turned to her sister and said, oh, let's go in. And uh, so she just greeted the proprietress and said, well, we're Heakins. And the woman looked at her and said, so? <laughs> that was the that was the end of the conversation <laughs> uh. and my mother later said well you know i understand uh you know my it was my mother's grandfather who left in uh, 1855 and then sent for the rest of his brothers about four years later so uh you know these are the people who left the potato famine and so it's not all uh, warm and fuzzy, but I, I'm really I looking forward to it. I Have love you been? That. Yeah, I played a, a comedy festival there about mm, 15 years ago, 18 yeah. years ago. I was so happy there. It, they're just it, it's so beautiful. And just, yeah, I could not have been. It was just great. Just great. Mm -hmm. I, 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 it's one of those things. I'll be back. I'll be back. Never went back. And of course, Italy, I think those are the two places it's impossible to be unhappy. Italy and Ireland. Well, I'll, I'll test that for Ireland, but I can confirm it for Italy. <laughs> where, where are you going in Italy? Uh, east of Florence in a small town called Rufina. And we are sharing a house with uh, other friends that we've traveled with before. So wow. we'll have a, a base there and we'll just take day trips to uh, different towns in the region. You know, uh, you cannot, it's impossible to have a bad meal in Italy unless you travel with me. <laughs> Seriously, I actually found... I haven't been in Italy in 20 years, but it was my turn to pick out a restaurant. And uh, somebody said, I didn't think it was possible, but Feldman actually. <laughs> oh, I would, oh, I would. I've, I've had one bad meal in Italy, and it was in uh, a kind of uh, small town in Umbria. Umbria is south. I, I, that's where I, I, I know Umbria. That's where my friend rented a house. In Umbria, it's it's mm -hmm. like t Tuscany, but it's not right. Yeah, I would agree. It's a little more rustic and uh, right. kind of you got to know what you're looking for. Yeah. So when you, you go to the small towns like, uh, you know, a place that specializes in funky uh, mushrooms and related things, truffles, uh, you can't go wrong. But in some of the areas which are just kind of not special, uh, you can find a restaurant that is not special. Hmm. But you have to work at it, I think. Uh, <laughs> I've been, I've been uh, refreshing some Stanley Tucci shows from his CNN series. They're great. Oh, they are. And I've been and taking notes about the places he went and uh, I'm going to copy some of that. He uh, he mixes uh, drinks. Have you seen him on the internet mixing drinks? No. 
women, he is so sexy mixing drinks. Just look up uh, Stanley Tucci mixing drinks. And, okay. and it's like I, I was watching and thinking that is the most seductive. It, it's just so. Uh, all right. I, my mind is going to Italy. And, and I, Tucci reminds us of just how sexy bald guys can be. Yes, exactly. Uh, I, I have this fantasy of doing what Gore Vidal did, which is just going off to Italy and nobody really knows you're there. Like, I, I think I could do this show from Italy. If I had really good internet, I could do this from Italy and nobody would know. And the time shift is the biggest downside. Uh, you know, you're on during the overnight hours in Italy. Right. So, May so. not be the worst idea. Thank you. So I'll see you in three weeks unless you unless yeah. something really silly pops into your head and you have to tell us. I mean, if something <laughs> does have I mean, there is this far right uh, election coming up, right? Isn't, yeah. isn't there a, a right a, a female right wing Mussolini? Mm hmm. Uh, Dave Ote, who's who's running? I think the election. Yeah, I'm going to have to get up to speed on that. I haven't been following uh, Italian news much. And she she might actually win, mm. which would be uh, her name is George, Georgia Maloney. That's okay. Nice. All right, we're going to miss you. Well, thank you, David. I'm looking forward to being away, and then you can miss me, and uh, I'll be back. Great, Peter B. Collins. Go to PeterBCollins.com uh, for this man's interviews, radio shows, and podcasts. Thank you. Great. Always great. Thank you. My pleasure. Ciao. Ciao. I'm, <laughs> I'm jealous. Or as they say in Ireland, goodbye. Uh, <laughs> Professor Marianne Cumming is a, a particle physicist and parks commissioner. Aurora, Illinois, there is a huge storm in Michigan. Don't you have relatives in Michigan? Yeah, uh, I haven't heard of a huge storm. We just had a big storm that came through here earlier today, you know, this morning. So I don't know if it's that's part of something that like half a million people in Michigan are without power. Oh, damn. Well, uh, I haven't heard I, I haven't gotten any texts from anybody. So um, I, I don't know if this is Upper Michigan. If this is or Michigan, uh, or I'm looking. Uh, I will. I'll get the it, information. But now, do you well, admit? Are you willing now to admit that climate change is serious? Are you fine? Oh, I mean, it's the weather. It's, the weather. <laughs> it's always changing in Michigan. Don't like it. Just wait a half hour, as they used to say, <laughs> even when I was a kid. Oh, it's a you know and. I think the creepiest thing about this climate change is just how indifferent democratic leadership appears to be to this ex real existential threat to our planet. And I, I don't know. I mean, I, I would have thought on some level there would be some group of adults somewhere, you know, working out a real plan you know, real energy grid or, you know, a real plan to uh, seriously uh, you're, you're breaking the kind of things that were offered 
in the recent Oh, yeah, there, there has been some problem with our internet here too. I, I don't know what it is, but uh, can you hear me now? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, um, I mean, even if everything went according to plan and I don't really understand where they're getting their uh, carbon reduction numbers from, are they assuming that everybody who can take advantage of like the, uh, of the tax credits for buying everything from an electric car to insulating your your attic are going to do it. I mean, these marketplace type things might have been reasonable in Jimmy Carter's era. Mm -hmm. You know, we're so far beyond that now. It really needs national mobilization. You know, so instead of like inducing people to. Uh, go solar or, uh, or carbon-free, why isn't there a WPA project to put on every single public housing establishment to, to completely retrofit with green technology? Insulation, solar, wind, where you can possibly do it. I mean, you just have a massive job program. So like, and rehab houses so that you can simultaneously deal with the homeless crisis. Right. And while you're at it, employ what uh, our friend Henry used to talk about, a, a decent public health project, which would be going through all of the buildings and fitting them, anything with HVAC, fitting all the HVAC and circulation with this um, ultraviolet type of antiviral equipment, which also would... Uh, would cure the sick building syndrome, you know, the, the mold and things that is rampant in some of these older structures. We're not doing anything, even approaching that. You know, we're just kind of letting the market work it out. And we're just giving enormous giveaways to the fossil fuel industry where they get dibs to the, you know, the, the solar, solar people can't uh, access public lands to put arrays up until, or the wind people, until the, uh, unless the fossil fuel people have had their shot. Right. I, I just don't understand this pairing. It doesn't make any sense, except for control, except for control and influence of one, you know, of, of, of the fossil fuel industry. Hey, you know. I'm ready to go down if my ex-student can um, set me up with a seminar down at Chevron or Shell Oil down in Houston, give a talk about subcritical nuclear reactors. <laughs> They're the ones with deep pockets enough to get into this. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what else to, I don't know what else to say, unless I think you were just discussing uh, Bill Maher and, you know, just how privileged his position is and how insulated, you know, Hollywood types are in the, in, in the uh, coastal elite, as they say. And I think they really think they will survive it. It'll be sad. It'll be looking like, you know, just like the pagan babies we used to give money to in Catholic schools, you know, in faraway mm -hmm. countries. You know, it'll be kind of like that. These poor, unfortunate people, you know, dying from the effects of climate change, but they themselves really feel they won't. Right. It might be interesting. It might be the beginning of a dystopic science fiction novel, but- it's, But isn't uh, that human nature, the denial of death? I think mm -hmm. living in New York City, like I know climate change 
is man-made and it's destroying the planet. But I fall asleep at night thinking, well, but it's, you know, Manhattan isn't going to, that's what human, that's how, it's the same way humans, Americans think they're going to become millionaires. So they identify. Yeah. But, but aren't you, uh, but, but isn't New York experiencing like flooding of their, uh, of their subway system fairly regularly now? Yes. And okay. well, you, you don't uh, depend on the subway. I do. And rats can swim, it turns out. That was the other that I found out last Every year. Mammal can swim. Yeah, I, I thought now, well, at least yeah. the rats are going to drown. And no, but Not somebody good. said, but they get tired. These that the, they can't swim forever. Well, we know the polar bears do. And that's, you know, all those sad uh, videos of polar bears 10 years ago when the ice is melting up in the Arctic Circle, at least in the Canada side. Yeah, I mean, it's going to, it's going to be interesting how all wildlife adjusts. I mean, and I can't, it's too big for me. What I'm dealing with right now, there seems to be like, we haven't been maintaining in the park district, apparently, according to some calls from my constituents, all of the pollinator gardens that they put in about three years ago. So I'm gonna see about that. At least I saw some butterflies this this uh, this weekend, being near one of the nature gardens. Yeah, tell us, you're the par parks commissioner. Is there enough water in Aurora? Oh, there's a there's plenty of water in Aurora. We're we're right on the Fox Valley River. Is in fact the water coming out of my tap is as good as New York City water, which is fantastic compared to most any other place I've ever been. Um, so we have a water, uh, uh, we have a water treatment plant that's just about a mile from my house here and it gets straight from the river and it's designed for river water, specifically the chemistry of the Fox Valley River. So um, yeah, so we have, I feel I really like where I live. Um, one, it's a house that was built when people knew how to build houses to last. Two, it survived the 1906 earthquake. We had a sizable earthquake here. What do you? Aurora, it, because there's some fault line that doesn't 1906? move much. What were you? Was Aurora part 1906, of 1906. The same, the same year, I think, that San Francisco. San Francisco. Happened. Maybe you're San on the same tectonic plate. No, I don't think it's the I don't. I don't know. No, I'm joking that you be, that you were part of. I think that's a much different earthquake, yeah. but there is still a fault line that doesn't move very often. Although I have heard said that, um, you know, when it does, when this particular fault line moves substantially, it's going to be enormous. But we don't worry about it. It's been 110 years or more, 115 years since the last. We do get earthquakes that you can a little rumbling. It feels like a earth mover is what. It, is driving on by, but that's that's about it. We had like a millennial flood. I remember waking up in my house. Oh, it was the first time I moved in, over well over twenty years ago, and I thought the whole place was surrounded by cops because there was strobe lighting in every single window. And then I realized I'm on the second floor and I'm looking outside, and the lightning I was seeing was unlike anything I'd ever seen before. The lightning went in circles around the sky. And it's like, whoa, that's weird. 
I went back to sleep. I woke up and there was a waterfall. I heard a waterfall out my window. And I said, it didn't rain that hard even when I was in Tallahassee, Florida, where they had, you know, just immense rains for about a half hour every afternoon in the summertime and then stopped. But uh, then I woke up early, we were going into work and I looked at the canister that I had emptied out. It was a trash can, but it was a, a cylindrical canister. And I told my boyfriend, like, stop, I, I've got to measure this. It was filled to the brim. That thing was 19 and a half inches tall. So 19 inches of rain, at least, had fallen within eight hours. Wow. And apparently the official like tally was 18 and a half inches, but it was astounding. So, you know, my house has survived all that. It's up on, it's definitely up on a ledge and everything goes downhill from my house and two blocks away is a substantial water source. Now, if I, if that drives up, oof, I mean, that's we're in real trouble but that will likely be the last to dry up and we have the great lakes not so not far so there's a plenty of um you know there, there's plenty to say about living exactly where i'm living right now plus you know the 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 quality of the soil i mean i could the soil is so rich and it was never scraped away like the new housing developments are. So I've got topsoil that's like, you know, two feet deep and could grow enough food to feed a village just on my city lot. You know, it's, so it's, uh, it's, it's advantageous. I was thinking about this kind of stuff even 20 years ago. There were, was weird weather over 20 years ago and people were thinking, well, finally global warming. That's the problem with global warming. It's a systemic thing. You know, weather is, is just a local phenomenon. Um, yeah, and global warming, the effects of climate change, the effects of dumping heat into a system also raises the temperature. The other thing it does is drive like mechanical energy, like, you know, more, more tornadoes, more, more serious hurricanes. Um, you'll have effects like if you start seriously diluting the major convection cells in the ocean that drive the Gulf current, drive the Gulf Stream. So, you know, where is, uh, where, where is London, you know, where, where is Dublin? It's about the same latitude as, as like the Yukon or something. And suddenly Europe, a, a continent that can still kind of feed itself right now, um, has that kind of climate change, then you're in real trouble. So some places right. might get colder. I mean, it, it, that's the problem. It's just, do you really want to play games, uh, you know, and end an epoch that for the last 10,000 years has been fairly stable. We're talking on a global type of stable weather, plan, uh, weather situation that's allowed civilizations as we've known it to evolve. Now, maybe our technology can overcome it. I mean, a lot of people are putting way too much, I think, uh, vesting way too much near hope in these, you know, carbon capture and sequestration technologies, which just haven't even been prototyped. I mean, there's been very small kind of, you know, uh, demonstrations, but minuscule amount of carbon getting extracted from the atmosphere. I mean, there's, I think there's good ideas to be had, and we really should have Professor Ian back. 
I mean, uh, to, to talk to us about that. But yeah, um, all I can do now is uh, push locally. And that's a park district, you can do that. You can just say, hey, we're like, we're doing, we're, we're, we're putting pollinator gardens in every park district um, property. And there's 186 of them the last I counted. You could have pollinator gardens in every single one. You know, you can start, you can let fields just go natural, have the natural prairie grasses and things like that in your parks. I mean, some areas that have traditional grass that people can picnic on, but um, maybe when we did that actually a few years ago, people were complaining. It's like, hey, why aren't you mowing your lawn anymore in the parks? But then, right. And what do you what do you recommend in terms of lawns? Are people Oh, get rid of them. I yeah. mean, every year I get rid of my, about a, a few square feet of lawn. You know, I've like substantial parts of the lawn in the backyard are now where I grow hostas and, you know, various Illinois wildflower flowers. And, you know, so I just try to, I have little patches of lawn. What um, is wrong with having a lawn? Well, first of all, um, a friend of mine pointed out is how she kept her like 150 year old oak trees in such great health is that uh, if you have an old tree you want to preserve, you need to have an apron around that tree of no lawn uh, about the diameter of the tree, of the tree canopy, because lawns soak up water like nobody's business. You know, traditional grass soaks up water, it takes a lot of water. And that in and of itself, I mean, places like Albuquerque and Tucson and, and, and California, um, in Southern California, I mean, they've gone to something called xeriscaping. That's been a thing for the last 20 years where you don't have anything and you uh, landscape with natural plants that, can, that don't require a lot of water and that can provide shade and trees that don't require a lot of water and can provide shade and cooling to your property. I'm in what's called my goddess room right now. It's in the back of the house, a house that has no air conditioner. And uh, so it's a second floor room and the sycamore tree that I've been very careful to keep, you know, to have tree trimmers come and keep it very healthy and no lawn around that soaks up an enormous amount of heat. It's just astounding when you stand under that tree and then you move out into the driveway mm -hmm. and it's a little bit of sun. It, it's just, you know, 15 degrees. And the amount of heat it soaks up that doesn't go through the windows here, that doesn't hit this corner of the house, can keep the house, you know, it's not like having air conditioning, but, you know, if it really gets muggy, a little fan is right. all I need. So, yeah, these people, and people designed houses like this for maximum amount of airflow that was healthy. And this was a house that was built by somebody who had money. You know, so that, you know, right. they were into comfort. <laughs> Did I read somewhere that before World War II, people didn't have beautiful lawns, but the munitions industry needed to make money after World War II, so they conspired to convince us to buy fertilizer and pesticides yeah, nice, yeah. to kill weeds and crabgrass. Yeah. Is that true? Well, I would say, 
that could be true. I would say that whoever decided to do, to do their damn Shakespearean garden and introduce dandelions to this continent also, you know, spawned a like billions of dollars of year lawn care industry. Right. I don't, I never use fertilizer. I, I actually kind of like the ritual of rooting up dandelions every year, you know, just root them up and you do it for a while and you zen out. And after a while, you know, whatever lawn I have grows back without the dandelions and, you know, looks. So lawn, since I'm in the, lawns are bad. Lawns are bad because they soak up water, water. and they contribute they, nothing they don't soak up uh, carbon dioxide the way plants do. There's no net. There's really no. Certainly not the way trees do. I'm sorry. There's certainly not the way trees do. Right. And uh, there's also for most fertilizers, there are fertilizers that, you know, are truly green, but for most fertilizers, there's a problem of runoff into national natural ponds and rivers where, right. you know, they, they sort of start growing algae because of all the fertilizer runoff. And a certain amount of algae is okay when you start blocking out the sun and you start, you know, getting this kind of scum on the sides of your riverbanks. It kind of uh, does a number to the local ecosystems that are near riverbanks. So... Um, the park district has a uh, golf course. We used to have two, and it's the Orchard Valley Golf Course. And there's a Audubon certification that we have that we have to maintain every year. And if you look at all the bodies of water uh, around our golf course, they have natural like pussy willows or natural kind of uh, uh, grasses, pond grasses growing in them and we there's just no end of the sandhill cranes and the snowy egrets and the blue herons that we have there and the to keep the the greens green you have to use a certain there we don't use roundup in any any of our products let's put it this way and uh so there are more benign they're more expensive uh, but there are benign, more benign treatments if you insist on having a lawn. And, you know, you have to keep up appearances here because I'm in the East Side Historic District. And even though this is a poor block, I mean, the uh, property standards people are always on everybody and my neighbors, you know, to keep their front yards presentable, however that is. And so I kind of sort of half jokingly thought, hey, maybe we should give people, you know, uh, give people permits through the park district to grow their own prairie restoration project right on their front lawn. Right. <laughs> Some people in unincorporated areas have done that. Anyway, but um, your your friend so, Matt Lesh wrote a piece for Down with Tyranny about John Lesh. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, I said John Matt Lesh. John Lesh uh, for about Rachel Ventura. How is Rachel Ventura doing? She's doing great. But, you know, um, there's a lot of uh, butthurt Illinois Democrats because she so soundly defeated Madsen. And, you know, it was just ridiculous. Now, the, the amount of money that the Democratic Party spent to defeat her, like close to a million dollars. And so, you know, um, but she not only, but what I liked about that article was it showed 
how you build coalitions of people that you can help. So when I was going door to door for her, I was always go also going door to door for other people who were local. Right. And a lot of people who are going to vote, let's face it, a lot of in, people have told me, man, I vote for the top two, can, you know, top tier offices. And then I have no idea who these judges are. I have no idea who these school board people are. You know, most people don't really know. Um, they, some people like go to their local newspapers, you know, sort of, uh, they'll have endorsements, but it's good to like, I, and all the people that I went door to door, to door for, I met in other stories and they were often their neighbors. So, right. Um, she's running and, for and Illinois. So it really made a difference. It really gave people the edge. She's running for she's running for the state and, senate, and it's a given that once you win the Democratic nomination, you're going to win the general, right? Well, we think so, but we really want to win this decisively uh, for for Rachel because you know they're already talking about it running another somebody against her two years from now, and you know they made they did things like she's going to have when she gets elected she's going to have to move out of the house she's in now because they gerrymandered the district and they moved her district literally a half a block so that she wouldn't be in the district um and if you you've got about a year to move if you're like a state senator or a state uh, representative you don't have to move if you are like a congressperson. If you get redistricted and suddenly, you know, you're outside of the district, you don't have to move. But that's just state reps and state senators. And that's just another way that the party can kind of mess with you and just make life miserable. And they, and they do it and it, because they, they really want to discourage people from, you know, running in the Democratic Party who have different ideas about where the Democratic Party should go. And uh, but... There are several people in her district, uh, like three board members, I believe, who are probably going to win their seats in the fall. And that's good. And somebody who is also a state rep. And that's good because she's Rachel is using her campaign to form a little progressive nexus. And, you know, doing it locally. She's also she's also building coalitions among current state Senators and some people, you know, are seeing the way the wind is blowing and she's going to win. So they want to be on good terms with her. Right. But there are also if things go well, there's going to be possibly 13 uh, very solid progressives in the Illinois State Senate. And that if they keep it together, it's trouble. They can switch. They, they can actually make demands. They can use their leverage and make demands. They won't get everything they want. But, you know, I say don't. But settle on a couple things and, and make sure you have at least one that is absolutely non-negotiable. If you have, if they need your votes, then you have power. If they absolutely, if you're being pressured to vote into something, this is so important, so important, don't give that vote away. You know, make sure you get something for it. Uh, Rachel knows this. She has navigated uh, very hostile democratic waters on the um, on the state uh, on, on the count Wilk county board and unfortunately and this is basically when it's when you've atomized left like we've done 
and you don't have any kind of real solidarity movement, which really is Harvey J.K. said has to be through you know labor movements. You have individual individual unions that aren't looking long term for the community that are just seeing near term jobs. So they were very angry with Rachel, some of them, because she um, she fought hard and they're still fighting this against this North Point, yet another big distribution center that would be that would be right up against uh, like there's a state park that's like one of the few like native grasslands that we have in, in Illinois. It's a very unusual place, very unusual ecosystem where you can see lots of butterflies and other pollinators and uh, would also increase the traffic and ultimately just uh, provide not many jobs and mostly low wage jobs. And they're not only asking to do this, build it here, but they're asking for an enormous tax break, of course. You know, the usual kind of, you know, corporate. And she has been successfully and she and a coalition of other people have fought against it. She's even gotten a moderate Republican to go along with her. I mean, to to join them. So I, I like that she's not naive. She understands the dynamics. She doesn't put up on it with any nonsense. You know, she's kind of the ideal candidate that, you know, and this is, you know, we all thought that the whole system would be saved by electing Barack Obama. And I, then I guess, you know, Bernie filled us with all kinds of, oh, if we only got a charismatic FDR-like leader, like Bernie Sanders, you know, this, this ship could write itself. And it's just not on its own, unless we are kind of all struggling to, you know, change it ourselves. And, and let's face it, when everyone tells you about, you know, political reality, just become the political reality. My turning into She-Hulk on occasion over the last year is a political reality. Become the reality. People don't want this. People want yes. to stay out of my. People want to stay out of my blast radius. So uh, you know. Um, anyway, but I was out uh, with tree trimmers uh, this yesterday. Saw uh, somebody canvassing for for Lauren Underwood, who is another kind of blue dog, very corporatist, very hostile, openly hostile to uh, Medicare for all. Not surprising, she claims to be a nurse. She never was, she got a degree in nursing but was never a nurse. Her last job was working for a for-profit company that handled Medicaid uh, cases. In other words, part of the problem, part of the you know privatization that gets in there and people with their six-figure salaries you know, sort of handle cases that should be handled by just regular government workers. Um, but, you know, I talked to him. I, did, I didn't, you know, I felt, I, I always feel a kinship people who get out and go door to door because it's not easy to do. That's way out of most people's comfort zones. Um, but I, you know, I, but I was talking to him and, and I said, you have to tell her that there's a certain number of us for whom Medicare for all is a non-negotiable demand. And she's yeah. not going to get our support. And he seemed a little surprised. Yeah. But anyway, I see, you know, I really wanted to talk about the James Webb telescope a little bit, but that's okay. I mean, I think I have to give a more formal presentation on office hours one of these nights, but people really should look into this. I mean, the site there, they've got some beautiful pictures. And I just wanted to say two things about this. It's an infrared 
it's a it's an infrared um, telescope. In other words, of the electromagnetic spectrum that goes all the way from gamma rays, X rays, the visible light, you know, ultraviolet, the visible light, and then infrared, and then microwaves and radio waves. But the infrared is extremely important because that's matter radiates, normal matter, everything around us radiates in the infrared. And so if you're looking for planets directly, not the indirect methods that we have identified planets, if you want to study planets, you want to scan the skies and have the ages of first rate, incredibly sensitive infrared telescope. And the, and the James Webb telescope is just an astounding feat of technology. So we're looking for planets. But the other thing it can do is because it's got infrared and far infrared uh, capability, you might, people may know about um, redshifting, that the universe is expanding and it's kind of like when a train goes off in the distance, its tone goes lower and lower because the wavelengths spread out. That's exactly the same effect. And to get the oldest pieces of the universe in, in focus, um, you have to have infrared because they've been redshifted. Even if they were very energetic, they've been redshifted all the way down to the infrared. And so if you're seeing something, a, glo a globular cluster that's 13.5 billion years old, <laughs> that light that you're seeing was from 13.5 billion years ago, but redshifted. So, so that's why they're not only getting, and by the way, they're getting spectacular pictures of Jupiter and people, even amateur astronomers are, they're, they're public files that James Webb is putting up, you know, on uh, the NASA is putting up on the site. Now they're in this, was it the FITS um, format? And you have to have some fancy software, which is kind of a high-end Photoshop to be able to interpret this. And there's like little markers to move, you know, to, to get the um, to, to get the bands of frequency, but there are some amateur astronomers that are doing spectacular work getting pictures of Jupiter in the infrared. But they always comment that all of their pictures of near objects are getting photobombed by these other objects, and some of them quite distant. Photobombed. Like, what is that? So, photobombed. Yeah, I mean, it's just amazing. It's just an amazing, amazing thing, and it's fun. And you know, I holy crap! You know, if you're looking at if, if they're, they're looking at uh, stars, explosions from the Big Bang, the shapes. They're surprised mm -hmm. by the shapes that they mm -hmm. are, are. They were, were expecting the shapes to be less what? Well. Um, I don't know if the surprise, but they just didn't know the whole evolution of, you know, the Big Bang is quite astounding to, to look at, you know, they, like tiny, tiny, minute fractions of a second where, you know, like matter appears and protons appear and neutrons appear and all this kind of quarks and gluons come like in the first 10 to the minus 13th of a second type time, point in time. But, but if you're um, looking at, if you're looking at, is it conceivable that you are looking at stars that no longer exist, that now? Oh, it's, it, um, it's quite certain you're looking at stars that no longer exist because stars have lifetimes depending on their initial mass, you know, from like 
a billion years or less than a billion years to like black and brown dwarfs, it, mass, lifetime of stars goes roughly inversely proportional to mass. You know, so the bigger the, the star, the initial mass of a star, when it starts doing fusion, that kind of sets its whole lifetime and how, and how it's going to die. So uh, yeah, so some of the bigger stars definitely died all billions of years ago and you're just seeing them now because that light took us there. But uh, the, the biggest question cosmologically is about the dark matter. And you know, most, most uh, stars, most galaxies end up uh, forming disks because of angular momentum. And it's the same, for the same reason that when you spin like, like wet clay or molten glass, you start getting a flat disk. You have surface tension pulling it in and the centrifugal forces moving it out. However, dark matter doesn't, that's, that's regular matter that emits radiation. Dark matter is something altogether completely decoupled from all these other forces. So there's no friction, there's no surface tension, so to speak, on a galactic plane. There's just gravity. And so the dark matter is arranged in kind of spheres around galaxies. It's very weird. But some of these globular clusters, they're seeing they're perfectly round shapes. So there might be a star forming phenomenon that we don't know. If there's like a lot of angular momentum, you're going to get you're, you're, you're like breaking shapes. up. Some of these things are really huge and they're round. Okay. But anyway, uh, yes, there, there are, now there, there's just such a treasure trove already of imagery that we're getting that people are gonna be studying for a very long time. So not only the planets, you know, life that might have possible life, that might be a recent origin if there are any, you know, those that are of interest to us. And then the very, very far past, about as far past as you can look at, you know, all the way to when radiation decoupled from matter type past in the universe. That's going to be very, that's going to be very exciting. Anyway. Fantastic. I don't want to keep Professor Steinel. Fantastic. Waiting. We will see you Thursday, I hope. Yes. Fantastic. Follow Professor Marianne on Twitter at RazorGirl. Thank you. Great job. Joining us is the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. We've been playing Turtle. Yeah, no, I know. I've heard. Yeah. I love it. How are you? I'm pretty good, David. Pretty good. Does, is my audio good? Yes, it is. Okay, yes, it is. not too loud. Some of your guests are louder than you. Today? So, yeah, I think I, I think that would. Yeah. Well, Emil, Emil needs to. Yeah, Emil was. Emil's too hot. He's too yes. hot. Yeah. But that was funny. What you guys were funny on Thursday. Right. I can't remember what it was, but I remember it was a good good segment. Now, how are things in Texas? in what sense how's the weather how's the climate change how oh, is muggy how's today the... we you know it's 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 hot it's hot it's 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 getting a little better each day but it'll stay hot for another month and then we'll have beautiful october november december you know and i'll start i did play golf this morning how about that good i had some good you. shots good for you I hit some bad shots 
I know you don't approve of golf, but uh, oh. it's not just. I'm sure most of the people out there today were Republicans, <laughs> but I didn't see any MAGA hats. Hey, I wrote me a little song. Wait, while I was waiting, because you know, you, I always, you know, you have a little time. You want to hear it? Yeah, let me give you an introdu uh, an introduction first. Okay. Uh, Should I do music while I'm doing while you're doing that? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, Professor Mike Steinell is a jazz trumpeter, pianist, composer, ranger, internationally recognized jazz educator, author of Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. And he was a professor of jazz studies at the University of North Texas from 1987 until about two years ago. And he has a new book, new book, Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. And it's an audio book now. It's on Audible, too. And it includes uh, Turtle, right? Uh, there, there, there's a lot of Turtle in it in the in the chapter on when he goes to Turtle, who's the uh, he's the guy that supplies him his oxycodone mm. character, his oxycodone. Hey, you know, uh, you should feel pretty good about yourself. Why? Did you read the New York Times today? No. In the uh, opinion section, big article, almost the whole page, American real estate was a money launderer's dream. Wow. That's changing. Wow. It's all about the, all this, this company called Optima in, in Cleveland and how they... Uh, do they work with Eric or Donald Trump? Didn't say it. Don't doesn't say it. But um, this is what I've been saying. They were Ukrainian oligarchs. Yeah, I have to. I, I saw that article. I, I'll read it tonight. I just didn't have time. The minute I moved back to New York, I looked around and I said, there's no way any of these businesses make money. They are all money laundering operations. There's no way anybody can afford these rents. There's there's no way this restaurant can turn a profit without lying. Uh, is that what they basically said? Well, I mean, <clears throat> the, the money was poured into um, a lot of different ventures and a lot of it was loaned to these this company by by local Cleveland um, you know, business people to renovate a big hotel, which they did a sh shoddy job. But um, it was to hide money that they were taking out of Ukraine, basically, you know. And, uh, and clean you know, it I up. Get a, I get a call once a day at least. Somebody who doesn't have a Texas accent wanting to know if we want to sell our home. Right. I mean, and down the street, a neighbor sold his home. And he just moved one day he was gone and the next and for the next six weeks there's been people in there totally redoing it so it's one of those companies that's bought it and i'm thinking well how can they how can they go in there they were you know took out countertops took out all the bathroom fixtures they're they're redoing walls you know everything is being redone and i was just thinking you know like that's a money launderer's dream first of all maybe cash comes in to somebody maybe through different channels and somebody has the, the money just to make an, a cash offer to that buyer or 
to get a loan or whatever. And then they go in and they do a, a massive amount of fixing up, which they can bill at one amount, probably more than it's actually costing. Right. You know? Right, you know, so somebody that money goes somewhere, and that's and, it. And now. you and you got the, it's you got you look for the copper, you look for all the valuable stuff, and remove that and replace it with shoddier. Maybe it's, shoddy, but you know, just the. Did you, did you ever get into Ozark? No. The, uh, that actually uh, is one of the few endings that's uh, was pretty pretty satisfying. That they actually tied the bow on that sucker and said we're done. Um, it had a had an ending. All I would say is similar to the Sopranos ending. You know, it left it left you with like, well, what happened then? You know, right, that kind of thing. Right. By the way, I've been working on novel number five. I don't think novel number four, which is about money laundering in Kansas City, I, the uh, the executor. I don't think that's ever going to get finished because I don't know enough about money laundering. But maybe so make I, it up. Nobody knows anything about. Oh, money there's a good resource. A guy has. They, 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 they quoted a guy, and I'm going to get this book. Casey Michael, the author of American Kleptocracy, How the U.S. Created the World's Greatest Money Laundering Scheme in History. There's a guess you might want to get, huh? Money. Yeah, but this whole country is a money laundering operation. Most... Well, you my know, money's clean, I'll tell you that. But I, I think a lot of the jobs that I had as a stand-up comic, that's when it first hit me where I'd play a club, nobody shows up, the owner gives me money anyway, opens up the calendar, wants to book me, you know, five months away. I'm going, what's going on here? I didn't make any money for you. Know, I didn't say that. And the money smelled of perfume. And then, you know, you work in Los Angeles and you begin to realize a lot of these projects uh, aren't supposed to be successful. They're they're kind of well that's certainly most of my musical endeavors <laughs> that there's something else going on where you like i've had jobs where everyone there is pretending that this pilot is going to get sold but <laughs> it's not yeah it's not yeah. supposed to get sold and you just cash the check and don't ask any questions uh i think most most of America is just one big money laundering operation. Well, I think certainly jazz clubs have been, you know, Dutch Schultz owned the Cotton Club. The Cotton Club was interesting. It was in Harlem. And it had um, black musicians and black dancers, but it was a white clientele. It's it was whites only. You couldn't go to the Cotton Club if you were African-American. Really? But you, but you could perform there. And uh you know, uh, I I may have mentioned before, Doc Cheatham, who died in his 90s, he was a great trumpeter, played up until his, the very last. We had him on campus, and he was 92, to do a lecture. And I squired him around for two days, and he just, he, he, he was personal friends with Louis Armstrong. He goes back that far. But uh, he was telling me how he played with Cab Calloway on the road in the 30s. And the Cotton Club uh, featured six months out of the year Cab Calloway and the other six months uh, the Duke Ellington Orchestra. Wow. And, and then they would, they would tour. They would tour for six months. 
So he's on the road for six months all over the country with Cab Calloway, maybe in Europe. He's, yeah, he did go to Europe. And he says they get to the Cotton Club and goes, oh, this is great. We're going to sit down in New York City. I'm going to play, you know, four or five hours a night, 10 to 3, 10 to 4 maybe, you know. And uh, so they play the first night, and then the band manager says, okay, the bus leaves at 10. They go, what? They would take the bands, and they would take them out to theaters up in uh, Westchester County and and, uh, Connecticut and over in New Jersey, maybe into Pennsylvania. They'd drive over. You know how that, you can do that. Mm -hmm. Everything's an hour away if you live in, in Manhattan, isn't it? Yeah. Everything you need to see. And yeah, then like uh, would, the West Side is an hour away. <laughs> then you would play. They would play but at movie theaters between the shows. He said they would sleep. The guys would bring like uh, uh, hot plates and, and Bunsen burners and cook bacon in the pit. They had because every theater had had a pit in the 20s before there was talkies. Uh, there was something like. I, there's a really good article uh, about Philadelphia film musicians. They made, did a study, and there was something like um, 800 musicians who worked full time in the theaters in Philadelphia. Wow! In 19 in the 20s, was that the best time to be a musician? Uh, I don't know if there's ever a good time. Probably, <laughs> you know, <laughs> when was the when was there the most work? 30s the 30s because i would then in the the 40s what happened is all the able bodies you know there's the the, first of all it's been a long time since instrumental musicians have been stars name an instrumental musician who's a star right now kenny g yeah that's about it but to think about the 30s, you had Benny Goodman, Jimmy Dorsey, Tommy Dorsey, uh, uh, um, um, Glenn Miller, you know, and just any number of, and they all had singers, but the star was was the band leader, Woody Herman, you know, Stan Kenton. Why uh, is that? Well, because swing music was the pop music, you know, b- big bands were the pop music of the day. There was, you know, like there's a great book called The Big Bands, and it it talked about like people followed the bands the way people now follow sports. You know, by, by the way, you know you can you can download archived copies of Downbeat going all the way back to the beginning. They're all on the on the on the web. It's fantastic. I've been doing some research for this new book, which is about the. I, I by the way, I bought the domain name for murder at birdland.com yeah remember we talked about it last week but i have a question yes sir so it's going to be a book about this guy who can travel in time and goes back to the 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 late 40s when 52nd street was these two blocks of all these clubs in brown in the brownstones you know uh the most the fanciest club was the 21 Club, which was still there until just last year. And may mm-hmm. they say it might open back up. They, I was reading about it. 
Now you were you were never in there, right? No. Um, it has an amazing. It had the jockeys out front. Remember? Mm-hmm. They, they took those down, um, and then um, the ceiling of the bar room. There's pictures of it. There's not many pictures of the interior because so many famous people that uh, went there. Um, you know, they, they there's they they probably were like you know, uh, didn't want to be photographed. You didn't want to be bugged by photographers. Right. By the way, a central element of this new book is going to be photography. The the secret to him being able to uh, travel in time has to do with photographs. And it, it's going to, I've decided it's going to, one of the characters that, that is, is going to go throughout is, uh, I'm calling him uh, Shooter Cole. And he's a photo man or a photographer who went, you know, like I showed you that book last week of all those photographs in the clubs. Mm-hmm. So I'm amazed that they could go to somebody could, you know, back then there weren't Polaroids. They had these big, you know, press cameras with the flashbulb. You know, you've seen them in four by four by four film, you know, mm-hmm. and they would take a picture. And before the night was out, that person could take the picture home so how did they get them developed so there must have been places right there like on yeah. broadway where they could do you know like a lab where they could turn it around right right so this guy's shooter is uh he, he's a he's he's a, his weapons are flattery and guilt so he would say he, he could talk to anybody hey hey mister do you think mr lana turner knows you have his wife this tonight, you know, <laughs> so he flatters the woman, and now you're not going to let this 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 uh, special date go undocumented, are you? you know, ah, just, yeah. So then, you know, and he, right. he he takes and he's real quick, and then he comes back, and at the coat check they get there. So that's that's going to be part of the thing, and I've, I'm just fascinated by all the every club had they took photos, you know, that was the thing. People didn't have, you know, there was no selfies back then. But um, anyway, so I'm, I'm working on that. That's keeping me busy. Good. Yeah. Should we play? We have uh, two things. We have a sample track. Let's play. This is from Chapter 2 of uh, Saving Charlie Parker. This True. is what Audible requires. You have to provide a sample track. So this is what I chose. It's four minutes long. So okay. And I'm going to turn the air conditioner on. Do that. And I'm going to mute. It is so hot in here. I can't. It's even... pretty hot up here, too. Yeah, I don't have air conditioning on. So I'm going to turn. I'm going to. OK. This is from Chapter Two of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Yes. This is the Audible version, and it's from Chapter Two. You can buy it on Audible or wherever Audible books are sold. On September 22nd, 2020, one week after Michael Newman had fallen, he found himself standing in the middle of the long stairway in the house on East Smith, the What a Shame house. He looked at the half-finished tile floor of the atrium and felt the wound on his head. He was holding the same three books he had been carrying on his first tumble. One was open to the black and white photograph of the stately Massey Hall in Toronto. For a week, he had spent most of his waking hours trying to figure out how he had traveled back in time and met the greatest jazz musician of the 20th century, Charlie Parker. 
He started with the Google search. Online, he found sites dealing with ancillary topics like the history of time travel and literature, and some pop science posts about the theoretical possibility of traveling to the future or the past. Eventually, it was wormhole theory that caught his eye. The theory posited that bodies, or any kind of mass, could travel to the past through what scientists had labeled as wormholes. The idea dates to 1916 and has some relevance to Albert Einstein's theory of general relativity. Because of that, a time wormhole is sometimes referred to as an Einstein-Rosen bridge. The written descriptions in Google were beyond him, but the illustrations showing how space and time could be curved and in a way folded back onto itself made sense. It appeared that two points years apart could actually be bridged by a wormhole, a tunnel in a way, that would be a shortcut between those points. He had decided to recreate everything that had landed him in the ER seven days earlier. He took a deep breath, leaned back slightly, and plunged headfirst down the steps. He was hoping to somehow induce the state of unconsciousness that allowed him to pierce the time barrier, so to speak, or enter the wormhole. He didn't really know how to label what he was doing. He just hoped it would work and render him unconscious like before. However, this time his instinct of self-preservation kicked in. The books went flying and his hands reached up to catch his fall. They did an admirable job. He did not land head first as before and he did not lose consciousness. As a matter of fact, he was so conscious that he heard every crack and crunch as the bones of his right wrist shattered. He moaned and called for Jean. The pain was the worst he had ever experienced, and after McPherson set the arm in a cast and offered to give him something a bit stronger, Michael didn't hesitate. He listened carefully as the doctor explained the dosage instructions and possible side effects. When he got home, he watched TV for a bit, grimacing with pain every few minutes. After Jean had gone to bed, he went to the kitchen, poured a large glass of red wine, and drank it down. He took two pills out of the bottle of OxyContin. The label read, for pain as needed but not to exceed one pill every eight hours. Do not take with alcohol. He washed them down with the second glass of wine and walked to the stairway. He gathered the books he had been carrying, opened the one to the photo of Massey Hall, and sat down. He ran his fingers over the photo as his eyes grew heavy, and within three minutes, 2020 had slipped away. This is how his travel back in time would begin for the next eight weeks. From the audio version of Saving Charlie Parker, the novel written by Professor Mike Steinel, also doing the narration. That was chapter two 
go buy that book. Buy the That's a little bit of chapter two. A little bit of chapter two. Yeah. It yeah. sounds great. By the way, can you hear the air conditioning? Cannot. You cannot hear the air conditioning? Not really. Oh, really? I, cu I couldn't think straight. It it's so stuffy in here. What else is new? <laughs> Not metaphorically. Oh, okay. It was actually, okay. it was actually stuffy <laughs> in here. Should we play Amazon Hell? Now, what, what, what makes you want to play Amazon? Very, very special person to us. Uh, Rosanna Eckert had a birthday yesterday. Ah. And uh, we... Uh, she uh, she's on Amazon Hell Part Two, and she does an amazing bit of work. Um, I, Amazon Hell is about my struggles, and I'm still having them because I can't get the record on Spotify. I have a I've hit a snag with my BMI membership, so I'm trying to work that out. And nobody at BMI who and they have tons of people on their staff. No one will return my call. But what is BMI? Uh, Broadcast Music International. You, okay. you, most people sign up for ASCAP. I should have done that. But for some reason, BMI was around way back when I did my first recording in 1974. And I, I signed my rights to BMI. They take care of, of, your, of your performance royalties. And they're pretty good. Every now and then I get a check. You know, it's, it, it's always... They're much better in the overseas than in America, um, f you know, f about keeping track of when, when music might be performed or recorded. Right. But anyway, um, so I, I, I can't get, I'm not on Spotify yet. And I really, we're trying to, trying to work on that. We're going to submit the, the audio book and the CD for the Grammy, to the Grammys. Rosanna's helping me with that. Right. But we have to have, you know, they have to have files to listen to anyway the deadline's on wednesday so it's a little crazy but uh, so anyway rosanna eckert we 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 did this amazon hell was about all the companies yes. that uh, bezos owns and then amazon i said i remember i called her we uh, the day after i did that for you and i said you know it'd be really cool i'll do this song again but i'll just say the name of these companies and you improvise something mm -hmm. and she went way over the top it's fantastic so, i remember oh, this i remember this yeah let's listen to it but before yeah i wanted to ask you about turtle because when you did it live on this show yeah wasn't rosanna eckert's husband playing drums he was we we added gary on percussion for that he was playing congas he was playing congas but he's not on the original recording no 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 he's I on see. he's on He's on a number of tracks on uh, on the CD, but not on Turtle. And it just worked out that it sounded fine without the percussion, so we just kept it that way. Fantastic. This is Amazon Hell, written and performed by Professor Mike Steinel and featuring Rosanna Eckert. Yeah. Hmm.
busy, I'm losing my mind. I got books to publish, I got songs to sell, but I'm stuck in the middle of Amazon hell. Amazon, Amazon hell. I wanna be on Audible and Baby too. I've checked it all out, it's the best thing to do. The more I dig around, the more that I know. It looks like it's owned by Jeff Bezos. Amazon. I'm in Amazon, Amazon hell, and it's starting hell. to smell. Jeff Bezos. I just want to sell my little notebook, but Amazon is everywhere that I look. I'm not going to say that he's a bad guy, but he's got his fingers into every pot. He owns Audible. 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 Twitch. Twitch. Love film. Body labs. fantastic i remember that isn't she amazing she she yeah. just knocked that out I, I sent it to her like on a sunday night 
And then by like 11 in the morning, she sent it back. And I went like, whoa. Wow. Because we had done one with crypto, uh, crypto uh -huh. asset names. By the way, I feel kind of like that I was um, vindicated ahead of the curve. Everything that's crypto is crashing. Yes. You know, I guess people uh, want to put their money in something that's real. Well, yeah, like a piggy bank or something like that under the mattress. How could that have been? I mean, isn't that just I, I don't understand any of it. It just sounds like end stage capitalism where people have excess cash. The wrong people have excess. Yeah, cash. they stop buying baseball cards to invest in and they start. Oh, that, I love your I love your uh, discussion of baseball cards and postage stamps. Oh, right. With Barry. Yes. Reverend yes. Barry Lynn. Did you ever have a, a, a postage stamp? I did. I did collect stamps um, in Scouts, you know, just for a little bit. But it was, you know, not really. I had a bug. I had an insect collection. That was kind I, of gruesome. You know, you had to put the pins in them. And, yeah. I, I had a relative, an older, older, older friend of my grandparents who every Saturday would go to the post office. I would go with him a couple of times and he would buy a, a sheet of commemoratives. He would really. Yeah. And he had a bit like an enormous collection. And I'm trying to remember, I think that it didn't, it wasn't the, the great investment. <laughs> of that, course it wasn't. It wasn't, it but they were so beautiful and he, curated the stamps yeah they're the postage the compulsion stamps. to collect is very interesting you know when i got into dylan that's the only thing i've ever collected is i own every dylan record i, mm -hmm. I, I may there's a couple new things some bootlegs and i need to get those but i remember once i got into it i i was and i would and to be real honest i think the last four or five i haven't listened to even once the Christmas album, I heard one track, and I said, no, I'm not going to listen to that. But I wanted to own it. <laughs> you know. Why? I, I was why. I don't know. There's a compulsion. There is a compulsion to collect, to have. And that seemed, you know, like, that seems doable. That was, you know, like, that was finite. Even though he has a lot of records, it was finite. And, and it's documented as to what's what, you know. But then they start they start pulling out these all these demos that he did and and these bootlegs which are pretty amazing. amazing. Yeah, I amazing. told you about my Dylan trip one time, didn't I? No. I took all my Dylan records and the books I had on Dylan and I put the tracks in sequential order by when they were recorded. I dated I put I, I put uh, dates in in a field in iTunes so I could sort on that field. And then I had Dylan complete, complete, and I took I was I was I was doing a clinic in Missouri, a clinic in Houston, and then coming back home. So I had some, and I was going to do it. I was going to drive. I was going to drive to Columbia, and then down to Houston and back home. It was a big long trip. I hear you. And uh, my wife wasn't going, so she she wouldn't have put put up with that much Dylan. No, she wouldn't have. And so did you do it? So you listen to every chronologically every song he ever recorded. Well, here's the thing. I, I started on the trip and it was like 10 hours to Missouri. 
and then it's eight hours to Houston, and then five hours back. When I pulled into the driveway, I was only up to 1977. You were driving too uh, fast. You get a, no. <laughs> you get a speeding ticket. But I mean, I mean, that's how much material there was, you know, because you... What does that do? Did you take a break? Did you listen to any other music? Or did oh, you... you know what I did? I, I actually... I wonder I if anybody's ever done this. I actually had a recorder and I made, I made recordings about where I was. And, you know, I've, I got another book in the can. It's called, uh, beauty walks a razor's edge. And it's, it's a, it's a tribute to Bob Dylan singing, which everybody says is a bad singer. Bob Dylan is, was a great singer. Is that from idiot wind? Uh, beauty walks a razor's edge is from, uh, shelter from the storm. Oh, but it's from Blood on the Tracks. From Blood on the Tracks. I yeah. love Shelter from the Storm. It's, there's a lot of imagery in there, you know. They gambled for his clothes. There's a, the references to Jesus. He's got a lot of references to Jesus. In in rock, in, uh, uh, what's what's the one? Uh, uh, there's so many great turns of phrase, of phrasing in, in Bob Dylan, you know. Um <laughs> I've been, I've been trying to listen to John Updike. I've been trying to listen to Rabbit Run. And, and last night I was in bed, and, and he went into this long sex scene, and it was gruesome. It was horrible. Today I, I Googled John Updike's writing, writing sex scenes, and, and he's, he's, he's won awards for, the, for bad sex scenes. There, there's a, they give awards for that every year, like the worst the worst sex writing, you know, but it was, it's very, have you read much John Updike? You no. Read Rabbit Run? No. I supposed to be great. You know, I, I, um, I've been listening to that and I've been listening. I'm still listening to Dickens. Dang, that guy was good. Tale of Two Cities. Fantastic. What a story. How he interweaves stuff. It's amazing. I, you know, I would, love to be able to uh, and and he takes huge detours so i'm so i'm doing that a little more with this book like one of the detours is uh writing about shooter cole whose real name is uh stanislav you know he's from lithuania mm -hmm. so he's changed his name and he he's come to new york you know when he was two and he's shooter cole and he's he's a photographer on on the street and he'll come back. I've decided he'll come back in and out of the story because mm -hmm. the story has to do with the photographs that allow the photographs allow my character to time travel. And uh, wow. But he has to have photo. You know, there's a big flaw in saving Charlie Parker in terms of time travel. And I'm it's interesting that somebody hasn't noticed. I'm sure people that are into time travel. But one of the things about like wormhole theory and is that it should the wormhole should go to a particular space not just a time but you know like you you know i, I have my character going to montreal and then going to la oh, I see. and That's then going true. you know if if you're traveling in time you should you should move in time but stay in the same physical space oh i didn't know that well, that seems logical. If there's the wormhole, you you, you know you should. It should. But can't be you the, get on a train somewhere? And I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> Maybe. 
Let's wrap it up. I'm uh, okay. I'm a little dizzy today from the heat. I am. Uh, Next week, I'm going to have a, a Ron DeSantis song. That would be nice. Yeah, but rhymes. I'll give you a little bit of it. Our governor DeSantis looks like a praying mantis. Someday, maybe he'll grant us permission to say gay. (laughs) But until then, don't come to Florida. Because this is the place where woke comes to die. (laughs) If you are a teacher, you better mind your P's and Q's. Because everyone down here has the Ron DeSantis blues. Mm, I like the Ron DeSantis blues. (laughs) Don't even think about bringing LGBTQ. This kick-ass governor down here might make a mess of you. This is where I stopped. (laughs) Ah, he's got the playbook. I ain't saying he's Adolf. And then I need to rhyme with Adolf. (laughs) Jagoff? (laughs) Okay. And I got the wrong DeSantis blues. I like the Ron DeSantis blues. I'll have it ready for next week. Please. Okay, man. I love you. I love you. I love you. Right back at you. You know, I had, uh, I met Professor John. Hey, I'm jealous. When are you going to come to Texas? I, we're going to come to Texas. We're going to get a big. Uh, no, I'll come to New York. Well, no, we'll get a bus. We're going to. Pick you up, and then we'll pick up Professor Marianne, and we'll move to Canada. Let's all go to Florida and say gay. Anyway. That would be fun to, yeah, yeah. See what, see what happens. Uh, okay. Yes. All right. I love you, buddy. Thank Same you. Same here. Bye. Rodrigo, let's go to Mexico. Professor Bick raised his hand. Hi, David. I have a short video for you of Dr. Oz telling his followers of who their driver's licenses away from their friends who aren't voted for him. I'm sorry, I didn't hear what you said. Please, please say that again. I have a short video for you of Dr. Oz where he tells his followers to take driver's licenses away from their friends who aren't voting for him. And he says they shouldn't be driving. It's on the chat. Okay. I'll play it on uh, Thursday's show. He was probably joking. I mean, he's pretty horrible, but I, I can't imagine him being serious. One of your listeners is not a fan of Mike Steinel, and he invites you to look at his YouTube channel, quote, Rick, Rick Mahurin, end quote, and to use his songs free of charge on the show. Just you, not anyone else looking for free music. Um, when whoa, I was whoa, 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 hang on for one second. Somebody isn't a fan of Mike Steinel. I know it's wild, and I, I want to meet this person and have them on the show. <laughs> this is like a unicorn. He's offering to give you free music, so he doesn't have to listen to Mike Steinel with your show. Well, don't listen to the show then. <laughs> So when I was a kid, Manuel Bartlett Diaz was my governor, and he introduced me to tear gas for the first time. Ah. Today, I was downtown, and there was a protest about the murder of a young woman five years ago, 
whose name you'll find absolutely unpronounceable, and they're accusing previous governors, the current one, and even the president's people of covering this up, and the cops were escorting them to make sure no one in a hurry ran them over by accident. Progress, when compared to a few decades ago. <laughs> I have a quote from the Heritage Foundation you may find funny. Quote, There's a rich debate about whether or not a document is declassified if a president has decided but not communicated it outside of his own mind, end quote. Okay. I don't know if you heard that Bob Lupone, family physician on The Sopranos, has died at 76. The, the, the Polly Walnuts? Uh, the actor is Bob Lupone. I don't remember the name of the character. Hold it. Polly Walnuts died. Who else died on The Sopranos? Bob Lupone. He was the family physician. Oh, Dr. Cusimato? I guess. Did he play Dr. Cusimato? Oh. I haven't seen The Sopranos in years. No. I thought you'd like to know that another actor Very from sad. The Sopranos. Yeah. Very also, sad. Uh, two comedians pretended to start a hunger strike protesting Teslas at an oil and gas conference. You may find that funny. And I'm going to read a page from a book that I hope explains better than I have an issue I've been trying to explain for the last two or three years. Please keep in mind that all victims of microaggressions and ableist jokes feel this way, not just the Asian Americans. The term racial micro microaggressions was first coined by Chester Pierce in the 1970s to describe the daily slights and insults experienced by black people in the United States. However, the use of the term microaggressions has broadened to include all marginalized groups. Psychologist Derald Wing Su defines the term as the brief and commonplace daily verbal, behavioral, and environmental indignities, whether intentional or unintentional, that communicate hostile, derogatory, or negative racial, gender, sexual orientation, and religious slights and insults to a target person or group, often involving the projection of stereotypes, they can occur at any moment of the day, a constant potential source of stress. When Michael Luo, a Chinese-American journalist, experienced one of those moments walking with his family after church on a Sunday morning in October 2016, he posted this message on Twitter. Well-dressed woman on Upper East Side annoyed by our stroller jails, go back to China, go back to your effing country, hashtag this is 2016. In another tweet he wrote, Now my seven-year-old, distressed by what happened, keeps asking, why did she say go back to China? We're not from China. Later, Luke wrote an open letter to the woman who told my family to go back to China, and to his surprise, the New York Times published it on the front page. Dear madam, it begins, maybe I should have let it go. Turn the other cheek, but I was honestly stunned when you yelled at us from down the block, go back to China. I hesitated for a second and then sprinted to confront you. You pulled out your iPhone and threatened to call the cops. It was comical in retrospect. You might have been charged instead, especially after I walked away and you screamed, go back to your effing country. I was born in this country, I yelled back. It felt silly, but how else to prove I belonged? Maybe you don't know this, but insults you hold at my family 
get to the heart of the Asian American experience. It's this persistent sense of otherness that a lot of us struggle with every day, that no matter what we do, how successful we are, what friends we make, we don't belong, we're foreign, we're not American. In response to his initial tweets and then to his open letter, Lu received a torrent of responses from other Asian Americans who shared similar experiences online. Here is just one of those. Quote, this has also happened to me outside my own apartment building. A woman would write up to me and told me to go back to my own country, a country I've lived in my entire life. I couldn't even believe it. And for people to say, who say, they're just words, guess what? Words hurt, and I went home and cried that day, even though I didn't deserve to feel sad for being American. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Professor Beck? Yes, David, I need to issue a correction. Okay. I mistakenly said that uh, graduate debt was not included in Biden's uh, partial loan forgiveness plan. And uh, apparently there was some confusion. Um, I guess it was by his, his announcement, but it has been confirmed that uh, by the Secretary of Education, Miguel Cardona, that all loans held by the Department of Education are eligible for forgiveness. That mm. includes graduate loans, as well as grad plus loans, parent plus loans, and spousal loans. Okay, we correct ourselves on this show. Yes, I do Thank not you. want people to be misled. So graduate student loans are eligible for this uh, forgiveness plan. Great. And great job tonight. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I just remembered a correction I have to make too, if you don't mind. Uh, yes, go I ahead. Made a couple episodes ago about an anime that the girl was 12 years old. It turns out she's 17. Uh, it's not my fault they draw her like she's 12 because that's the style. Sorry. Okay. At least that's what she told the judge. All right. I want to thank all our guests. I thank you, Rodrigo. I want to thank Ethan Hershenfeld. Go by today is now. Howie Klein is back. Go read him over Down with Tyranny. David Cobb, Dr. Harriet Fraud, Professor Jonathan Bick, Peter B. Collins, Professor Mary Ann Cummings, and of course, the author of Saving Charlie Parker, a novel. Professor Mike Steinel. Today's show is put together, produced by the brilliant Dan Frankenberger, Andy Brown, Sarah Bush, Grace Jackson, Hannah Feldman, Professor Jonathan Bick, The Invisible Ninja, and Joe in Norway. Did I leave anything out? I don't think anything, anyone. Thank you to all the mods who keep the chat rooms honest, and I do need a printout of their names. We're going to have a meeting on Wednesday. Uh, office hours every Friday night at uh, 8 p.m. It's office hours and hours. It's the first, for, I can't believe it's going to be September. Unbelievable. First Friday of the month is this uh, Friday, so it's 24 hours of office hours. Did I thank uh, Professor Marianne Cummings? Yes, I did. Okay. I think I, I thanked everybody. Go to my website, 
to sign up for office hours. And while you're there, sign up for my newsletter. I think that's it, right? Okay. I'm David Feldman. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. Take it away, Professor Mike Steinel. Democracy's in change, we could bury its remains, but infotainment culture has infected our brains. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The wisdom we receive, the reality we perceive, is burned into our brains by cable TV. Scandal, crime, and disaster lead the news. Fear and white anxiety shape our views. The fourth estate has crumbled into an irrelevant heap. Critical thinking is all but asleep. Cause we're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. The pathological pursuit of power and profit drives everything in sight. Not sure we can stop it. Corporate plutocracy has risen to the top. We've lost the power to think, so we shop until we drop. We're surveilled and monitored while they keep us all distracted. So we never notice that our data has been extracted. We're living every day, we're living every night. In the USA, of distraction. All right. The Reagan agenda, a libertarian notion of sweeping deregulation has been put into motion. Our eyeballs seldom stray too far away from the mega monopolies that command the day. Diversity in media is gone, gone, gone. Slowly fading out like a sad, sad song. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distractions. 
The telegenic spectacle of tabloid celebrity has squeezed down any room for social integrity. With profits to be made and minds to be molded, the media crushes the truth even when it's been scolded. It's books now more than ever that people need to read. Folks are hypnotized by their Twitter feed. We're living every day, we're living every night in the USA of distraction. Is under full attack by the cult of meritocracy. We're living every day, yeah. We're living every night in the USA. Of That is it. I will see everybody, uh, I hope, on Thursday. I'm exhausted. I'm exhausted. All right. Bye, everybody.